Chapter 28, Four Years Earlier There are books in my father's library that say no mountain ever spat lava within a thousand miles of Halradra before the thousand suns. They tell it that the builders drilled into the molten blood of the earth and drank its power. When the suns scorched away all that the builders had wrought, the wounds remained. The earth bled, and Halradra and his sons were born in fire. Gorgoth carried me to where Sindri waited. The sun still shone outside, though I felt it should be dark. I came to my senses halfway down the mountain, bouncing on Gorgoth's broad back. They came one by one, my senses. First the pain, and only the pain. Then after an age, the smell of my own burned flesh, the taste of vomit, the sound of my moaning, and finally a blurred vision of Halradra's black slopes. God, just kill me, I whimpered. The tears dripped off my nose and lips, hanging as I was like a sack over Gorgoth's shoulder. It wasn't Gog I was sorry for. It was me. In my defence, having a hand-sized part of your face burn crisp is ridiculously painful. It hurt worse hanging there, bumping with the monster's strides, than when it happened. And I had wanted to die back there in the cave. Kill me, I moaned. Gorgoth stopped. Yes? I thought about it. Christ, jeez you. I needed someone to hate, something to take my mind off the fire still eating into me. Gorgoth waited. He would take me at my word. I thought of my father with his young wife and new son, snug in the tall castle. Maybe later, I said. I remember only snippets until Gorgoth laid me down in the bracken and Sindri leaned over me. Uskitter! He fell back into the old tongue of the north. That's bad. At least I'm still half pretty. I retched and turned my face to spit sour liquid into the ferns. Let's get him back, Sindri said. He looked around for a moment, opening his mouth, then closed it. Gog's gone, I said. Sindri shook his head and looked down. He drew a breath. Come, we need to get you back. Gorgoth? The monster made no move. Gorgoth's not coming, I said. Gorgoth bowed his head. You can't stay here, Sindri said, alarmed. Ferrakind, Ferrakind is gone too, I said. Each word hurt, almost enough to make them into one scream. No. Sindri's mouth stayed open. We are not friends, Jorg of Ancrath, Gorgoth said, deeper than he'd ever spoken. But we both loved the boy. You loved him first. You named him. That means something. I would have told him what rubbish he was speaking, but my face hurt too much for more words. I will stay in the Heimrift, in the caves. I would have said, I hope the troll stink chokes you, but the price for opening my mouth was too high. I just raised my hand, and Gorgoth raised his, and we parted. Sindri closed his mouth, then opened it again. Ferrakine's gone? I nodded. Can you walk? He asked. I shrugged and lay back in the bracken. Maybe I could, maybe I couldn't. I wasn't going to, and that was the main thing. I'll get help. Horses, he said. Wait here. He held out both hands as if to stop me standing, then turned on a heel and sprinted away. 
I thought the news drove him more than any of my needs. He wanted to be the one to tell it, which was fair enough. I watched the blue sky and prayed for rain. Flies buzzed about me, drawn by the raw pink, the skinless muscle and fat on offer. They wanted to lay their eggs. After a while, I stopped trying to wave them away. I lay a moaning, twisting one way and another, as if there might be a way that helped. From time to time, I fainted, and in the afternoon, a light rain did come, and I prayed it would stop. Each drop burned like acid. In the evening, clouds of mosquitoes rose from wherever it is that mosquitoes hide. The Danelands were thick with the things, probably why the folk are so pale, the blood's been sucked from them. I lay there, letting them eat me, and eventually I heard voices. Makin came, and I wanted to beg for death, but my face hurt too much. It would crack apart if I opened my mouth, all the wounds oozing. Then Reich stepped up, black against the deep blue of the sky, and a little strength flowed into me. It doesn't pay to be weak in front of Reich, and there's something about Reich that makes me forget all about dying and want to do a bit of killing instead. I knew I brought you along for a reason, Reich. Each word an agony, edged with murder. We stayed five days in Alaric Maladin's hall, not in the guest hall, but in his great hall. They put a chair for me on the dais, nearly as grand as the Duke's own, and I sat there, wrapped in furs when I shivered, and stripped to the waist when I sweated. Makin and the brothers celebrated with Maladin's people. Women appeared for the first time in any number, carrying the ale in flagons and horns from the storehouse, knives at their hips, eating at the long tables like the men, drinking and laughing almost as loud. One, near as tall as me, blonde as milk, and handsome in a raw-boned way, came up to my chair as I huddled in my furs. "'My thanks, King Jorg,' she said. "'I could be making it all up,' I said. Feeling rotten and ugly made me want to sour the day. She grinned. "'The ground hasn't shaken since they brought you back. "'The sky is clear.' "'What's that?' I asked. She had a clay pot in one hand, filled with black and glistening paste, a twist of hide next to it. "'Ekatri gave it to me, a salve for the burns, and a powder to swallow in water, to fight the poison in your blood.' I managed half a laugh before the pain stopped me. "'The old witch, who keeps predicting my failures!' There'll be poison in me if I take anything she sends, all right. It's probably how the future turns out, the way she says it will. The woman, girl maybe, laughed. That's not how vulvas are. Besides, my father would take it in poor humour if you died here. It would reflect badly upon him, and Ikatri depends upon his favour. Your father? I asked. Duke Maladin, silly, she said and walked away, leaving the pot and wrap in my lap. I watched her backside as she went. I thought perhaps I wouldn't die if I could still find time to watch a well-crafted bottom. She looked over her shoulder and caught me watching. I'm Ellen. And she walked on, lost in the crowd and the smoke. I took Ekatri's powder and bit on a leather strap as Makin dabbed the ointment on my burns. He may have a light touch with a sword, but as a healer he seemed to have ten thumbs. I nearly chewed through the strap, but when he finished, the pain had died to a dull roar. The girl, Ellen, said the Volva depended on her father's favour. I hoped that was so, rather than he on hers. Makin had been digging around, asking my questions in the right corners, doing that thing he does, the one that gets him answers. No one had said it, but if you stack those answers up, 
and looked at the pile from the right angle. It seemed the ice witch, Skilfar, had a cold finger in every northern pie. I didn't doubt that many a Jarl and Norse lord danced to her tune without ever knowing it. Ikatri, though, Makin said she was a smaller fish. I wondered on that one, sitting alone with my pain in the quiet of night. Alaric of Maladon should mind himself, I thought. Even the smallest fish can choke you. I sat for five days, feeding on oat mush, whilst the brothers gorged on roasted pig, ox heads, fat trout from the lake, sugar apples, and anything else that would be agony for me to chew. Each night, more of the duke's kith and kin arrived to swell the throng. Neighbours, too, men of the Hagenfast, beards plaited with locks from those who died under their axes, true Vikings, tall and fair and cruel, out of Iron Fort and Ports North, and a lone fat warrior from the marshes of Snyarsonga, sour with seal grease and not parting with any of the furs that bundled him, despite the hall's heat. I watched Reich win the wrestling contest after ten drunken heats, finally throwing down a Viking with slab-muscled arms and a permanently florid face. I watched Red Kent come first in the throwing of the hand-axe at a wooden target board, and third in the log-splitting. A tall local with pale eyes beat Grumlow into second in the business of knife-throwing, but Grumlow was ever a stabber, and better motivated to hit a target if it breathed. They told me Roe acquitted himself well in the archery, but that took place outside, and I didn't let them move me. Makin lost at everything, but then again, Makin knows that winners may be admired, but they're not liked. The Duke and Sindri sat beside me often enough, asking for the tale of Farrakhine's end, but I shook my head and told it with a single word. Wet. The ale flowed, but I drank only water, and watched the torch flames more often than I watched the Danes at their feasting and sport. Flames held new colours for me. I thought of Gog, destroyed by fire, and of his little brother, who bore the name I gave him, Magog, for only a few hours. I thought of Gorgoth among the silence of the trolls in the black caverns. I held the copper box in my hand, and wondered if its contents would distract me from my pain. Most of all, though, as boys do when they're hurt, and at fourteen, I discovered I was still a boy if the hurt came fierce enough. I thought of my mother. I remembered how I twisted and moaned on the slopes after Sindri left me, the agony that held me and the thirst I had, nearly as large as the pain. I would have fitted well amongst the dying at Maberton, amongst the wounded that I had watched with a smile, coiled about their hurts, calling for water. And when pain bites, men bargain. Boys, too. We twist and turn, we plead and beg, we offer our tormentor what he wants, so that the hurting will stop. And when there is no torturer to placate, no hooded man with hot irons and tongs, just a burn you can't escape, we bargain with God, or ourselves, depending on the size of our egos. I made mock of the dying at Mabberton, and now their ghosts watched me burn. Take the pain, I said, and I will be a good man. Or if not that, a better man. We all become weasels with enough hurt on us. But I think a small part of it was more than that, a small part was that terrible two-edged sword called experience, cutting away at the cruel child I was, carving out whatever man might be yet to come. I promised a better one, though I have been known to lie. We were bound for Wenith on the horse coast that day, when Mabberton burned. Wenith, where my grandfather sits upon his throne, in a high castle overlooking the sea. Or so my mother told me, for I had never seen it. 
Corian came from the horse coast. Perhaps he had aimed me there, a weapon to settle some old score for him. In any event, in Duke Maladin's hall, in the quiet hours before dawn, when the torches failed and the lamps gutted out, amid snoring Norsemen slumped over their tables, my thoughts turned once more to Wenneth. I had friends in the north now, but to win this hundred war of ours, of mine, I might need some family support. Age set its hand on Brother Roe, and left him forever fifty, not wanting to touch him a second time. Grey, grizzled, lean, grisly, mean. That pale-eyed old man will bend and twist, but never break. He'll hold where the better man would fail beneath his load. The shortest of our number, rank and filthy, seemed with forgotten scars, often overlooked by men who had scant time to reflect on their mistake. Chapter 29. Four Years Earlier On the long journey south, I questioned the motivation for my diversion more than once. More than a hundred times, truth be told. The fact of the matter was that I hadn't found what I needed yet. I didn't know what I needed, but I knew it wasn't in the haunt. My old tutor, Lundist, once said that if you don't know where to look for something, just start looking where you are. For a clever man, he could be very stupid. I planned to look everywhere. We rode out on the sixth day. I sat in Brath's saddle, stiff in every muscle, my face aching and weeping. "'You're still sick,' Makin said beside me. "'I'm sicker of sitting in that chair, watching you gorge yourself, as if your only ambition were to be spherical,' I said. The Duke came to the doors of his hall, with a hundred and more of his warriors to see us off. Sindri stood at his right hand, Ellen at his left. Alaric led them in a chair. Three times they roared and shook their axes overhead. They were a scary enough bunch saying farewell to friends. I didn't fancy the chances of any they deemed to be enemies. The Duke left his men to come to my side. You worked a magic here, Jorg. It will not be forgotten. I nodded. Leave the Heimrift in peace, Duke, I said. Halradra and his sons are sleeping. No need to go poking them. And you have a friend up there, he smiled. He's no friend of mine, I said. Part of me wished he was, though. I liked Gorgoth. Unfortunately, he was a good judge of men. Good travels? Sindri came to stand beside his father, grinning as ever. Come back to us in the winter, King Jorg, Ellen joined them. You wouldn't want to see this ugly face again. I watched her pale eyes. A man's scars tell his story. Yours is a story I like to read, she said. I had to grin at that, though it hurt me. Ha! And I wheeled breath to lead my brothers south. Back on the road, and with regular applications of Ikatri's black ointment, my face began to heal, the raw flesh congealing to an ugly mass of scar tissue. From the right, you got handsome Jorgi Ankrath. From the left... Something monstrous, my true nature showing through, some might say. The pain eased, replaced by an unpleasant tightness and a deeper burning around the bones. At last I could bear to eat. Now all the fine servings from the Duke's table were trailing farther and farther behind us. I discovered that I had an awful hunger about me. And that's the thing about the road. Out on a horse, trotting the ways of empire day after day, with nothing to eat but what you can carry or steal. You discover that everything tastes good, 
when your stomach is empty. If you look at a mouldy piece of cheese and your mouth doesn't water, you're just not proper hungry. In the haunt, the cooks would honey glaze venison and garnish it with baked rosemary sprinkled dormice, just to tempt my palate. After days in the saddle, I find that in order for food to tempt me, it must be either hot or cold, and preferably, though not essentially, if it is animal, that it should not be moving and should once have possessed a backbone. Around the fire at camp on that first evening, we made a subdued huddle, somehow more reduced by the absence of our smallest companion than by that of our largest. I stared at the flames and imagined a sympathetic tingling in the bones of my jaw, even under the deadening effect of the ointment. I miss the little fella, Grumlow surprised me. Aye, Sim spat. Red Kent looked up from the polishing of his axe. Did he give a good account of himself, Jorg? He saved me and Gorgoth both, I said, and he finished the fire mage before he died. Sounds about right, Rose said. He were a godless bastard, that one. But he had a fire in him. God did he. Makin, I said. He looked up, the flames reflected in his eyes. Since Codin is at home, I paused then, realising that I'd called the haunt home for the first time. Since Codin is at home and the Nuban isn't with us. Yes, he said. I'm saying, if I set on a path that's maybe a little too harsh... Just let me know, all right? He pursed those two fleshy lips of his, then sucked air in through his teeth. I'll try, he said. He'd been trying all these years. I knew that. But now I gave him permission. For a week we skirted villages, circled towns, and picked our way through the soft edges of the kingdoms we'd passed on our journey north. We came to the settlement of Rye, too big to be a village, too recent and too random to be a town. On our trip out, we had purchased provisions there, and with our saddlebags flapping empty, we rode in to resupply. Paying for goods still feels odd to me, but it's a good habit to get into when you've got the coin to spare. Of course, you should steal every now and then, take something by force just for the wickedness of it, or how else will you keep your hand in the game? But aside from that, paying is recommended, especially if you're a king with a pocket full of gold. The main square in Rye isn't square, and it's only just about Main, as there are other markets and clearings in Rye almost as large. Reich had loaded the last sack of oats onto that great cart horse of his, and Makin was trying to strap his saddlebag over four gutted hairs in their fur when the crowd flowing around us seemed to part like the Red Sea for an old man. I had been leaning against Brath, feeling rather faint. Summer had decided to give us a preview and the sun came beating down out of a faded sky. My face ached like a bastard, and a fever had got its claws into me. Prince of Thorns! The old fellow cried as he homed in on me, loud enough to turn heads. That'd be king, if it's anything, I muttered, and if there's a thorns on the map, then I must have missed it. He stopped about a yard in front of me and drew himself up tall. A skinny fellow, dried like a prune, with white hair fluffing at the sides of a bald head. His eyes were milky, though not like cataracts, but somehow pearly with a hint of rainbows. Prince of Thorns! Louder this time. People started to close in. Go away! I used my quiet voice, the one that recommends you listen. The Gildan Gate will open for the Prince of Arrow! Something electric crackled in the air around us, 
the white fluff stood out from the sides of his head. You can only. There's an art to the quick drawing of a sword, providing the scabbard strap is undone, and I always keep mine so, so you can propel the whole blade several feet into the air just by hooking a hand loosely under one side of the crossguard and literally throwing it upward. With good timing and a quick turn of the body, you can snatch the hilt at the apex of the throw, and as the sword falls, you can turn that momentum into a sudden thrust into whatever is beside you. I looked back over my shoulder. The man's eyes still had their milky sheen, but he'd stopped prophesying on me. By stepping away, I drew the blade from his chest. He looked down at the scarlet wound, but, oddly, did not fall. I waited a moment, then another. The crowd kept their silence, and the old man kept standing, making a close study of the blood pumping down his stomach. Hey, I said. He looked up at that, which helped. His chin had been in the way. I took his head with one clean blow. I'm not one to boast, but it's not easy to decapitate a man in one swing. I've seen expert axemen take three blows to do it at an execution, when their victim's neck is laid out for them on a block. The seer had enough grace to let his body topple after his head landed by his feet. He kept looking at me though, with those pearly eyes. There's no magic in it. A severed head can watch you for close on a minute. If you let it, but they say it's bad luck to be the last thing it sees. I picked the head up by its tufts of hair and held it facing me at eye level. Seriously, you can tell me what I am and am not going to sit on in years to come, and you didn't see that one coming. I kept my voice loud for the crowd. This fake has been living off your misery and the misery of folk like you for years, and in a quiet voice, just for the seer. And any who watched me through his eyes, for all those who watched this moment across the span of years before I was born, I will make my own future. Being dead doesn't make you right. Everybody dies. The lips smiled. They writhed. Dead king, they said, without sound. And where I touched him, my skin crawled, as if a spider unfolded itself in my palm. I dropped the head and kicked it into the crowd. I say kicked. But in truth, it's a bad idea to kick a head. I learned that years ago, a lesson that cost me two broken toes. What you want to do is shove the head with the side of your foot, like you're throwing it. It's going to roll anyhow, so you don't need that much force. See, the thing about severed heads is the owner no longer has any interest in minimizing the force of the blow, or any ability to do so, for that matter. When you kick somebody in the head, as you do from time to time, they tend to be actively trying to move themselves out of the way. And the contact is lessened. A severed head is a dead weight, even if it's watching you. And that exhausts my insights into the kicking of severed heads. Admittedly, it's more than most people have to offer on the subject. But there were Mayans who knew a lot more than I do. That, of course, is a whole different ballgame. Macon finished with his straps and stepped beside me. That was probably too harsh, he said. You did ask me to point things out. Fuck off. I said. I waved to the brothers. Let's ride. For close on a hundred miles, we retraced our path along the North Way, down through the duchies of Parquot and Bavar, where most travellers are welcome, so long as they don't plan to stay, and even our sort are tolerated, so long as we don't get off our horses. The town of Hanver greeted us with bunting, among those peaceful huddles of thatched cottages that I had remarked upon whilst travelling north. Hanver lay equally untouched and unspoiled, 
a place not visited by war, and cradled amidst idyllic farmland divided into tiny fertile fields. Looks like a holy day, Kent stood in his stirrups to see. For all that he was a dark and deadly bastard, Kent had himself a pious nature. The good kind of pious. Or at least the better kind. Gah! Wright liked his celebrations louder, more wild, and more likely to end in a riot. There'll be corals, Sim said, ever the music lover. And so without much more than a nod toward the fact I was king of Renar, and that none of them were much more than scabby peasants at the end of it all, the brothers led me into Hanver. We rode in down the main street, through the crowd, the locals with scrubbed faces sporting their best rags, the children waving ribbon sticks, some clutching sugar apples, kept sweet over winter. The brothers set off on separate ways, Sim to the church, Grumlow to the smithy, Reich handing his reins to a boy outside the first tavern. Roe, more particular, chose the second tavern, and Kent veered off to a stables to get an expert eye on Hellex's front right foreleg. Looks like there'll be more than corals. Makin nodded ahead to the main square. A wooden platform had been erected, fresh timbers still weeping. A wide stage, a gallows frame, and three strangling cords dangling in the breeze. We tied up at the public tether, and Makin flicked the watchboy a copper double. Church execution, Makin said. A white flag fluttered at the far corner of the platform, the holy cross and cup inked onto the linen. Hmm. I had little enough enthusiasm for matters ecumenical in the tall castle. On the road, the church spread Roma's poisons without moderation, and that perhaps is the only time I have considered my father to be a moderating influence. We stood with the others in the sunshine, snagging skewers of roast mutton from a passing cellar. An ale boy sold us arak in pewter cups, a dark and bitter local brew, stronger than wine. He waited for us to throw it back, then went on his way with his cups returned. I may not have any time for the church, but why miss a good execution? Once, years back, we'd watched them hang Brother Merrin, and Roe had said, A good execution don't need a good reason, which is true enough. We heard the singing first, four choir boys, probably none of them cut, not in a wattle and daub town like Hanver. Nothing to see to start with, save a silver cross up high on a staff. Then the crowd parting, and the boys in white frocks, voices soaring. I saw Sim way back, mouthing the words, though he didn't know the Latin, just the sounds of it. The priests then, two black crows, with the holy purple showing at their breast, swinging censers. Blunt-faced, alike as brothers, no older than Macon. Following, drawn on a cart and bound at hand and foot, a mother and two daughters. Ten, twelve, hard to say, white with terror. The senior priest brought up the rear, purple silks showing in diamonds through the black of his cassock. A stern man, handsome enough, silver hair in a widow's peak, lending him gravitas. I need a decent ale, Makin spat. That Arrick's left a sour taste. It might be that a good execution doesn't need a good reason, but it seemed to me that no execution the church conducted could be called good. I'd held Father Gomst in contempt most of my life, as much for the lies he told as for his weakness. That night of thorns and rain had shown his lies, clear as if lightning found them in a dark room. But they would have surfaced in time either way. In fairness, though, Gomp's brand of feeble optimism and talk of love had little of the Roma doctrine in it. Father wouldn't let the Pope's hand inside his castle. There were jeers among the crowd as the woman and her girls were manhandled onto the platform. 
though plenty kept silent, faces held tight and joyless. Do you know what the Church of Roma has in common with the church that came before it? The faith the popes held in the time of the builders, in the centuries before the builders, I said. Makin shook his head. No? Nobody else does either, I said. Pope Anticus took in every Bible that survived the thousand suns in deep vaults. All the books of doctrine, all the Vatican records, all of it. Could have burned the lot. Could be following every letter and footnote. The scholars can tell you nothing except that you're not allowed to know. The priest up on the platform had found his stride, patrolling the edge before the crowd and bellowing about wickedness and witchcraft. White flecks of spit caught the sunlight as they arced over the heads of the peasants closest in. I never took you for a theologian, Jorg. Makin turned away. Coming for that ale? I watched the executioners wrestle the first girl to the post. Not to be a straight hanging then, a little cutting first perhaps. She put up a struggle for a small thing. You could see the strain in the man's arms. Too early in the day for blood, Sir Makin. I goaded him, but the jibe was aimed inward at whatever was putting that same sour taste in my own mouth. Makin growled. Call me soft, but I've no stomach for it. Not for children. I don't think he'd ever a stomach for it. Makin. Not for children, not for men. Though he'd let himself be carried along in the darkness of the Brotherhood, back in those early years when he counted himself all that stood to defend me. But they're witches, another taunt meant for myself. They probably were witches. I'd met witches of many flavours, and more magic seemed to leak into the world with each passing year, finding its way through this person or that, as if they were cracks in the fabric of our days. I'm sure the priest would have had me up on his platform too, if he knew I could talk to dead men, if he saw the black veins running corrupt across my chest, if he had had the balls to take me. They might be witches, but just as likely, the woman had dared to disagree. Or invent. Rumour hated nothing like it hated invention. A priest might order you burned for making free with some enchantment, but find the trick of a better steel, or rediscover some alchemy of the builders, and they would have an expert spend all week killing you. Makin spat again, shook his head, walked away. A judgment on me. On his damn king. I threw off the anger. It was an escape. I could hide in it, but it wasn't Makin that had made me angry. Let people pray to God. It's nothing to me. Some good may even come of it, if goodness is something that matters to you. Trap him in churches, if you must, and lament him there. But Roma, Roma is a weapon used against us, a poison flavoured sweet and given to hungry men. Up on the platform, the girl screamed as they stripped her. A man approached, holding a cane, all set with metal teeth glittering and pretty. It's the bishop, isn't it? I found Kent beside me, his hand on mine, as somehow it worked to draw steel without asking my permission. With Kent's help, I kept my sword in its scabbard. Murillo, I agreed. There were few men who would dare mention Bishop Murillo to me. I regret the nails still. I had hammered them slow enough into his head, but even so, it was too quick an escape for him. A black day, Kent said though I couldn't tell if he meant then or now. Pious or not, he had never once chided me for the Pope's nephew. I nodded. I had better reasons to hate the Church of Roma than for Murillo. But the bishop had put the edge on it. How's Helix? I asked. She'll be fine. They put a poultice on her leg, Kent said. The girl howled like the damned, though all they'd done was show her the cane. Fit to ride, is she? I asked. 
Kent gave me a look. Jorg! We're built of contradictions, all of us. It's those opposing forces that give us strength. Like an arch, each block pressing the next. Give me a man whose parts are all aligned in agreement, and I'll show you madness. We walk a narrow path, insanity to each side. A man without contradictions to balance him will soon veer off. Let's get a better view. I moved through the crowd. Most got out of my way. Some I had to hurt. Kent stayed close behind. Makin walked away because his contradictions allowed him a compromise. Mine are not so gentle. I'll say it was hate that put me on that platform. Hate for Roma, for its doctrine of ignorance, for the corruption of its highest officials. Perhaps for the fact it wasn't my idea. My brothers would tell you the decision owed as much to contrariness to my taking offence at the idea that the only things holding those prisoners, save the binding cords, were fear of the priest and the baying of the mob. Certainly my actions owed nothing to three months on the throne of Renard. When they set that crown on my head, technically I accepted responsibility for the people of my kingdom. But the crown weighed more than the responsibility ever did, and I even took the crown off before too long. Nobody tried to stop me clambering on stage. I swear there were even a few helping shoves. I took the cane from the executioner's hand as he drew back for his first swing. Sharp little twists of iron studded its length. The girl, naked against the post, watched that cane as if it were the only thing in the world. She looked too clean for a peasant. Perhaps the priests had washed her so the marks of her torture wouldn't be lost in the dirt. Red slaughter was an option. My fingers itched for a sword hilt and I felt fairly sure I could kill everyone on the stage without breaking sweat. Hanva hadn't seen war in a generation. I was more than ready to change that. Instead I tried reason, or at least my brand of reason. Three strides brought me to within a yard of the silver-haired priest, the toothed cane twirling in one hand. I am King Jorg of Renar. I have killed more priests than you have killed witches. "'and I say you will release these three "'for no reason other than it pleases me.' "'I spoke clear and loud enough for the crowd, "'which had fallen so quiet "'I could hear the flags fluttering. "'The next words out of your mouth, priest, "'will be yes, your highness, "'or you'll be making a meal of this cane.' "'To his credit, the priest hesitated, "'then said, "'Yes, your highness.' "'I doubt he believed my lineage.' but he sure as hell believed my culinary predictions. Armed men stood among the peasants. Not so many, but enough. Bullies in helms and padded jerkins, keeping order for whatever lordling held sway here. I met their eyes, beckoned to a group of three over by the horse trough. They shrugged and turned away. I can't say it pleased me. Makin stood just beyond the trio, his compromise not having taken him as far as the closest alehouse after all. Tell me no. My sword cleared its scabbard so fast it almost rang. Blood hunger on faces in the crowd. The shock that they had been denied their due. I shared it too, like a sneeze that goes unvoiced, a vacuum demanding to be filled. I waited, more than half of me wanting them to riot, to sweep forward in a wave of outrage. Tell me no. But they stood silent. The prisoners' ropes gave before my sword's honed edge. Get out, I told them, angry now, as if it were their fault. The mother limped away, pulling her girls behind her. Makin helped them down. 
I wondered later if it would be enough to send my ghost away, if my good deed, whatever the reason for it, would keep that dead baby from my dreams. But he returned, as ever, with the shadows. We stayed a full day in Hanver and left on a bright morning, our saddlebags full and with the bunting still overhead. Such is the beauty of places untouched by war. And the reason they don't last. Chapter 30 Four Years Earlier I'd left my monsters in the north, Gog and Gorgoth, my demons, I carried south with me as ever. We made good time on our journey south. We crossed the Rhyme aboard one of those rickety barges I'd been so dismissive of on the way north. I found it an interesting experience, my first journey by water rather than merely through it or over it. The horses huddled, nervous in the deck pen, and for the few minutes it took to haul the barge across by means of a fixed rope, I leaned over the prow and watched the river sparkle. I wondered at the captain, a sweat-soaked bulge of man, and the three men in his service, to live their lives on a broad river that would bear them to the sea in a few short hours. To haul their craft for mile after mile, hundreds in a month, and never get more than shouting distance from where they started. "'Remind me again,' Makin said when we alighted on the far shore. "'Why aren't we just going back to the haunt where we, well, you at least, can live like kings? Instead of crossing half the world to see relatives you've never met?' "'I've met some of them. I've just not been to where they live.' "'And a reason we're doing it now? "'Did you take the highlands just so Codin could rule it for you?' "'Makin asked. "'My family has always had a high regard for stewards,' I said. "'Makin smiled at that. "'But we're going because we need friends. "'Every soothsayer and his disemboweled dog "'is telling me that the Prince of Arrow is set for the Empire Throne. "'If that's even part true, "'then he's going to roll over the Renar Highlands soon enough. "'And having met him... I'd say we'd have a hard time stopping him. And despite the legendary friendliness of my nature, it seems that these days I have to cross half the world to find someone who might be ready to help out in time of need, I said. All that was true enough, but more than any move in the game of Empire, I quite wanted to find a member of my family who didn't yearn to kill me. Blood runs thick, they say, but what I have from my father is thin stuff. As I got older, as I started to examine the parts from which I'm made, I felt a need to see my mother's kin, if only to convince myself not all of me was bad. We passed among the roots of Orps, mountains that put the Mataraks to shame, both in size and number. Legion upon legion of white peaks marching east to west across nations. The Great Wall of Roma. Young Sim found them a fascination, watching so hard you might think he'd fall off his mare at any moment. A man could never climb those, he said. Hannibal took elephants across them, I told him. A frown crossed him, then passed. Oh, elephants, he said. Until that moment, it hadn't occurred to me he hadn't the least clue what an elephant was. Even Dr. Taproot's circus didn't have elephants. Sim probably thought they climbed, like monkeys. For weeks we rode along the lawless margins of minor kingdoms, along the less worn routes. Seven is a dangerous number of men for travelling. Not so few that you can pass unnoticed, not so many that safety is assured. Still, we looked hard-bitten. 
perhaps not as hard-bitten as we were, but enough to dissuade any bandits who might have watched us pass. Looking poor helps, too. We had horses, weapons, armour, true enough, but nothing that promised a rich prize, certainly not a rich enough one for taking on Reich and Macon. The foothills of the Orps roll out along the margins of Teutonia, in long barren valleys divided by high ridges of broken stone. Bad things happened here in the distant long ago. The interdiction, they called it, and little grows in the sour dust, even now. Amid the emptiness of those valleys, a week's march from anywhere you might want to be, we passed the loneliest house in the world. I've read that in the white north, beyond a frozen sea, men live in ice houses, sewn in their furs, huddled from a wind that can cut you in half. But this stone hut, dwarfed amongst abandoned boulders, its empty windows like dark eyes, it seemed worse. A woman came out of it, and three children lined up before her to watch as we rode past. No words were spoken. In that dry valley, with just the whisper of the wind, without crow-call or the high song of larks, it felt as if words would be a sin, as if they might wake something better left sleeping. The woman watched us from a face that looked too white, too smooth, like a dead child's face, and the children crouched around her in their grey rags. Riding north, we had paced the spring. Now it seemed we galloped into summer. Mud dried to hardpan, blossoms melted away. The flies came. Reich turned red, as he does in any hint of summer. Even the dirt won't keep him from it, and the sunburn improved his temper not a bit. We left the mountains in their grim foothills, finding our way across wild heathlands and into the great forests of the south. At the end of a hot day, when my face hurt less, not healed, but no longer weeping, I drew my sword. We had set camp on the edge of a forest clearing. Roe found us a deer, and had a haunch spitting over the fire. "'Have it ye, Sir Makin of Trent. "'If you're sure you've not forgotten how to use that thing,' he grinned and drew. "'My liege.' "'We sparred a while, parrying and fainting, "'stretching our limbs and practising our strokes. "'Without warning, Makin picked up the pace, "'the point of his blade questing for me. "'Time for another lesson?' he asked, still grinning, but fierce now. "'I let my sword arm guide me, "'watching only the plot of the fight.' the advances and retreats, not the details of every cut and thrust. Behind Macon, the sun reached through the forest canopy in golden shafts, like the strings of a harp, and beneath the rustle of leaves, above the birds' calls, I caught the strains of the sword-song. The tempo of our blades increased, sharp, harsh cries of steel on steel, the rasp of breath. Faster. The burn on my face seemed to reignite. The old pain ran in me, acid and lightning as if Gog's fragments were lodged in my bones, still burning. Faster! I saw Makin's grin falter, the sweat running on his forehead. Faster! The flicker of reflected light in his eyes. Faster! A moment of desperation, and then, Enough! And he let the sword fly from his fingers. Jeez, you! he cried, shaking his head. Nobody fights like that! The brothers had stopped their various tasks and watched, as if unsure what they had seen. I shrugged. Perhaps you're not such a bad teacher. My arms trembled now, and I used my free hand to steer the point of my blade home into its scabbard. Ouch. For a moment, I thought I had cut myself and raised my fingertips to my mouth. But there was no blood, only blistering where the hot metal scorched me. We followed the curve of the mountain range and the sweep of one great river 
then another. The map had names for them. Sometimes the locals had their own, not trusted to maps. Sometimes those upstream called a river one thing, and those farther down named it differently. I didn't much care as long as it led us where I chose to go. Lately, though, we had been blocked at each turn, it seemed. Watchtowers, patrols, floods, rumours of plague. Each of them turned us one way, then another, as if funnelling us south along particular paths. I didn't much like the feeling, but it was, as Macon said, just a feeling. Dung on it! I jumped from Brath's saddle and approached the shattered bridge. On our side, the stonework still held part of its original arc, spanning out across the white waters for several yards before ending like a broken tooth. I could see large chunks of the bridge just below the river's surface, making waves and troughs in the flow. The damage looked fresh. So we trek east a bit? It's not the end of the world, Makin said. Of all of us, Makin held the best mind for finding a path. Maps stayed with me. I could close my eyes and see each detail on the map scroll, but Makin had an instinct for turning ink on hide into wise choices in the matter of this valley or that ridge. I grunted. Crouched at the side of the bridge, I could smell something, just a hint, beneath that fresh metallic tang of fast-moving waters. Something rotten. East, then, I said, and we turned toward the trail leading east, a thin line of darker green amid the verdant woods, overhung with willow and choked by brambles. The thorns scratched at my boots as we rode. The thing about the path less travelled is that it is often less travelled for a good reason. When that reason is not the dangers that haunt the road, then it is the road itself. Sometimes it's both. In Canton Lona, the soft edge of civilization becomes very soft. So soft, in fact, that it will suck you down, given a quarter chance. We're going through. Red Kent stood in his stirrups, frowning at the reed-dotted marshland stretching before us into a greenish-brown infinity. Stinks, Makin sniffed, as if he weren't getting quite enough of the stink that offended him. Reich just spat and slapped at the mosquitoes. He seemed to draw them as if they just couldn't tell how foul he was going to taste. The duchy of Canton Lona lies along what was once the border between two vast kingdoms, the bonding of which was the first step Philip took in forging the empire. It said Philip's mother gave birth on that border, in Avinron, and being therefore a man of two lands, he felt he had claimed to both. It seemed fitting then that nothing remained of Avinron but a fetid swamp, fed by a river aptly named the Ooze. Our route lay through the marshland. Good reasons for it lay to either side. I led the way, on foot, with Brath's reins in hand. The brothers and I had spent long enough in the Ken Marshes to develop a sense for uncertain ground. The vegetation tells the story. Watch for cotton grass, the first whisper of deep mud, black bog rush, where the ground will bear a man, but a horse will sink. Sedge for clean water. Pimpernel for sour. Bulrush, where the water is deep, but the mud below is firm. Sharp eyes you need, and watchful feet, and the hope that the warm swamps of Canton Lona are not too different from the cold marshes that border Ancrath. Makin was right about the stink. The heat made it a high summer. An all-pervading rot encompassed us the reek of putrid flesh, and worse. We made slow progress that day, though we covered enough miles to make the way we had come look pretty much identical to the directions ahead, pathless, uniform, and without hope of end.
I found a place to camp where we might be sure of a full complement in the morning. A series of grassy hummocks connected by strands of firm ground offered sufficient room for the men and horses, though we would all be keeping closer quarters than perhaps we would like. Grumlow set to cooking, using sticks and charcoal that he'd had the foresight to bring with him. He brought out his iron tripod and hung a pot over the little fire and crouched over it, trickling in barley atop strips of smoked venison, the steam rising all about him and dripping off his moustache and back into the stew. When night fell, it dropped heavy and moonless, swallowing all the stars. The swamp, silent by day, save for the squelching of our feet, came alive in the dark. A chorus of croaks, whirs, chirps, and wetter, more disturbing sounds flowed over us from sunset to sunrise. I set a watch, though the embers of our fire gave nothing to watch, and when my hour came, I sat with closed eyes, listening to the darkness speak. Makin, I kicked him, wary lest he take off my foot. You're on. I heard him grunt and sit. He hadn't taken his breastplate off or his gauntlets. Can't see a damn thing. What the hell am I watching for? Humor me, I said. The place just made me feel that if we all fell asleep together, maybe none of us would wake up again. And why are you still clanking if you think this place is safe? Dreams took me before Macon could find an answer. Catherine walked them, the dead child in her arms, and accusations on her lips. The morning sun drew a mist from the pools of standing water. At first it hung a foot or two above the cotton grass, but by the time we were ready to move, the mist boiled around our chests as if it were ready to drown us where the mud had thus far failed. Some stenches you get used to. After a short while, you can't say if they're gone or not. Not the stink of the Canton-Lona marsh, though. That stayed as ripe after a day and night as it did when the reluctant breeze first brought it to me. The mist managed to make me sweat and give me chills at the same time. Wrapped in it, with my brothers reduced to wraiths at the edge of vision, I thought for some reason of the woman and her brats at that remote cottage, the woman with her dead face and the children like rats around her calves. Isolation comes in many flavours. We could wait it out, Kent said. A splash and Wright cursed. Mud past my feckin' knee. Kent had a point. The mist couldn't hope to hold out against the heat of the day as the sun climbed. You want to stay here a moment longer than you have to? I asked. Kent plodded on by way of answer. Wherever the sun had got to, it was doing a piss-poor job of keeping me warm. The mist seemed to seep into me, putting a chill along my bones, fogging my eyes. I see a house, Sim called. You do not, Makin said. What the hell would a house be doing in a... There were two houses, then three. A whole village of rough timber homes, slate-tiled, loomed about us as we slowed our advance. What the fuck? Rose spat. I think he invented spitting. Peat cutters? Grumlow suggested. It seemed the only even half-sensible explanation. But I had it in my mind that peat bogs lay in cooler climes, and that even there the locals came to the bog to cut peat and then went home. They didn't build their homes on it. A door opened in the house to our left, and seven hands reached for weapons. A small child ran out, barefoot, chasing something I couldn't see. He ran past us, lost in the mist. Just the splashing of his feet to convince me he was real, and the dark entrance to the house, where the door lay open. I approached the doorway with my sword in hand. It reminded me of a grave slot. 
and the breath of wet rot that issued from it did nothing to erase the image. Jamie, you forgot! The glimmer of my steel cut the woman short. Even in the mist, builder's steel will find a gleam. Oh, she said. Madam, I faked a bow, not wanting to lower my head more than a hair's breadth. I'm so sorry, she said. I wasn't expecting company. She looked no more than twenty-five. Fair-haired, pretty in a worn, thin kind of way, her homespun simple but clean. Between the houses to our left, a man in his fifties came into view, labouring under a wooden keg. He dumped it from his shoulder onto a pile of straw and raised a hand. Welcome, he said. He rubbed at the white stubble on his chin and stared up into the mist. You've brought the weather with you, young sir. Come in, why don't you? the woman said. I've a pot on a fire, just oat porridge, but you're welcome to some. Ma, ma, find a good bowl. I glanced round at Macon. He shrugged. Kent watched the old man, his eyes wide, knuckles white on his Norse axe. I'm so sorry, I'm Ruth, Ruth Milson. How rude of me, that's brother Robert. She waved at the old man as he went into the house he'd set the keg by. We call him brother because he spent three years at the Goen Monastery. He wasn't very good at it. She offered a bright smile. Come in. A memory tickled me. Gohan. I knew a Gohan closer to home. Does your hospitality extend to my friend? I asked, opening a hand toward Makin. Ruth turned and led on into the house. Don't be shy. We've plenty for everyone. Well, enough in any case. And there's no sin like an empty belly. I followed her, Makin at my heels. We both ducked to get under the lintel. I had half expected the interior to be dripping with the mire, but the place looked clean and dry. A lantern burned on the table, brass and polished to a high shine, as if it were a treasured heirloom. The place lay in shadows, the shutters closed as though night threatened. Macon sheathed his sword. I was not so polite. I cast about. Something was missing. Or I was missing something. Reich stood outside, looming over the brothers who pressed about him. Foolish enough they looked, bristling with weaponry, as two young girls ran past laughing. An old woman hobbled up with a bundle under her arm, oblivious to Grumlow's daggers as she grumbled on by. Ruth, I said. Sit, sit, she cried. You look half dead. You're just a boy. A big lad, but a boy. I can see it. And boys need feeding. Ain't that right, Ma? She put her hand to her neck, an unconscious gesture, and stroked her throat. Pale skin, very pale. She'd burn worse than Reich in the sun. They do. The mother put her head around the entrance, from what must have been the only other room. Grey hair framed a stern face, softened by a kind mouth. And what's the boy's name then? Jorg, I said. As much as I like to roll out my titles, there is a time and a place. Makin, said Makin, although Ruth only had eyes for me, which is odd, because even if I were handsome before the burns, it's Makin that has a way with everyone. And is there a master, Milson? Makin asked. Sit, Ruth said. So I sat, and Makin followed suit, taking the rocker by the empty fireplace. I leaned my blade against the table. The women gave it not so much as a glance. Ruth picked up a woolen jerkin from behind my stool. That Jamie would forget his head. You have a husband? I asked. A frown crossed her like a cloud. He went to the castle two years back to take service with the Duke. She brightened. Anyhow, you're too young for me. I should call Seska over. She's as pretty as the morning. She had mischief in her eye, blue eyes, pale as forget-me-not. So what are you doing out here? 
I asked. I'd taken a shine to Ruth. She had a spark in her, and put me in mind of a serving girl named Rachel back at the haunt. Something about her made me unaccountably horny. Unaccountable, if you don't count eight weeks on the road. Out here? Distracted, she put her fingers to her mouth. A pretty mouth, it has to be said, and wiggled at one of her back teeth. Ma came from the kitchen with an earthenware pot, carried in a blackened wooden grip to keep the heat from her fingers. Makin got up to help her with it, but she paid him no heed. She looked tiny beside him, bowed under her years. She laid the pot before me and set her bony hand to the lid, hesitating. Salt? Why not? I would have asked for honey, but this wasn't the haunt. Salt porridge is better than plain, even when you've eaten salt, and more salt, at Duke Maladin's tables for a week. Oh, said Ruth. Her hand came away from her mouth with a tooth on her palm. Not a little tooth, but a big molar from far back, with long white roots and dark blood smeared around it. So dark to be almost black. I'm sorry, she said, holding her hand at arm's length, as if horrified by the tooth, but unable to look away, eyes wide and murky. No matter, I said. It's strange how quickly impersonal lust can slip into revulsion. It probably crosses the tail end of that thin line the poets say divides love and hate. Perhaps we should eat, Makin said. My stomach rolled at the thought of food. The marsh stink that had yet to fade invaded the room with renewed vigour. Ma returned with three wooden bowls, one decorated with carved flowers, and a chair that looked too fine for the house. She set the bowls on the table, the fancy one for me, one before the new chair. The third she held on to, casting about for something, confusion in her eye. She put her hand to the side of her head, rubbing absently. Lost something? I asked. A rocking chair, she laughed. A place is small. You wouldn't think you could lose a thing like that. Her hand came away from her head with a clump of white hair in it. Pink scalp showed where it came from. She looked at it with as much bewilderment as her daughter, studying her tooth. The Duke's castle, you say, Ruth, Makin said from the rocker. Which Duke would that be? Makin could take the awkward edge off a moment, but neither woman looked at him. Ma stuffed the hair into her apron and shuffled back into the kitchen. Ruth set the tooth on the window ledge. Is it supposed to be lucky? she asked. Losing a tooth. I thought I heard that once. She opened the shutters. To let the dawn in. What Duke rules here? I asked. Ruth smiled the smallest smear of black blood at the corner of her mouth. Why, you are lost, aren't you? Duke Gelathar, of course. In that moment, I realised what was missing. The dead baby, the box child. He would lie in any idle shadow, but not here. These shadows were too full. The front door banged open and little Jamie charged in. Boys of a certain age seem only to go flat out or not at all. He grazed the doorpost as he passed, and lost a coin-sized patch of skin to a loose nail. He ran up to me, grinning, snot on his upper lip. Who are you? Who are you, mister? Oblivious to the missing skin, where dark muscle glistened like liver. So this would be the land of... I ignored the boy, and watched Ruth's muddy eyes. Gelleth, of course! She opened the shutters. Mount Onus is west of us. On a clear night, you can sometimes see the lights. Makin may have been the man for maps but I knew we were five hundred miles and more from Gelleth, and the dust I had made of its duke. You would need the eyes of the god of eagles to see Mount Honus from any window in the Canton Lona. And yet Ruth believed what she said.
She turned from the window. The right half of her is scarlet, as if she'd been dipped in boiling water. Chapter Thirty-One. Four years earlier, I stood up sharp enough, beating Macon out of his rocker. Ladies, my thanks, but we have to leave. We? The mother asked from the kitchen doorway, half scarlet like her daughter, but on the left rather than the right, as if together they might make an untouched woman and a wholly scalded one. There's only you, Jorg," Ruth said, the side of her face starting to blister and weep. "There's only ever been you for us." She spat two teeth, incisors, one upper, one lower, making a slot in her smile. Macon slipped past me out into the mist. I backed after him, sword held ready to ward the women off. Ruth's smile held my gaze, and I forgot her child. He clamped himself to my leg, the skin falling off him like wet paper. Who are you? Who are you, Mister? Only you, Jorg," said the mother, her head bald now, but for random white tufts. Since the sun came, she lifted her hand to the window. The mist lit with a yellow glow, then shrivelled back, drawn across the marsh as if it were a tablecloth whipped away fast enough to leave everything in place. Out across the marsh, it seemed that a second sun rose, too terrible and too bright to look at, too awful to look away from. A builder's son. In horrible unison, both women started to scream. Ruth's hair burst into flame. Her mother's scalp smouldered. I shook Jamie from my leg, and he crashed against the wall. Pieces of his skin left adhering to my leggings. I backed away from the house. I recognized the screams. I had made the same sounds when Gog burned me. Justice had made those screams when Father lit him up. Once upon a time. Perhaps I might have thought two women running around on fire was a free show. Reich would laugh that laugh of his even now. Roe would bet on which one would fall first. But of late, my old tastes had gone sour. I had grown to understand this kind of pain, and whatever enchantments might have staged this show for me, these people had felt real. They had felt kind. A truth ran through this lie, and I didn't like it. Outside, the sun shone, watching us from a mid-morning angle. And the screams sounded fainter, farther off. The hell! Red Kent swung his head. Where'd the mist go? Ain't that a thing? Rose spat. The buildings dripped with mud. They looked rotted. The roofs were gone. What did you see in there, Macon? I asked, watching the doorway. No fire, no smoke. It looked dark, as if the sun wasn't reaching in, even though the roof had gone. He shook his head. They're sinking, Reich said. I could see it, inch by inch. Each of the houses sunk into the foulness of the marsh. The sound of it put me in mind of sex, though nothing had been more distant from my thoughts. They're going back, Sim said. He kept his distance from the walls. He had it right. If we were seeing true now, the mist had gone. Then those buildings sunk long ago, and something had made the marsh vomit them up again, just for us. What happened? Makin asked, although his face said he'd rather not know. They were ghosts, I said, summoned for my benefit, some tortured reenactment of the suffering at Galath, people who died because of me. They can't hurt us. Within minutes, the buildings were swallowed and no trace remained above the mud. I scanned the horizon, nothing but stagnant pools for mile after mile. The retreating mist had cleared more than my sight, though. A second veil had been drawn away, a more subtle kind of mist that had been with us since we first scented the marsh. The necromancy tingled in me. We stood on the surface of an ocean 
and the dead swam below. Something had been overwriting my power, blinding me. Something or someone. Show yourself, Chella, I shouted. The weight of her necromancy pulled me around to stare at the mire where she rose. She emerged by degrees, black slime sliding from her nakedness, her hair plastered around her shoulders, over the tops of her breasts. Ten yards of dark and treacherous mud stood between us. Roe had his bow across his back, the Newburn's bow they strapped to Brath's saddle. Grumlow at least had a dagger in hand. In both hands, actually, but he didn't seem tempted to throw either. Perhaps he just didn't want to draw her attention to him. None of us spoke. Not one of us reached for a bow. The necromancer had a magic to work on the living as well as the dead. Or at least a magic to work on men. The mire had tainted the flesh that I remembered so well, leaving it dark but still firm. The slime that ran from her, that dripped and clung, seemed to guide the eye, to gild each dark curve and point. Hello, Jork, she said. She used Catherine's words from the graveyard. Maybe what is spoken in such places is always heard by those who have married death. You remember me? I wondered how long she had been leading me to this point. I had no doubt now that her creatures had torn down the bridge we hoped to cross. I remember you, she said, and the marsh remembers you. Marshes have long memories, Jorg. They suck down secrets and hold them close. But in the end, in the end, all things surface. I thought of the box at my hip and of the memories it held. I suppose you've come to tell me not to stand against the Prince of Arrow. Why? Do you think I have my hooks in him? I shook my head. I would have smelled you on him. You didn't smell me here, and this place reeks of death, she said, always moving, slow gyrations and stretches, demanding the eye. To be fair, it reeks of so much more beside. The Prince of Arrow has enough defenders, enough champions. He doesn't need me. In any case, you don't want to believe everything you read. And the older a book is, the less reliable its stories. There were written prophecies, too. That made me snarl. It was bad enough that every turn of the tarot card and toss of the rune sticks put Arrow on the throne. Now books, my oldest friends, had turned traitor. So why are we here? I asked. I knew, but I asked in any case. I'm here for you, Jorg, she said, husky and seductive. Come and take me, Chella, I said. I didn't lift my sword, but I turned it so the reflected light slid across her face. I didn't ask what it was she wanted. Revenge doesn't need explanation. And how are you here? A mountain had fallen on her in Galath and buried her deeper than deep. She frowned at that. The dead king came for me. And for a moment, just a moment, I swear I saw her shudder. The dead king. This was new. I had thought I understood. That she was after revenge, pure and simple. Emotions I could appreciate. After all, I had dropped Mount Honus on her. Did he send you? I would have come anyway, Jorg. We have unfinished business. Again the seduction, stilling the brothers who had started to move. So who wants me more, Chella? You, or this king of yours? A hint of a snarl in Chella now, 
the brothers starting to shake her influence as irritation wore it thin. Or did he want me more than he wanted you, Chella? Is that it? Your new king only dug you up to find me for him. I showed her my best smile. I had the truth of it. She couldn't hide the annoyance that flickered across her brow. All to the good. An angry enemy is the best kind to have. But why this dead king should have taken against me so, I'd no idea. Come and take me. I invited her again, beckoning, hoping to goad her into range. With my free hand, I shoved Makin. I know there's a naked woman and everything, but if you could point the brothers in more useful directions, then we're less likely to be eaten by our friends. Come and take you? Chella smiled. Composure returned. She wiped her hand across her mouth, flicking mud aside, her lips blood red. I do want you. I do. But not for breaking. I know your heart, Jog. Join with me. We can be more than flesh. The creature put an ache in my groin, true enough, as if that line between lust and revulsion had been erased as completely as the village. Part of me wanted to take her dare. Embrace what you fear, I had told Gog. Hunt your fears. And what is death if not the ultimate of fears, the final enemy? I had eaten the cold heart of a necromancer. Perhaps I should take Chella, take death by the throat, and make it serve me. I thought of the women burning in their house. You were less than flesh, I said. Cruel words, she smiled. She stepped closer. The fluid motion of her held my eyes. The jounce of breasts, the jut of hips, the redness of her mouth. There's a magic between us, Chalk. Surely you must have felt it. Does it not echo in your chest? Doesn't it underwrite the very beating of your heart, dear one? We were meant to be together. The dead king has told me I can have you. Told me to bring you to him. And I will. You'll have a long wait for me in hell, I said, because I intend to send you there right now. A weak line, perhaps, but mention of the dead king knocked me out of my stride. She smiled. And made a kiss with crimson lips. Are you angry because I showed you your ghosts? It wasn't me who made them jog. That stole the certainty from me. I saw Ruth again and her mother, scalded by the hot light of the builder's son. I didn't know. You didn't know a son would burn them. You thought a cloud of poison would roll out and devastate the land. Isn't that right? So if Ruth and her mother and her child were choking on their own intestines, bleeding from eyes and anus, screaming different screams, that would be all right. That would be fine, because that was the plan. Chella stepped closer, relentless. I couldn't answer that. I had thought to poison the castle red, and I'd known it would be everyone in it, not just the warriors. And if the toxins had spread. I had no idea how far they might go, and I hadn't cared. You know what men are really afraid of, Chella? I asked. Tell me. She ran her hands up her thighs, across her belly, smearing dark skin with darker mud. Makin pressed the Nuban's bow into my palm. I grasped it, the thing nearly too heavy to hold in one hand. Men are afraid of dying, not of death. Men want it to be quick, clean. That's the worst thing. The wound that lets you linger, ain't that right, Makin? Yes, 
he said. Makin isn't a man of few words, but it's difficult to break into a necromancer's spell. Linger, I said. That's a word that frightens the brothers. Don't let me linger, they say. And you know what undeath is, Chilla? It's the ultimate in lingering. A coward dies a thousand times. The bard told us. And what about you? You've died just once, but you've lingered a thousand times longer than you should. Don't mock me, child, Chella said. Her ribs stood out now, her cheeks hollowed. I hold more power. You can show me my ghosts, Chella. You can try to scare me with death and with dead things, so that I'll choose your path. But I have my own road to follow. My ghosts are my own, and I will deal with them alone. You are a thing of rotten fear, and you should find a grave that will take you. The time when nothing could put fear in me had passed. It seems terror is a companion in the soft years when everything is new, and returns to us with age, as we acquire things to lose. Perhaps I didn't have my full share of old man's cowardice just yet. But Gelleth's ghosts, and knowing how many dead things swam beneath the mud, ready for the necromancer's call, had set a coldness in my bones. I had a prince to defeat, perhaps Catherine to woo, a comfortable throne to warm. Being drowned in slime by dead men didn't fit into those plans. It wasn't just ghosts I brought with me from Gelleth, Jorg. Chella raised her arms high, a languid motion. Other forms started to emerge from the mire, human forms. I stuck my sword into the ground and lifted the newborn's bow. I've been collecting, Chella said. The shape rising in front of her held familiar lines, a broad and powerful build, darkest in the places where the mud lay thin. A hole in his chest. I think he wants his bow back, Chella said. To her left, a bloated form, guts hanging like black sausage from his slit belly. Others around us, clawing and shaking the mud from their faces. One stood head and shoulders above the rest, flesh hanging from his bones in tatters. I've walked where you walked, Jorg, taken what you tried to burn, and dug where you buried, even in the shadow of your walls. I knew them all, the Nuban between Chella and my bow, his bow, Fat Burlow to her left, gemmed with patches of dull red hair showing through the muck, head stitched back on. Brother Gaines, Brother Job, Brother Rodat, Old Elban, who always prayed for a quiet grave. Liar, whose body we never found to bury, even though he fell at the haunt. And Brother Price, all bones and tatters from four years in the ground. And more rising in the deep mire or hauling themselves onto firmer ground from the standing pools. Chella watched me over the Nuban's shoulder, using him as her shield. Another lesson in the value of attacking without hesitation. Join with me. Her voice fluttered from corrupt lungs. Her eyes glittered, sunken in their sockets, as if lifting my brothers from the depths had sucked vitality from her. My brother's strength runs in you, all but unused, fading, wasted. Brother. The necromancer I cut down was her brother. My thanks, lady, but I've had my fill of necromancers. I fired both bolts from the Nuban's bow. One punched a hole in his shoulder, the other passed through Chella's neck, just to one side of her throat. The Nuban almost turned round by the impact, straightened and faced me again. No expression on his grey lips. Chella put a hand to her neck and twisted her head, with a noise like popping cartilage. We're family, Jorg. Families argue. 
but I forgive you. And when I've taken you down into the marsh with me, when we're together in the cold, deep places, embracing like family do, you'll forgive me too. Brother Sim holds himself close, and you will never know him, no matter what words pass between you. He whispers something to each man he kills. If he could speak it to a man and let him live, then I might have lost a killer. Chapter thirty-two. Four years earlier, in the hot and endless swamp of the Canton Lona, many things are lost, secrets swallowed, lives drawn down into blackness, and sometimes slow currents return what was better kept hidden. It's never a good idea to run in a bog. Slow steps are called for when a place is littered with sucking pools, deep mire, and tufted hummocks, perfect for the breaking of ankles. However, there are times when a bad idea. Is the best you have. Follow me! I shouted, and I ran out between the pools and the tussock grass to my left. Chella let herself slide under the mud, whilst the Nuban moved to intercept. Whatever necromancy I'd gained from Chella's brother would have made only a drop in the ocean of Chella's strength. However, secrets hold power. The secret I had in mind had slipped from Doctor Taproot's lips, and he would never have given the information away for free if he thought it still held value. I release you, Kashta. I slap my palm to the wound in his chest, careless of his grasping hands. When a name is held secret, its power multiplies. The Nuban toppled without hesitation, and I felt that he would never rise again. As he fell, my anger rose. I splashed on with the live brothers behind me and the dead brothers behind them. Back and to my right, Fat Burlo moved to block Rike. I raced on, finding a low ridge of firmer ground, turning. I saw Reich's broadsword shear through Burlo's arm. Burlo grabbed him with his remaining hand, but Makin cut that off, and both men charged on, slowing as they hit softer ground and starting to wade. Makin lost a boot to the sucking mud, but he made it to my side. Our panicked horses ran in various directions. Some cantered after us, Brath among them, but I saw two horses hit the mud and start to sink, rearing and plunging as if they thought they might win through. Some yards away, a mud pit began to boil with activity. Corpse after corpse clambered from it, as if they had been stacked fathoms deep with unsettling intimacy. I led on. It seemed that whilst the undead lacked fear and would literally need to be hacked apart before they stopped trying to kill us, they were at least slow. On an open field, we would have left them in our dust. In the swamp, the match turned out to be more even. A pervasive aura of lingering death infects the mud in the Canton Lona bogs. Somehow, the mire itself is half alive or half dead, depending on your perspective, and it supported the undead, vomiting them up, keeping them from sinking. The corpses from the mud pit managed to intercept us when the firm ground swung to the left. Keep moving! I shouted. Makin sliced one across the chest, his training misleading him for once. The creature didn't notice the wound. And grappled him with muddy arms. Reich didn't bother with his sword. He set his boot to the stomach of the corpse man in his path with such force that he threw it yards back, felling another before it reached us. Of all the brothers, Red Kent proved best suited to the work. His Norse axe sheared off grasping limbs, weaving a savage pattern that left the bog scattered with hands, arms, and heads. We raced on with the creatures at our heels, silent in their determination to catch and dismember us. Just the noise of their splashing and our panting, 
At one point, a mud-grey army of undead hunted our trail, but each mile left them farther behind us until at last they dropped from sight. I called a halt on a low mound that offered a firm footing and an elevated view of the bogs. A ring of weathered stone indicated the place had once been a burial, some local chieftain perhaps, but the grave looked to have been emptied years ago, and I felt no more death there than in any of the surrounding mire. My anger had kept pace with me during the long chase. Chella had kept the Nuban's corpse as her plaything for more than half a year. I didn't know if anything of the man remains when necromancy animates his flesh. But the possibility of his suffering, and the horror of it if he did, made me swear revenge. I had only made one such vow before, and then as now I made it without words, and with every intention to tear the world apart if that were needed to see it through. "'I don't want to spend another night in this place,' Makin said. "'Really?' Wright growled, sitting on the largest of the stones. I'd never heard him use sarcasm before. I guessed he must have been saving it for extreme circumstances. "'Stand a moment, Reich,' I said, and he did. I lifted the point of my sword to his side. With a stab and a twist, I took Burlow's severed hand away, tearing off the patch of tunic it had a grip on, and flicked it into the swamp. "'We've wandered into hell,' Grumlow said with conviction. "'We got lost, and now we're in hell.' He had mud plastered up one side of his face, and blood clotting in his moustache, trickles of it making crimson trails from nose to lip. "'Hell smells better,' I said. With the horses around us, the mound was crowded, and our sightlines blocked. I pushed the grey aside, slapping her rump. Of the five horses left to us, she was the only one relaxed enough to crop at the short grass. "'We should go,' Makin said. "'We should, but where to? The horizon offered nothing, except—' Perhaps. Is that the sea? I pointed. To the east, a hint of black or blue lined the farthest reaches of the marsh. A sharp cry cut off anyone inclined to answer. I spun toward the sound. Just behind us, thigh deep in water, chest deep in rushes, Chella held young Sim by the throat and head. She took another step back away from the mound, dragging Sim. It seemed that she had done something to him, to his neck maybe, for his arms hung limp at his side though he watched us with wild eyes. We called him young Sim, and he had perhaps sixteen years, but when it came to killing, he was an old hand, and he would not have gone easy without good reason. "'Chiorg, you shouldn't run from me,' Chella said. The water had washed away the mud, though it couldn't take the bog stain from her skin, the colour of old teak. The Celtic patterns scrolling across her were deep-set too, not the paint I had once thought them, a needle must have placed those swirls and knots along her arms, reaching across her sides. I don't want any part of you, necromancer. I still held the Nuban's bow, though I hadn't reloaded it. I aimed at her, assuming she wouldn't pay close attention to the number of bolts in place. Whatever power I consumed is fading from me, slower than I would like it to fade, but it will be gone, and I won't be sorry. I want no part of you or your dirty trade. She smiled. The dead king won't let you go, Jorg. He's gathering all our kind to him. Black ships wait to take us to the drowned isles. I made no reply. My anger had subsided once I vowed to destroy Chella. Vengeance is patient when it needs to be, and she sought to use the brothers against me to enrage me, to set me chasing her into the drowning pools. I didn't let her know how deep her hooks had sunk. 
You're not going to ask me to release your brother, Jorg? She dragged Sim a yard further back. Ro had Narrow trained on her, and Grumlow looked ready to throw his knife this time. Grumlow had a soft spot for Sim. Fear wouldn't stay his hand. So, you have my brother. Eat his heart, and we'll be even. Back to where we started, I said. I knew she wouldn't be letting go of Sim. She just wanted me to ask. Oh, you can't go back, Jorg. You should know that. You can never go back. Not even if every trace of necromancy left you. Look. She made a quick change of grip and jerked Sim's head to the right. Far too far to the right. The grating of bones set my teeth on edge. And... She rotated his head slowly back to face us. He's back. But he's not the same now, is he? Bitch! Roe released his arrow. Whether his hand trembled or Chella moved faster than I could see, I don't know. But the arrow ended up jutting from Sim's eye. Now see what you've done. Her red mouth smiling, her eyes seductive, she whispered in Sim's ear. Grumlow threw his knife, but Chella was already falling. It may have cut her, but the waters closed over her before I could tell. Sim, despite his arrow and his broken neck, remained standing, and then he took an uncertain step toward us. The clear water between the rushes clouded as the mud below began to stir. The sea! I shouted. I pointed for good measure. The Prince of Arrow had advised me to see the ocean, and it looked as though it might be the last thing I did. The brothers needed no encouragement. We set off running hoping that Brother Sim would prove as slow as the other dead men, and not as fast as we remembered him. Brother Roe you can trust. Trust him to lie, trust him to cheat, perhaps to betray. Most of all, trust him to be true to what he is. A weasel, a killer in the dark, handy in the fight. Trust in all that, and he will not disappoint. Chapter 33. Four Years Earlier. The sea air added no more than a salt tang to the rankness of the Cantonlona bogs. I could see a grey expanse of water now, still miles off. At least they're slow, Kent said. He splashed along beside me, axe in hand. He risked a backward glance. Running in a marsh with a sharp axe whilst looking over your shoulder is not to be advised. But then again, nothing we had done for two days was advisable. The sea breeze carried a low moaning with it. I tried not to worry about that. We pressed on, unwilling to rest after the last time. Four horses followed us, Rose having taken a broken ankle after putting its leg down a mud hole. I made Kent cut its legs off once Roe had slit its throat. I'm not having Chella stand him up again and have her dead men ride after us. The sea kept looking bigger by the minute. We'd soon be in the salt marsh. Jesus, please us! Roe stopped dead ahead of me. Of all the brothers, he was the one least likely to call on divine aid. I came to his shoulder. The tufted marshland we'd been crossing ended without warning, and a long stretch of mudflats reached out before us, eventually giving over to reed beds after two hundred yards or so. The heads were what stopped Roe, not the mud. Every five yards, like cabbages in a field, a head stuck up from the flats. The closest ones stopped moaning and swiveled their eyes to watch us. The one by Rose's feet, a woman of middle years, slightly jowly, 
strained to see our faces. God save me, she said. Save me! You're alive. I knelt beside her on one knee, the mud firm beneath me, like wet clay. Save me! A shriek now. They're underneath! A man to our left, Macon's age maybe, black-bearded, the mud only in the lower parts of his beard, as if rain had washed him clean. I reached out with the necromancy lurking in my fingertips. I could sense no more death in this mud than in any other part of the bog, except around the people themselves. I could feel the life leeching out of them, being replaced by something less vital, but more durable. They're tearing my skin off! The man's voice rose to a howl. To our right, a younger woman, black hair flowing down into the mud. She raised her face to us, the skin mottled with dark veins like those on my chest. She snarled, a deep, throaty sound, full of hunger. And behind her, another woman, who might have been her sister. They come at night, dead children. They give us sour water and feed us awful things, awful things. She hung her head again. Kill me! A man farther out on the mudflats. And me! Another. How long? I said. How long have you been here? Macon asked. Three days. Two weeks. Nine days. Forever. The moaning and the snarling grew in volume. I stood, cold in my limbs and sick in my stomach. Why? I asked Macon. He shrugged. I know, Reich said. You don't know anything, Reich, I told him. But he did. The quick and the dead, he said. She's making them here, letting them stew. She's turning them slowly, and they'll be fast. Heard of this kind before. Out on the flats, another head watched us with new hunger and screeched. Several more took up the call. Give them what they want, Kent, I said. No, please, mercy. The woman at Rose's feet begged. I have children. Or if they don't want it, give them what they need, I said. Kent set to cropping the field, red work and hard on the back. The others pitched in, Reich with rare enthusiasm. We moved on at a trot, eager to be quit of the place. That won't be the only field, Macon said. He'd lost his other boot along the way and ran barefoot now. I wasn't so much worried about what else Chella had growing. Rather, I worried about what she had already grown. We moved through a green sea to reach a grey one. The reeds came chest high and higher, dark mud around them that took you calf deep before your next step. Broad swaths of open mud divided the reed banks, each with a tiny stream trickling at its middle. I started to hear the distant waves as we broke out onto yet another of these divisions. No! Grumlow put a hand on my shoulder before I stepped onto the mud. Out toward the middle, where the stream made a bright ribbon, the mud heaved. Roe took out his bow. I wound the Newburn's crossbow. The mud flexed again, mounded, and began to flow in reluctant waves as something black emerged. It's a fucking boat, Reich said. Clearly it was Reich's day for being right. A fishing boat of black and rotting timber emerged as if surging from beneath a rogue wave, its crew lifting themselves from the deck, shedding mud and clumps of decayed flesh as they rose. I thought of the fat captain on his barge crossing the rhyme. Perhaps he'd made the wise choice to stick to the route he knew after all. Back! And I led them into the reed beds again. We ran, carving our path through reeds that overtopped me. Reed heads beating at my face. Something's coming! Reich shouted. 
he could still see above the green. From the boat? I called. No, the other side! We veered away and ran harder. I could hear them, gaining on us, beating a path through the stems. What is it? I shouted. Can't see! Reich said, panting now. I just see the reeds falling. Stop! And I followed my own order. I threw the Nuban's bow down and whipped out my sword, scything through reeds. Cut a clearing! I shouted. There's no point running if you're going to be caught. Three dead men tore into our clearing as we cut it. They moved at a blinding pace, howling the moment they saw us. Without hesitation, all three launched themselves at us, hands reaching for throats. Roe went down. I skewered the one that chose me. He literally swallowed my sword, his split cheeks reaching the hilt, whilst the point dug between his lungs and down into his stomach. An image of Thomas at the circus flashed to mind. Having his vital organs divided by four foot of steel only seemed to enrage my foe. He almost tore the sword from my grip as he struggled to take hold of my throat. I held on, and he pushed me back through the reeds, him nearly on all fours, lunging at me as if to take more of the sword. If he could have opened his jaws wider, he would have taken the hilt in my hands too. Vital organs seemed to be a misnomer. The dead man pushed on, gargling dark blood as he forced me back, splashing into a sucking pool. I dug in, twisted my blade, and ripped it down, carving a path out through his neck, chest, and stomach. His guts flooded out, and he pitched into the pool, clawing at me as I tore free and drove my sword into the firmer ground. Kicking in wild fear and hauling on my sword, I managed to drag myself out of the pool. I lay on my back, panting and gasping. I could hear the howls and snarls of the other dead men and the brothers cursing as they fought. The reeds rose about my head like forest giants, swaying gently against the blueness of the sky. By the time I had found my breath and returned to the cut clearing, the fight had ended. Rose dead. Makin scrubbed at rips on his cheek with a handful of reeds. They seemed to make matters worse, but maybe he wanted to bleed it clean. I never liked him, I said. We said that sort of thing on the road. Also, it was true. Make sure there's nothing left for Chella to play with, I told Kent. He set to beheading the first of our attackers. Someone had already taken its arms off, and mud filled its mouth, but it still wriggled and glared. Seeing Makin tend his wounds, I thought to pat myself down. Sometimes it's hours before you notice an injury taken in battle. Fuck, I said. What? Makin looked up. I've lost the box. I ran my hands over my hips, as if I could have missed it the first time. Good riddance, Makin said. I walked back along the path of flattened reeds, where the dead man had pushed me. Nothing. I reached the sucking pool. It's sunk here, I said. Good, Makin came up behind me. I turned away. It didn't feel right to lose it. It felt like something I should keep, part of me. Kent, I shouted. He stopped with his axe poised overhead. Rose corpse at his feet. Leave him, I said. I walked back and knelt beside Roe. Death isn't pretty close up. The old man had fouled himself and stunk even worse than usual. Red and pink tatters of his throat hung down over his collarbones. Loose ends of white cartilage reached out to frame the dark hole to his lungs. Trails of snot and purple blood had run from his nose, and his eyes had rolled to the left at a painfully sharp angle. I've not finished with you, Brother Roe, I said. I took his hands in mine. Dead men's hands are not intrinsically unpleasant, but in truth it did make my skin crawl as I laced fingers with him. He lay limp 
The hard skin at the top of his palm scratched against me. What are you doing? Grumlow asked. I have a job for you, Brother Roe, I said. I searched for him. He couldn't have gone far in just a few minutes. I felt the pulse of necromancy in the unhealed wound in my chest. A dark hand closed around my heart, and a chill wrapped me. I knew I had very little power, just a trickle, like the ribbon of water in those wide avenues of mud. But Roe still held warmth. His heart didn't beat, but it twitched and quivered, and more important, I knew him blood to bone. I'd never liked him, but I knew him. To make a dead man walk, you have to wear his skin. You have to ease under it, to let your heartbeat echo in him, to run your mind along his thoughts. I spat like Roe did. I lifted my head and watched the brothers with narrowed eyes, seeing them with Roe's likes, dislikes, jealousy, old grudges, remembered debts. Brother Roe, I said. I got up. We got up. He got up. I stood face to face with his corpse, and he watched me from a distant place, through eyes he once owned. The brothers said nothing as I walked back to the pool, and Roe followed me. Find it, I said. I didn't have to explain myself. We wore the same skin. Roe walked into the pool and let it take him. I crouched to watch. Roe had sunk from view before I felt the steel at my neck. I looked around, up along the blade. Don't ever do that to me, Makin said. Swear it. I so swear, I said. I needed no convincing. Chapter 34 Four years earlier. It seemed that we had been running in the marshes for most of our lives. Mud spattered each of us to the tops of our heads. The brothers showed white skin only where they had scraped the filth from around their eyes. Now, as the sun lowered red toward the western horizon, it gave them a wild look. Soon, when the sun drowned in the marsh and left us in darkness, we would drown too. More of the bastards! Reich shouted. Once again, he was the only one who could see over the reed sea. How many? I asked. All of them, he said. It's like all the reeds are falling. I could hear the snarls, faint but clear on the evening air. I patted the box at my hip. It took Roe two hours to find, two hours before his hand finally broke the surface to give it to me. The brothers had not liked waiting, but two more hours would not have got us out of Chella's muddy hell. We left him in the pool. I told Macon I had set him free, but I didn't. "'Can you see any clear ground?' I asked. Wright didn't answer, but he set off with purpose, so we followed. The snarling grew louder, closer behind us. We ran hard, the splashing of quick dead feet closer by the second, and the shredding of reeds as they tore their path. One moment I ran through a rushing green blindness, and the next I broke clear onto a low mound. It felt like a hill, though it rose no higher than three feet above the water level. "'Good work,' I told Reich, then gasped in breath. "'It's better to die in the open.' Chella's army converged on us from all sides. The quick ones, mottled and mire-stained, undying rage on their faces and an unholy light in their eyes, dozens of them, flowing out to surround the mound. Behind them, minutes later, shambling in through the flattened reeds, came the grey and rotting dead, and amongst them the bog-dead from the depths, cured to the toughness of old leather and of a similar colour. I saw Price's tall bones and tattered flesh overtopping all others. Chella walked at his side, wearing a white dress, all lace and trains, such as might be worn at a royal wedding. Hardly a touch of mud on it. 
Hello, Jock, she said. She stood too far away for me to hear, but every dead mouth whispered her words. Go to hell, bitch! I would rather have said something clever. No harsh words on our wedding day, Jorg, she said, and the dead echoed her. The dead king is risen. The black ships sail. You'll join with me, love me, and together we will open the gilden gate for our master and set a new emperor on the throne. The dead of Geleth came then, wandering through the marsh as if lost, ambling one way and the next. Ghosts these, but looking real enough, with their burns and their sores, teeth missing, hair and skin falling away. Hundreds of them, thousands, in a great rising of accusation. They pressed so hard that at the back some of the bog dead were pushed aside and trampled under. So, said Reich, marry the bitch. She's going to kill you all either way, Reich. She'll have your corpse walking beside her. Price on one side, you on the other. The brothers back together again. Oh, he said. Fuck that then. Come now, Jorg. Don't be a baby, Chella said. And the dead spoke with her. She spoke again, echoed this time by just one voice, from a corpse woman close by the edge of her mound. A muddy corpse, one arm chewed to the bone, her skin stained, lips grey and rotting. But something of Ruth's lines in her face. The dead king is coming. The dead rise like a tide. They outnumber the living, and each battle makes more corpses, not more men. The dead woman's tongue writhed, black and glistening, Chella's words slipping from it. Join with me, Jorg. There's a place for you in this. There's power to be taken and held. There's more to this, I said. Even the high esteem in which I held my own charms didn't allow me to believe her so smitten as to cross nations for this. And if vengeance drove her, then she could take it easily enough now without this charade. The dead king scares you? She sounded too eager, desperate even. What does he want with me? Even with so many yards between us, I could read her. She didn't know. I made to step forward, but something caught my foot. Looking down, I saw teeth, a dog's skull half buried, half emerged, gripping my foot. Another ghost, but it pinned me even so. I looked out across the dead horde, scanning the packed crowds of ghosts behind them. Chella couldn't know about my dog Justice. She couldn't have gathered all the dead of Galath or learned their stories. Somehow, this came from me. Somehow, Chella was pulling the ghosts of my past out through whatever hole it was I made in the world and not even the ghosts I knew of, but the ghosts of those whose end I caused. I felt the corner of an idea, not the whole shape of it, but a corner. The skull brought my gaze back to the ground at my feet. You shouldn't have done that, I said. I tore free. I felt him rip me, but Justice's teeth left no marks upon my boot. It was just pain, no blood. It was just my mind that trapped me. The ghosts couldn't harm us or we would have died in Ruth's house. We would have burned with them, with the builder's sunlit. Chella brought them, only to torment me. Let's get married, dear heart, Chella said. The congregation is assembled. I'm sure we can find a cleric to perform the ceremony. And pushing from the other ghosts came Friar Glen, a shade wavering in the daylight, 
less clear than the other spirits, as if something tried to keep him back. At my hip, the box of memories grew heavy. I hadn't known Friar Glenn to be dead, but perhaps I knew at once and chose to forget. He came with a slow step, hobbling, though I could see no wound upon him, and he didn't look well pleased. In one hand, he held a knife, a familiar knife, red with blood. When a dead man shambled into his path, the friar stabbed him in the neck. The creature toppled with the knife still in him. Ghosts couldn't hurt the living, but apparently they could hurt the dead plenty. Friar Glenn hobbled on until he stood at Chella's side. I wondered how the friar's ghost came to be here, watching me with such hatred. I could feel it from fifty yards, but more than that, more than I wondered about Friar Glenn, I circled around the words Chella spoke before she called him. The congregation is assembled. The quick dead moved closer, though I heard no instruction. They took slow steps, their hands ready to grab and twist and tear. Against so many, we would last moments. It's no kind of wedding if my family can't attend. I sheathed my sword. Some ghosts I can't summon. The royal dead are buried in consecrated tombs and lie with old magics. If I could have made your mother dance for you, I would have done so long ago, Chella said. The whisper reached me through the crowd, writhing on the lips of the quick dead as they stepped ever closer. The congregation is assembled, but some ghosts she can't summon. The remaining horses nickered behind me, nervous, even the grey. I was thinking of my brothers, I said. I opened a hand to the left and right to indicate Macon, Kent, Grumlow and Reich. They can attend, Chella said. I will leave them their eyes. We will have no music, no poets to declaim, no flowers, I asked. I was stalling. You're stalling, she said. The congregation is assembled, aside from those she can't summon and those she does not wish to. There's a poet I'm thinking of, Chella. A poem, a fitting one, to his coy mistress. Am I coy? She walked closer now, swaying through the dead. The wisdom of poets has outlived that of the builders. The poem is about time, at least in part, about how the poet can't stop time. And in the end he says, For thus, though we cannot make our son, stand still, yet we will make him run. Ghosts can't hurt men. They can drive them mad. They can torment them to the point at which they take their own lives. But they cannot wound them. I felt this to be true. My stolen necromancy told me it was so. But they can hurt the dead, it seems. I'd seen it with my own eyes. The corpses that Chella set to walking could be felled by spirits because they stood closer to their world, close enough to the gates of death for a ghost to reach out and throttle them. Very sweet, Chella said. But it won't stop me. So I'll make you run. And with every fragment of my will, I summoned my ghosts. I pulled them through the gates that Chella had opened. With arms spread wide, I returned each shade and phantom, each haunt and spirit that had trailed me these long years. I bled them through my chest, let them pulse through me with each beat of my heart. I couldn't stop Chella drawing forth those she wanted, but I could make damn sure they all came, each and every one, at a run. And they came. The congregation Chella had chosen not to invite, the burning dead of Galath, those that the builder's son took first, not victims from the outskirts of the explosion, like Ruth and her ma, but those who burned in the castle red 
at the heart of the inferno. They poured from me in an endless torrent, ten of them to every child of Galath that Chela had brought forth. And my dead, the burning dead, brought with them a fire like no other. They burned as candles in the hearth, flesh running, flames leaping, each man or woman screaming and racing, or staggering and clutching. And behind them, with measured pace, a new kind of ghost, each glowing with a terrible light that made their flesh a pink haze and shadows of their bones. I saw nothing but fire without heat, heard only screams, and after forever we stood alone on our mound with no sign of Chella or her army, save for blackened bones smouldering on damp reeds. Wedding's off, I said, and taking my bearing from the sunset, I led the brothers away to the south. Brother Makin has high ideals. If he kept to them, we would be enemies. If he nursed his failure, we would not be friends. Chapter 35 Wedding Day A spade, Hobbs said. If there was ever a man to call a spade a spade, Watchmaster Hobbs was that man. I was just impressed a man of his age had any breath left at this point for stating the obvious or otherwise. I kicked about in the snow. Spades lay everywhere, covered by a recent fall. Get Stodd and Keppen's squads shooting down the slope. Harold's men, I want using these spades to dig. Stodd's dead, Hobbs spat, and watched the snowfall. The gap between the watch and our pursuit had vanished. Here and there, men stopped running. Few managed to draw a blade, let alone swing, before they were cut down. Blood on snow is very pretty. In the deep powder, it melts its way down, and there's not much to see. But where the snow has an icy crust, that dazzling white shines through the scarlet and makes the blood look somehow richer and more vital than ever it did in your veins. Get men shooting down the slope. I don't much care what they hit. Legs are good. Put more bodies in the way. Slow them down. An injured man is more of an obstacle than a dead one. Put a big wound in a man, and he often gets clingy, as though he thinks you can save him, and all he has to do is hold on so you won't leave. The fresh-wounded like company. Give them a while, and they'd rather be alone with their pain. For a moment I saw Codin, odd chinks of light offering the lines of him, curled in his tomb. Some folk bury their dead like that, curled up, forehead to knee. Makin said it makes for easier digging of a grave, but to my eye it's more of a return. We lay coiled in the womb. Shoot the bastards down, I yelled. I waved my hands toward the men that I wanted using their bows. Don't pick targets! Makin staggered up, and I slapped a spade across his chest. Captain Harold and I started to collar other men and set them digging. None of them asked why, except for Makin, and truthfully, I think he just wanted the chance to rest. We came here once, he said. Yes. I threw another load of snow behind me. It felt odd, having climbed for what seemed like forever, to now be desperately digging back down with the last of my strength. We were on our way to some village. Cutting. Gutting, I said. Another load of snow. The cries and clash of blades on the slopes closer now. This is insane. Makin dropped his spade and drew his sword. I remember now. There are caves here. But they don't lead anywhere. We searched them. The men we have here, they'd barely fit in. My spade bit into nothing and slipped from numb fingers into the void below. I'm through. Dig here. The melee reached to within fifty yards of our position, 
a bloody rolling fight, men slipping in the snow, a pink mush now, screaming, severed limbs, dripping blades. And beyond the carnage, like an arrowhead pointing directly at me, more and more and more soldiers, the line of them broadening to a mass several hundred men wide as they crossed the snow line far below. I may have left it too late, I said. I knew I'd left it too late. I spent too long with Codin, and Arrow's men had been faster than I thought they would be. Too late? Makin shouted. He waved his sword at the army converging on us. We're dead. We could have done this back down there. At least I would have had the strength to fight then. He looked strong enough to me. Anger always opens a new reserve, a little something you'd forgotten about. Keep digging! I shouted at the men around me. The entrance to the cave stood wide enough for three men. A black hole in the snow. How many men died in avalanches in the Matarax last year, Makin? I asked. I don't know. He looked at me as if I'd asked to have his babies. None. Three, I said. One the year before that. Some of the enemy were trying to flank us, spreading out around the melee to come at us from the side. I unslung my bow and loosed an arrow at the men on the left. We're done! Hobbs laboured across the slope, avoiding the diggers. To his credit, he managed to add, Sire! My arrow had hit a man just above the knee. Looked like an old fellow. Some old people just don't know when to quit. He pitched forward and fell, rolling down the mountainside. I wonder if he'd stop before he reached the haunt. There's a reason we lost four men in two years to avalanches, I said. Carelessness? Makin asked. One of the prince's more enterprising men had found his way uninjured around the edge of the battle below us. Makin made a quick parry, then cut him down. A second soldier on the heels of the first took an arrow through his Adam's apple. The clash of metal on rock. The diggers had found the cave's edges. The hole stood wide enough for a wagon to pass, but it wouldn't be getting any wider. When the world is covered in snow, it turns flat. All the hollows, all the bumps, are written into one unbroken surface, like the white page ready for the quill. You may place on a snowfield whatever your imagination will produce, for your eyes will tell you nothing. Well? Makin asked. The men of Arrow were pushing ever closer. He seemed in want of distraction and irritated that I drifted off into a daydream. You have to see the shades, I said. Shades? I shrugged. I had time to waste. The cave was no use to us yet. I thought that the power of being young was to see only black and white, I said. I looked on as a man I knew among the watch fell with the red point of a sword jutting from his back, hands locked on the neck of the blade's owner. Shades, Makin asked again. We never look up, Makin. We never raise our heads and look up. We live in such a vast world. We crawl across its surface and concern ourselves only with what lies before us. Shades! Makin kept stubbornly to his purpose. His thick-lipped mouth knew a thousand smiles. Smiles for winning hearts. Smiles for making friends. Smiles for tearing a laugh from the unwilling. Now, he used his stubborn smile. I shook my arms, willing life back into them. The line buckled here and there. Soon enough, they'd be called for my sword. Shades, I told him. When all you have to look at is white, given time, you'll see a symphony in shades of pale. The peasants in gutting told me this, though in their own words. There are many types of snow, many shades, and even in one shade, many flavours. There are layers. There is granularity, powder. There is power, and there is danger. When I stabbed Brother Gempt, I preempted something, I said. You understand, preempt, Brother Macon. A thousand smiles, and one frown. He gave me the frown. I killed him for the hell of it, but also because it would only be a matter of time 
before he came against me, before he tried to slit my throat in the night, and not just for the cutting of his hand. What does bloody Gempt have to do with... He cut down another man who slipped the line, and I loosed an arrow at the men flanking our right side. There were four deaths in two years rather than forty, because the Highlanders preempt avalanches, I said. They set them off. What? They watch the snow. They see the shades. They see the ups and downs, not the flat page. They dig and test. And then they preempt. I waved my bow overhead, purple ribbon cracking in the wind. In the caves, now! When a slope looks dangerous, the Highlanders take themselves above it by ridge and pass and cliff. They take with them straw, stones, a crude bowl of fired clay, kindling charcoal, often from the burners in Ancrath's woods, a glazed pot and a sheep's bladder. They dig themselves a hole at the very top of the most treacherous layers, setting the bowl on top of several inches of packed straw. In the bowl, they put kindling and charcoal and set stones so that the pot will be held above the bowl. They fill the pot with snow and inflate the bladder, blowing into it as hard as they can and tying it off with a strip of gut hide. They light the kindling and leave. The men of the watch started to pack into the caves. I had thought it would be crowded once upon a time, back when I ordered the spades to be left there. I had wondered if we would all fit. Fewer than a hundred men made it in. We had space aplenty. So much in life is simply a matter of timing. I took my place at the cave mouth, eager to cross swords with the men of Arrow. I had the timing wrong, plain and true. I should have said what mattered to Codden days ago, months ago. My timing had been off. Tired men die easy, as if they relish the prospect of infinity. My legs had the trembles, but my arms were ready enough. I held my blade two-handed and took the first man in the eye with its point. Makin came to fight beside me. Beyond the enemy, I could see forever. I could see the wildness and wideness of the mountains. Beyond them, the day moon, white like the memory of bone. Faint strains of the sword song reached me as I crossed blades again, shearing part way through a man's neck. My sword felt lighter, twitching to the song as if it held a life of its own and pulsed with its own blood. Snicker, snack, snicker, snack. And men fell away in pieces. The sun flashed crimson on my uncle's sword, as if heliographing a message to the Prince of Arrow. I'm sorry, I shouted, for Makin and the others. Timing. We weren't far enough ahead. The men of Gutting would have lit the fires in their bowls as they saw us emerge from the neck of the valley onto the mountain's shoulder. I had thought we would reach the caves with a clear margin, that we would dig in and rake the slope with bowfire. I was wrong. Just a few minutes' error, but plenty long enough for the enemy to fill the caves with our corpses. Makin gave an oath and fell back, throwing himself beyond a swinging blade. I nearly said sorry again, but a mountain is a good place to die. If you're going to die, try to make it somewhere with a view. For moments without time I fought, enfolded with a fierce joy, the heat rising in me until the burns on my face blazed and the wind had no hold on me. Each part of that fight played out to a secret score, and the timing that had eluded me returned in the scream of steel against steel. A wildness infected me, and I thought of Farrakind, incandescent and consumed, whatever made him human, abandoned to the inferno. A block, a sway, stepped to the side, the ring and scrape of my sword as it slid from the foe's sheared flesh. When a heavy blade meets the head of a man who has discarded his helm in the long climb, a red ruin is wrought. Worse than the neat butchery of the slaughterman in his abattoir is this destruction. 
brain, skull, and hair follow the swing of your sword in a wet arc of crimson, white, and grey. Pieces of a face hang for a frozen moment, an accusing eye, its juices leaking, then everything falls and the next man stumbles through to battle, wearing scraps of the last. Fire wrapped me, or so it felt, hot lines of it snaking from Gog's burn, scorching, fierce. A sword point traced its path within a hair of my brow, whispering across the bridge of my nose as I jerked back. Lunging, I thrust out both arms. My blade, a bar, held at hilt and end, the point hard against the iron plate in the palm of my leather glove. The builder steel divided the man's face horizontally, between nose and lip. The grip of his bone tried to take the sword with him as he fell, but I kept the hilt and let the motion swing the blade outright, catching a spear thrust and angling it over my shoulder. That man I kicked down the slope, and the roar that burst from me rippled the air like a furnace breath. If I had had the time to look down, I would not have been surprised to see the snow shrink back from the heat pulsing off my skin. Much of me, very nearly all of me perhaps, wanted to surrender to the battle madness, to be consumed, to throw myself down among the foe and paint the mountain with their blood, no matter the cost. But surrender of any kind comes hard to me. Instead, I drew back, and the fury left me, blown out as swiftly as it ignited. I had a plan to follow, and I'd follow it, even though all hope seemed lost. And following plans requires a clear head. More men pressed at me. My arms started to feel as tired as my legs. We just needed a few more minutes. But sometimes you don't get what you want, or what you need. My eyes flickered to the view. Time to die. In the past, I've been saved by a horse. Not born to safety by a noble steed, but saved by the wild kick of a panicked horse. That had been unexpected. It probably surprised Corian even more. To be saved by a sheep's weak bladder, though, that takes the biscuit. It takes all the biscuits. High above us, slow fires burned, melting the snow in the pots, heating the inflated bladders now floating in the steaming water. The process gives the Highlanders time to retreat to a point of safety. You have to place the pots in the danger zone. You do it as high up as you can for your own preservation, but not so high that it won't have the desired effect. The hot air expands. The bladders swell further, stretching beyond the point a man could inflate them. It's just a matter of time. A matter of timing. The waters start to boil. The pressure builds. And bang. The Highlanders play the bladder pipe. The things had screeched at my wedding that morning, similar to the bagpipes found farther north, as complex but just as raucous. You wouldn't think an exploding bladder would be so loud. The sound is as if every squeal and howl a bladder pipe might make in its long and unfortunate life has been squeezed into half a moment. It's a noise to wake the dead. But this was a case of a noise to make the dead. One of the six sheep that donated the six bladders to the six avalanche pots that the men of gutting lit on the slopes when we came into view must have been a particularly incontinent beast, for its bladder exploded several minutes earlier than expected. You feel an avalanche before you hear it. There's a strange build-up of pressure. It presses into your ears. Even with men trying to slice me into bloody chunks, I notice the pressure. Then there's the rumble. It starts faint and builds without end. And finally, just before it hits, there's the hissing. My timing came good at the right moment. I threw myself into the cave before the men attacking me could follow. The world turned white, and they were gone. Chapter 36 
Wedding Day. The cave lay blind, dark, and silent, although it held close on a hundred men. The last rumbles of the avalanche stilled. In my fall, I had bruised my ass on an unforgiving rock, and my curse was the first sound. Shit, darn! I'd learned that one from Brother Alban, and felt a duty to roll it out from time to time, since no one else ever used it. Still no noise, as if a gang of trolls had ripped the head from each man as he entered. There's lanterns at the back, and tinder, I called. Scuffling now, more scuffling, the scritch of flint on steel, and then a glow, cutting dozens of men from the darkness. I looked at the silver watch on my wrist, for the first time in an age, a quarter past twelve. The arm for counting seconds, tick, tick, ticked, its way in yet another circle. I know my spade made it in here, I said, standing. Careful not to brain myself on the low ceiling. Find some more and dig us out. We should take a roll call, Hobbs said, moving to the front. More lanterns were lit, and the wall of snow behind him glistened. We could, I said. I knew this wasn't just a bureaucratic interest. He had lost friends, proteges, the sons of friends, and he wanted to know what remained of the watch, of his watch. We could, but it's not the snow that kills men in an avalanche, I said. None of those soldiers out there are dead. I had their attention now. They're all busy suffocating, whilst the snow has them trapped. And that, my friends, is exactly what's happening to us. Whilst I explain it to you, I'm using up the strictly limited supply of air in this cave. Whilst you're listening to me, you're breathing in the good air and breathing out the bad. Each of those lanterns that lets you see me is eating up the air. Silent thanks to Tutor Lundist and his lessons in alchemy. I might not outlive my wedding day, but I had no desire to exit by snuffing out like the candle in the bell jar. They took my point. Three men who had found spades hurried to the snow. Others searched for more. Soon, all the space at the exit was occupied. I could have just told them to dig, but better they know the reason. Better they not think that I didn't share Hobbs's interest in the watcher's sacrifice. I saw Captain Keppen leaning against the boulder, clutching his side. Makin had set himself against the rear wall of the cave on his backside, with his knees drawn up to his forehead. Get the wounded seen to, I told Hobbs. I clapped a hand to his shoulder. Kings are supposed to make such gestures. I found my way to Makin's side. The cave floor lay strewn with men, but whether they had been felled by exhaustion or injury, I couldn't tell. I slid my back down the icy wall and sat beside him. We watched the diggers dig and tried to breathe shallow. He smelled of clove spice and sweat. A strange path I had followed to end trapped in a snow-locked cave, buried in the highest of places. From the tall castle to the road, from the road to Renard's throne, a year and more roaming the empire, until at last the highlands called me back, and in the highlands finding the prize less rewarding than the chase, growing into manhood on a copper-crowned throne, wrestling with the mundane from plague to famine, building an economy like a swordsman builds muscle. Recruiting, training. And for what? To have some preordained emperor trample it beneath his heel on his march to the Gilden Gate. I closed my eyes and listened as my aches and pains announced themselves into the first pause since Father Gomst married me to Miana that morning. The weight of the day settled on me, squeezing words out. There's men dead out there because I spent too long talking with Codin, I said. Renar men and Ankrath men. Yes. Makin didn't lift his head. Well, here we are, both dying in a cave like Codin is, 
Got anything you need to unburden, Sir Macon? Or do we need more extreme circumstances, and even less time? Nope. Macon looked up, his face in shadow, with just the curve of a cheekbone and the tip of his nose catching the lamplight. Those men chose to follow you, Jorg, and they'd all be dead if it weren't for your tricks. And why did they choose to follow me? Why do you? I asked. I could hear rather than see him lick his teeth before answering. There are no simple answers in a world, Jorg. Every question has sides, too many of them. Everything is knotted. But you make the question simple, and somehow it works. For other men, the world is not like that. Maybe I could have found a way to drag you back to your father years before you took yourself back. But I wanted to see you do what you promised to. I wondered if you really could win it all. It seemed simple when I had Count Renard to hate, I said. You were... He smiled. Focused. It's about being young, too. I hardly recognize myself in that boy. You're not so different, Makin said. The snow around the diggers had a glow of its own now the daylight reaching down through what remained to clear. I was consumed by me, by what I wanted. Nothing else mattered. Not my life, not anyone's life. All of it was a price worth paying. All of it was worth staking on long odds, just for the chance to win. Makin snorted. That's the place everyone visits on their way from child to man. You just went native. I reached into the pouch on my hip and slid my fingers around the box. I have... Regrets? We're all built of those, Makin watched the diggers. A spear of daylight struck through into the cave. Geleth I am sorry for. My father would think me weak. But if it were now, I would find another way. There was no other way, Makin said. Even a way you took was impossible. Tell me about your child, I said. A girl, Keris. He spoke her name like a kiss, blinking as the daylight found us. She would be older than you, Jorg. She was three when I killed her. We could see the sky now, a circle of blue, away to the east beyond the snow clouds. I follow you because I'm tired of war. I would see it stopped. One empire, one law. It doesn't matter so much how or who. Just being united would stop the madness, Macon said. Huh. I can feel the loyalty. I pushed up and stood, stretching. Wouldn't the Prince of Arrow make a better emperor? I set off toward the exit. I don't think he'll win, said Makin, and he followed. In the long ago, in the gentle days, Brother Grumlow carved wood, worked with saw and chisel. When hard times come, carpenters are apt to get nailed to crosses. Grumlow took up the knife and learned to carve men. He looked soft, my brother of the blade. Slight in build, light in colour, weak chin, sad eyes, all of him drooping like the moustache that hangs off his lip. Yet he has fast hands, and no fear of a sharp edge. Come against him with just a dagger for company, and he will cut you a new opinion. Chapter 37 Wedding Day A hundred and twelve men climbed out of the cave below Blue Moon Pass. I let Watchmaster Hobbs take his roll call as they gathered on the new snow. It amazed me that the avalanche which had broken like a wave on the rocks below and had run like milk into and around the cave could now support my weight, letting my feet sink no more than an inch or two with each step. I listened to the names, to the replies, or more often to the silence that followed a name. 
The new snow glittered below us, perfect and even, no trace of the blood, of the carnage strewn there only minutes before. And as Hobbs made his tally, a thousand and a thousand and a thousand men died unseen beneath that fresh white sheet, held motionless, blind, struggling for breath and finding nothing. Sometimes I feel the need of an avalanche within me, a clean page with the past swept away. Tabula rasa. I wondered if this one had wiped the slate for me, and then I saw a shadow beneath the whiteness at my feet, a child buried so shallow that the snow could not hide him. Not even the force of mountains could clean the stains from my past. While Hobbs droned on, I took the copper box from its place at my hip and sat on the slope, heels dug in. A man is made of memories. It is all we are. Captured moments, the smell of a place, scenes played out time and again on a small stage. We are memories, strung on storylines, the tales we tell ourselves about ourselves, falling through our lives into tomorrow. What the box held was mine, was me. What now, then? Makin slumped beside me. Down beyond the farthest reach of the avalanche, I could see movement, tiny dots, the remnants of Arrow's force, retreating to join his main army. Up, I said. Up? Makin did the surprise thing with his eyebrows. Nobody could look surprised like Makin. It didn't seem right to die incomplete. It's not a difficult concept, I said, standing. I set off walking up the slope, aimed a little to the left of the peak, where Blue Moon Pass scores a deep path across Mount Buttrang's shoulder. Hobbs saw me go. Up, he said, but the pass is always blocked in. Then he looked around. Oh, and he waved at the men who had come forward to answer their names to follow. I still held the box in my hand, hot and cold, smooth and sharp. It didn't seem right to die without knowing who I was. The child walked beside me now, barefoot in the snow, his death resisting even the light of day. With the nail of my thumb, I opened the box. Trees, gravestones, flowers, and her. Who found you after I hit you? I asked Catherine. A man was with you when you recovered your senses. She frowns. Her fingers touch the place where the vase shattered. Friar Glen. For the first time she sees me with her old eyes, clear and green and sharp. Oh. I walk away. I leave the Renat Forest behind me and walk toward Crath City. The tall castle stands behind and above the city. It's a still day and the smoke rises from the city chimneys in straight lines, as if making bars for the castle, perhaps to keep it safe from me. From the fields I see the sprawl of the low city, reaching out to the river Seine and the docks, and behind it the land steps upward to the old city and the high city. The Roma road cuts my path, and I follow it to the low city, gateless and open to the world. I have a hat stuffed in my tunic, a shapeless thing of faded checks, such as the bravos at the river docks wear. I tuck my hair into it and pull it low. I won't be noticed in the low city. The people who might know my face do not go there. I walk through the banlieue, nothing but slum dwellings and waste heaps, a boil on the arse of the city. Even a fine spring day cannot make these streets bloom. Children root through the mounded filth left by poor folk. They chase me as I make my way. Girls of ten and younger try to distract me with big eyes and kiss mouths, while skinny boys work to pull something from my pack, anything they can snatch free. I take my knife in hand, and they melt away. 
Orin of Arrow might have given them bread. He might have resolved to change this place. I just walk through it. Later, I will scrape it from my shoes. Where the banlieue shades into the low city, the worst of the taverns crowd around narrow streets. I pass the Falling Angel, where I first plotted Gellert's End, where I first thought to pay for affection. I know better now. Affection is always paid for. I choose another alehouse, the Red Dragon, a grand name for a dim and reeking place of shadows. Bitter, I say. The barkeep takes my coin and fills a tankard from the barrel spigot. If he thinks I look young to drink here, among the broken old men with their red noses and watery eyes, he says nothing. I take a table where I can put a corner at my back and watch the windows. The ale is as bitter as my mood. I take slow sips and wait for the night to come. I think of Catherine. I make a list. She said I was evil and that she hates me. She has set her heart on the Prince of Arrow. She tried to kill me. She destroyed the child she thought was mine. She was defiled by another man. I run through it again and again as the sun sinks, as the drunkards come and go, carts and whores and dogs and labourers pass in the street, and still I cycle through my list. Love is not a list. Full dark, and my tankard has stood empty for hours. I walk into the street. Here and there a lantern hangs, too high for thieves, casting a parsimonious light that struggles to reach the ground. Despite all my waiting, despite my resolve, still I hesitate. Can I tread the paths of childhood again, without taint? Overhead the stars turn, a slow revolution about the pole star, the nail of heaven. Part of me doesn't want to go back to the tall castle. I push that part away. I cross the river by the new bridge, and find a quiet corner where I can watch the high wall. Krath City and its parts have been named with the same lack of imagination the builders put into the architecture of its castle, as if the box-like utilitarianism of the castle has leached into the language of the city. If I had the power to build for the ages, to know that what I set in stone would stand for millennia, I would put at least some measure of beauty into the mix. The high wall is indeed high, but it is not well lit, and some way west of the triple gate the stonework is broken by the tenants of a second wall, that once led off at right angles and is now gone. I practiced my climbing here when I was little. It seems easy now. Handholds that I struggled to reach can be bypassed entirely in favor of the next. My hands know this surface. I don't need to see it. This is memory. I gain the top well before the next guard makes his rounds. On the far side, ill-advised ivy makes the descent a simple matter. Young Sim taught himself the ways of the assassin. He made a hobby of it, the short knife, drop leaf in powder, or tincture, or once in a while a harp string used to garrote. Of all my brothers, it's Sim that is the most deadly in the long haul. In a battle, I could surely cut him down, but lose sight of the boy, and he will not come at you in the next moment, or the next day, but in his own time. When you've forgotten the wrong you did him, he will find you again. Sim taught himself the long game, and he passed a little knowledge on to me. Disguise is not a matter of clothes and artistry with paints and coal. Disguise lies in how you move. Of course, the right uniform, a chin made of putty, a well-applied scar, all these can be of great help in the proper circumstances. But the first step, Sim taught me, the most important step, is exactly that. How you step. Move with confidence, or at least confidence in your role. Believe you have every right to be where you are. Step with purpose then even a prop as small as a hat can furnish a full disguise.
I stride through the streets of Old City, aiming directly for the East Gate, the gate where deliveries are made to the tall castle, supplies unloaded, messages handed to runners for carriage to distant quarters. A patrol of my father's soldiers, ten strong, passes the head of Elm Street as I walk it. They spare me a first glance, but not a second. Three torches burn above the East Gate. They call it a gate, but it is a door, five yards high, three yards wide, black oak with iron banding. A smaller door set into the middle of it for when it is simply men seeking entrance rather than giants. An armored knight stands duty before the door. If he wished to see anything, he should stand in the dark. I turn aside and come to the base of the castle wall, close to the corner of the great square keep. A man seeking to protect himself from the assassin's knife concentrates his defense. You cannot stop a single anonymous enemy entering your realm. You cannot stop him entering your city. Unless he is unskilled, you will be lucky to stop him finding a way past your castle wall. Your keep may hold him out if it is secure and well guarded, but it would be unwise to bet your life on it. To defeat the assassin, you don't spread your defenses over your whole estate. You focus them around you. Ten good men, tight around your bedchamber, can do more to preserve you than ten thousand spread across a kingdom. My father's keep is secure and well patrolled, but by the time I reach seven, I knew the outside of it better than the inside. In the dark of the moon, I climb the tall castle once more. Builder stone, rough under my fingers, my toes hunting familiar holds through the soft leather of my boots, the scrape of the wall on my cheek as I hug it. I see my knuckles white in the starlight as I grip the corner of the tall castle and move up. I hold still just beneath the battlements. A soldier pauses and leans out, watching some distant light. The battlements are new additions. Dressed stone atop the builder stone, the builders had weapons that made mockery of castles and of battlements. I don't know what the tall castle was when the builders made it, but it was not a castle. In the deepest part of the dungeons, under layers of filth, an ancient plaque declares, "No overnight parking." Even when the builders' words make sense alone, they hold no meaning together. The soldier moves on. I climb up, cross the thickness of the wall. And chin down one of the wooden supports for the walkways. In a dark corner of the courtyard, I take off my bravo's hat and return it to my pack. I pull out a tunic, blue and red in the Ancrath colours. I had a woman called Mabel tailor it for me at the haunt, in the style of my father's servant garb. With the tunic on and my hair tucked into it, I enter the printer's door. I pass a table knight about his rounds, Sir Aiken, if I remember rightly. I keep my head up. And he takes no notice of me. A man with his head bowed is hiding his face, and worthy of close inspection. From the printer's door, it's left, then right along a short corridor to reach the chapel. The chapel door is never locked. I look in. Only two candles still burn, both little more than stubs, and making scant light. The place is empty. I move on. Friar Glenn's quarters are close to the chapel. His door is latched. But I carry a short strip of steel, thin enough and flexible enough to fit between door and frame, strong enough to lift the latch. His room is very dark, but it has a high window that opens onto the courtyard where Makin used to school the squires in the arts of combat. A borrowed light filters in, and I let my eyes learn its ways. The place stinks like cheese left too long in the sun. I stand and listen to the friar's snore, whilst my eyes hunt him. He lies hunched in his bed. An inchworm frozen in mid-crawl. I can see little of the room, just a cross on the wall, with the saviour absent, 
as if he'd taken a break rather than watch this night's business. I stepped forward. I remember how Friar Glenn dug in my flesh for those hooks the briar left in me, how he hunted them, what pleasure he took in it, with his man, Inch, holding me down. I pull my knife from its sheath. Crouched beside his bed, my head level with his, the snores aloud. So loud, you would think he should wake himself. I can't see his face, so I remember it instead. Flat, I would call it, too blunt for deep emotion, but well suited to the sneer. At service with Father Gomst holding forth from the pulpit, Friar Glenn would watch from the chair by the chapel door, hair like wet straw around a tonsure, the needed little shaving, his eyes too small for the broadness of the forehead above. I should slit his throat and be gone. Anything else would make too much noise. You raped Catherine. You raped her and let her think I had done it. You made her pregnant and made her hate me so much she poisoned the child from her womb. Made her hate me enough to stab me. Catherine's blow was for Friar Glenn, not me. My eyes have learned the darkness, and the room lies revealed in nightshades. I trim a long strip from the edge of his sheet. I make only a whisper below the roar of his snoring. But he stirs, and complains even so. I cut a second strip, a third, a fourth. I bundle the last strip into a tight ball. A candle stand and small table are set near the bed. I move them farther back so they will not fall and make a racket. I count his snores and get their rhythm. When he breathes in, I stuff the wadded cloth into his mouth. I tie another strip around his head to hold it in place. Friar Glenn is slow to wake, but surprisingly strong. I snatch the remains of the sheet from him and hammer my elbow down into his solar plexus. The air hisses from him past his gag. I see the gleam of his eyes. He coils, fetal, and I bind his ankles tight with the third strip. The fourth is for his wrists. I have to punch his throat before I can manage to secure them. I've lost my taste for the work by the time he's properly trussed. He's an ugly naked man, whimpering in the dark, and I only want to be gone from here. I take my knife from the table that I moved aside. I have something for you, I say, something that was very nearly misdelivered. I drive my knife in low at the base of his scrotum. I leave it there. I don't want it back. Also, if I pull it free, you will bleed to death quickly. I think he should linger. Also, I have a spare. I'm almost at the door, with Friar Glenn wheezing and hissing behind me. He makes a loud thump as he falls from the bed, but it isn't that which stops me. Sage appears. He doesn't step through the doorway. He doesn't rise from behind a chest. He's just there. His skin glows with its own light, not bright enough to illuminate even the floor at his feet, but enough to make silhouettes of the endless script tattooed across every inch of him. His eyes and mouth are dark holes in the glow. I see you are making a habit out of the clergy. Are you working your way down the list? First a bishop, now a friar. What next? An altar boy? You're a heathen, I say. You should applaud me. Besides, his sins cried out for it. Oh, well... In that case, his smile makes a black crescent in the light of his face. And what do your sins cry out for, Jorg? I have no answer. Sagus only smiles wider. 
and what were the friar's sins. I would ask him, but you appear to have gagged him. I do hope the dreams I gave young Catherine have not caused trouble. Women are such complex creatures, no? Dreams, I say. My hand searches in my pack, hunting my second knife. She dreamed she was with child, Sages says. Somehow, the dream even fooled her body. I think they call it a phantom pregnancy. The writing on his face seemed to move, words pulsing as if spoken. Such complex creatures. There was a child. She killed it. My mouth is dry. There was blood and muck. Saramwick's poisons will do that. But there was no child. I doubt there ever will be now. That old witch's poisons are not gentle. They scrape a womb bare. I find the blade, and I'm moving toward him. I try to run, but it's like wading through deep snow. Silly boy, you think I'm really here? He makes no move to escape. I try to reach him, but I'm floundering. Schnick, Makin's hand on the box, the closed box. I found myself cold, short of breath, hands tight around each other instead of Sages's neck. He, gone, just a memory, and I'm in the mountains, still running. What the hell are you doing? Makin panted. I looked around. I stood waist-deep in powder snow. Rock walls loomed on either side. The men of the watch marched behind me, a hundred yards behind me. You can't open that! Not now, not ever! Certainly not now! Makin shouted. He retched and sucked his breath back. He must have run hard to catch me. I snatched the box back from him and buried it in a pocket. It's rare for Blue Moon Pass to be open in the winter. Very rare. A good avalanche will clear it out, though. And for a few days before new snow chokes it again, a man can escape across the back of Mount Bodtrang, and then by a series of lower passes that parallel the spine of the Matarax. That man can leave the range entirely, and the Empire is his to wander. Run. A whisper in my ear, a familiar voice. Run. Sages? I asked, voice low to keep it from making. Run. Drops of pure nightmare trickled down the back of my neck. I shivered. Don't worry, heathen. I'll run. Chapter 38 Wedding Day So will we go to Alaric? Makin asked. I kept walking. The sides of the Blue Moon Pass rose sheer around us, caked in ice and snow, the black rock showing only where the wind scoured it clean. I guess the roads to the Danelaw will be difficult in winter. But she did want you to come in winter, that girl of his. Ella? Elin, I said. Your grandfather would offer you sanctuary, Makin said. He knew we'd lost. The dead men stretched out behind us on the mountain, under stone and snow, didn't change that. I kept walking. Underfoot, the snow left by the avalanche lay firm, creaking as it recorded my footprints. Is it good there, on the horse coast? It'd be warm at least. He hugged himself. There are two paths up into the Blue Moon Pass. It's like a snake's tongue, forked at the tip. 
The avalanche had opened both of them. I'd had the Highlanders place their boom pots to ensure it. What? said Makin. You set up. I carried on making the hard right that led back down the second fork of Blue Moon Pass, picking up the pace. Now I'm saying down. I had Martin hold the runyard for a reason, you know. And so, with the surviving third of the watch trailing me, I led the way down through the blue moon into the high valley above the runyard. And when the slope lessened and the ground became firmer, we ran. We saw the smoke before we heard the cries, and we heard the cries before we saw the haunt. At last, far below, the haunt came in view an island of mountain stone in a sea of arrows troops. His forces laid siege on every side, attacking with ladders and grapple ropes, siege engines hurling rock at the front face of the castle. A covered ram pounding the gates, a legion of archers on the high ridge sending their shafts over the walls. To my mind, siege machinery is more an act of show and determination than it is a well judged investment of time. Look, we hauled these huge bits of wood and iron to your castle. We mean business, we're here to stay. The Renar Highlands were perhaps that rare place where there really were enough big rocks lying around for a castle to be reduced to rubble by trebuchets, though it would take forever. But the ram? The ram is the queen of sieges, especially where walls may not be undermined. No mechanics, no counterweights and escapements. Just a simple direct force applied with vigor to the weakest point, so that you may set your men against theirs. And that, after all, is the aim of it all. If you didn't outnumber the foe, you wouldn't have marched to their castle, and they would not be hiding behind walls. Martin's men sheltered at the margins of the runyard. As long and gentle a gradient as could be found in the highlands, running down from our valley to the left of the haunt. The ridge from which the prince's archers gained their vantage broke the runyard at its far end. We could see Martin's troops, but from lower down the slope, they were almost invisible, sheltered by rocks and hidden in their mountain greys. Martin posed little threat to the enemy, though. His hundred men would make no impression on the three thousand occupying the ridge, even if they weren't shot down as they advanced. Why? Makin asked. Why is it called the Runyard? I chose to answer the wrong question, because it's the only place for miles that you can actually have a horse run without breaking its legs. I've seen you at the gallop there many times. Makin shook his head. Hobbs and Keppen joined us. We're going through the East Port? Hobbs asked. Not many men knew about the Sally Ports, one to the east, one to the west. I didn't recall ever telling Hobbs about the East Port, but I supposed it was his business to know. We had, after all, led his watch out of the West Port that morning. Yes, I said. We covered the last of the ground with great care, hugging the valley walls and being in no hurry. The archers proved intent on their targets within the haunt, crouched behind its battlements. We reached Martin without attracting any attention. King Jorg? Martin had kept his country accent despite four years at court. He stood in the entrance to the sally port, a crack just wide enough for a single rider. The rocks above the crack looked natural, but an experienced eye could tell they had been set to fall with only slight encouragement, a sufficient number of them to seal the portal with some permanence. A peculiar stink hung around the entrance. I saw Makin wrinkle his nose and frown as if he recognized it. Captain Martin, I said, I see you've held the runyard against all odds. He didn't smile at that. Martin had never smiled to my knowledge. It would look odd on his face, long like the rest of him, grey like the short crop above his eyes. The enemy have shown no interest in trying to take it from us. I don't believe they know we're here, he said. All to the good, I said. Keppen, lead the watch back to the castle. Keppen slipped into the crack 
and the watch started to file after him. They had a journey of three or four hundred yards ahead of them, most of it through natural caves carved by ancient streams. The last hundred yards through a tunnel hacked out by men with picks in hand and candles to light their work. I glanced at the timepiece on my wrist, starting to get the habit again. A quarter past two. Come with me, I told Martin. Makin and Captain Harold followed too. We crept across to the rocks that hid us from the slopes below and edged out to a position that offered a view of the archers on the ridge. I pushed the watch up my wrist so my sleeve hid it. It never pays to sparkle when you're hoping to be unobserved. There are a lot of them, Makin said. Yes. In fact, even without a single foot soldier, just with archers, the Prince of Arrow had brought with him four men for every man I had under arms. We watched. They weren't raining arrows on the haunt, just picking targets of opportunity and making sure the men at my walls kept their heads down. They could raise an arrow storm if the need arose, but why waste arrows? We kept watching. Fascinating, Makin said. Wait, I said. I looked at my watch again. Four? Makin stopped asking. A black stain spread from beneath the ridge. What is it? Harold asked. The archer ranks started to break, a wave of confusion rippling through the order. Trolls, I said. What? Makin cried. How? Who? How many? At our distance, it was hard to see the detail, but it looked messy. The rocks ran red. Makin slapped fist to palm. I smelled them back there at the entrance. The same stink you had on you when Gorgoth brought you down that day. He frowned. I guess this explains all those goats we kept buying in. That stuff about holding out for a long siege never made much sense. Gorgoth brought them south, I said. I've offered them sanctuary in the Matarax, though possibly it was the promise of goats that sealed the deal. He has a hundred and twenty with him. They've been tunnelling, making covered exits below that ridge. Martin almost smiled. That would be why you refused to listen when I begged you to defend it. They can't win, Makin said. Not with a hundred. Not even trolls. No, but look at them. What a mess they're making, eh? As Michael would say, it helps to have the elephant of surprise on your side. I slid back down into the shadow of the rock. Right, let's go. Martin joined me. Why now, though? And how did you know? Ah, what you should ask is how Gorgoth knew. An hour after the avalanche, I told him. And he agreed. But how in hell did he know when the avalanche happened? At the sally port, the last of the watch was stepping into the dark. I need you to hold here, Martin, I said. Come what may. We will hold. I don't forget what you did. And my men will follow where I lead, Martin said. It seemed a small thing that I had done, a toy and something for the pain, to ease the little girl's passing from the world. I hadn't even done it for good reasons. Makin set a hand on Martin's shoulder as he moved by. They shared a bond, these two. Two lost daughters. I saw how deep that ran. So deep, I'd known Makin half my life before I even spoke of it. I wondered if I were made for such emotions, or if I were just the clever, shallow boy most people saw. These men carried dead daughters through the years. I had a dead child, whose name I had lost, who dogged my trail because I would not shoulder the burden of my guilt. For a small box, it surely held a weight of memory, perhaps more than I could carry. We trekked the cave trails, worn smooth by years of use. I held a lantern taken from a store just inside the entrance. It flared brighter as I took it, and my cheek pulsed. I'd had me a touch of that magic ever since Gog burned me. 
I took Farrakind as an object lesson in not pursuing those paths. I paused from time to time to gaze upon galleries of stone forests that stretched away left and right. Stalagmites and stalactites, Lundis had called them, though he only had pictures in books. And frankly, those looked dull as hell. I'm not sure what the difference is. Maybe the big ones are stalagmites. Lundis said they grow, but I've never seen it happen. I do know that in the light of flames, beneath immeasurable weight of rock, they hold a beauty that cannot be communicated. For long moments, the wonder of the living rock held me, and when it let me go, I found myself alone, an island of light in the ancient dark. Quick glances along the path confirmed it. No men of the watch, no brothers, not even footsteps in the distance. Something is wrong. Jorg. And Sages stepped from behind a pillar of stone, the light within him writing his tattoos across the walls in shadow, sliding, moving, wrapping over every fold and curve of the cavern. Heathen! I kept my eyes on his. You have more churchmen you need killed, perhaps? He smiled. You've been so hard to reach, Jog. A hedge of thorns around all your dreams. A frown. Or a box? Is it a box, Jog? There's another hand in this. Someone has been keeping you from me. I kept my hand still, my eyes on his, but I felt the weight at my hip, and his gaze wandered there. Interesting, he said, but no matter. Now we're so close, I can touch you again. Have you come to play me, heathen, to set me on the path of your choosing? I drew steel, but he seemed unimpressed. Don't tell me, you're not here again. Again the smile, he inclined his head a fraction. I'm beyond your reach, Jog, and you still walk the path I placed you on long ago. All you have left to choose is the manner of your death. I took Catherine from you. She would have made you strong. Yin to your yang, if you like. And now you are weak, and she serves instead to place in my hands an arrow. I can point where I will. No. I shook my head and took a step toward him, careful of my footing. In the caves, a wrong step can leave you broken at the bottom of a long fall. Yet however I chose my steps, the heathen had always made me doubt my footing. He carried doubt with him, doubt of self, doubt of motives, the kind of uncertainty that eats at a man like cancer. No, I repeated myself, hunting confidence. Gloating is for fools. If I were playing your game, you would leave me to play it. I quested toward him with the point of my sword. Perhaps those gentle touches didn't work quite so well as you had hoped and you come in desperation to turn me more boldly from the path I'm walking. Gloating is for fools, and I have never counted you a fool. The light flickered across his skin. You can't win, boy. You can't win. So why are you still here? What are you planning? Where are you hiding your secrets? His eyes fell to the box again, though it made but the slightest bulge at my hip. A quick step, and I thrust at him. He hissed as the blade bit in with no more resistance than if only his robe hung before me. I'm not here, through gritted teeth, as if insistence made it true. And he was gone. Jorg? Making at my side, a frown on his brow, his hand on my arm. Jorg! Hey? Dreaming on my feet, I shook my head. Lead on. The Sally Tunnels connect to separate cellars beneath the haunt, their exits disguised as huge wine barrels. I elbowed my way among the watch and found Hobbs. Do what you can about the ram, I said. 
It looks to be well covered, but it needs fresh men to swing it. So shoot a few of the bastards as they come up to take a turn. Also, you'll find there's not much incoming at the moment. At least not of the pointy kind. They'll still be slinging rocks at us. So take advantage and just kill as many of the men as you can. Next, I took myself to the courtyard where my levies, subjects, and bannermen waited, crowded rank upon rank before the gatehouse. Knights from Morrow to the left of the portcullis, armor gleaming, swords in hand. To the right, more knights, plate armored, the noblest sons of Hod Town, my capital down in the valleys to the north. No doubt they had come to win the king's favor and honor for their houses. Young men in the main, soft with gold. And more used to lance and tawny than blood and ruin. I saw Sir Elmar of Golden among them, his armor radiant as his name implied. A warrior, that one, despite his finery. They had some strength among them, crowded on the gallery and stairs, crossbowmen from the Westfast, under Lord Schooler, hard eyed and wind burned. Packed before the splintering gate, men of the haunt side, tough fighters from the hills, in leather and iron. Axes honed, round wooden shields layered in goat hide. Behind these, warriors from far range, their iron helms patterned with silver and tin, each man armed with hammer and hatchet, and to the rear, ranked before the keep wall, Kenat shield dancers, their war boards taller than a man. I walked among them, making at my shoulder, amid the stink and heave of bodies, the tension a taste in the air at once both sour and sweet. I hadn't words for them. No kingly gestures, no speech to shout above the screams from beyond the wall and the crash of the ram. When you fight alongside brothers, you bind them with word and deed. When you fight among subjects, you're a figure, a form, an idea. Men will die for many things. Lives hoarded with care can be spent for the strangest of reasons. What bound us here, we men of the highlands, was defiance. All men will dig their heels in if pushed enough. All men will reach the point that they say no. For no reason other than opposition, for no reason other than the word fits their mouth, and tastes as good as it sounds. And in the highlands, among our mountains, the heights breed men who will give no single inch without defiance. I walked between the men of the highlands, the old and young, some bearded, others clean-cheeked, some pale, some red, the trembling and the steady, and came to stand before the portcullis, iron-bound timbers splintered, the rush of the ram beyond. The savage cries of the hundred wrestling it toward me. My fingers found my knife hilt, and I pulled it clear. Laid against my unburned cheek, the metal felt like ice. The portcullis shuddered and groaned before the ram. Men of arrow screamed and died as missiles rained upon them. The knife blade cut skin soft as a kiss. I took the blood on scarlet fingers and wiped it over the gate timbers. I turned my back on the gate, crouched before my men. And smeared a line of blood across the flagstones. As I returned to the keep, I set my hand to a score of warriors, the eager ones, the ones in whom I saw an echo of the same hunger that made me want that gate open every bit as much as those men on the ram. King's blood! Sir Elmer of Golden raised his axe. The crimson smear of my fingers left across his shining helm. King's blood! A hairy hauntside warrior pressed the heel of his hand to the red imprint I set across his brow. King's blood! A Kennet dancer twirled the huge shield where my handprint sat scarlet across the white moon of his house. King's blood! The roar pulsed back and forth, following us within the keep. A king is a sigil, not a man, but an idea. I thought they had the idea now. I took myself up to my throne room with Macon at my side and called for my table knights, 
Red Kent, and the captain of the contingent from the house morrow, Lord Jost. Lord Jost arrived last with a second knight and Miana. Queen Miana, I supposed I should call her. She still wore her wedding dress, though with the train and veils taken off, and a shawl set with pearls added against the cold. Lord Jost looked rather embarrassed by her presence at my council of war. Gentlemen, I said, my lady. I sat in the throne. Slumped would be more accurate. It felt good to take the weight off my feet. I'd done more running and climbing and descending than I wanted, and was ready to sleep for a week. How many of the enemy did you kill? And at what loss? Miana asked. The men had been waiting for me to speak. She felt no such need. I would have asked the same question. About six thousand, for the loss of two hundred, I said. A thirty-to-one ratio. Better than the rate of twenty-to-one needed. To hear her high, sweet voice recite the statistics of our body count seemed wrong. True, but they were two hundred of my very best, and I have played the aces from my hand. And Chancellor Codin has not returned, Miana said. She was remarkably well informed for a little girl. A pang of something ran through me at that. I saw Codin once more in the tomb we made for him. He's safer than we are, I said. He would probably live longer too. He would linger. I took a goblet of watered wine from a page, and a plate with crusted bread and goat cheese. And your plans? She asked. I blew through my lips. We will have to place our faith in stone and mortar, and hope that in the time they buy us, fortune decides to smile our way. The wine tasted like heaven and made me dizzy after one sip. Perhaps my new father-in-law will send us aid, Miana said, her smile faint and years too old for her. I was hoping something similar myself. I said. More than in muscle heaped on bone, Brother Reich's strength springs from the ability to hate the inanimate. Chapter Thirty-Nine. Four Years Earlier. She's gone. Yes. Macon shaded his eyes against the sunrise and squinted back across the marsh. We stood on rolling scrubland now, with yellow rock breaking through in sandy patches here and there. I hope so. I said, "Part of me wanted Chella to find destruction at my hands, the personal touch, but perhaps she ended there in the marsh amongst the burning dead. I hadn't felt it, no sense of satisfaction. But my uncle's death had taught me that revenge is far less sweet than it promises to be. An empty meal, however long you take over it. We took to horse for the first time in what seemed an age. Reich on Rose Rowan, since his own plough horse proved too heavy for its own good in the bogs." Kent and Makin on their horses, Grumlow riding double with me, since he and I were the lightest of the brothers, and Brath the strongest of the nags. The sour stink of the marshes followed us for miles, black mud caking on our clothes, drying grey and flaking away, more persistent than stink or mud. The image of Chella as the flames rose around her, and the echo of her last words: "The dead king sails." In three days we came by moorland and scrub, then by forgotten roads. And finally, by country tracks to the free port of Barlona, Reich made ceaseless complaint about his sunburn until I convinced him to smear pig shit over the worst affected areas. For some reason, it seemed to help, though I hadn't intended it to. Suggestion can be a powerful thing. The ancient walls shimmered in the summer heat as we approached. They must have been impressive a thousand years ago. Now only the base of the walls remained, twenty foot high and just as thick. 
spilling black stone in great heaps for the peasants to raid to make huts and boundary walls for their fields. I liked the city from the moment we rode in. The air held exotic scents, spices, and cooking smoke that made my stomach growl. The people thronged, loud in voice and clothing, bright silks, garish jewelry made of glass and base metals, flesh of all colors on display in wide swathes. Men and women as light as me, as dark as the Nuban, and all shades in between. None as pale as Sindri and Duke Alaric, though. Those, I think the sun would melt. Music came from almost every corner, in as many shades as the people. It seemed that the citizens walked in time to the beat and pulse of a thousand drums, horns, voices. I'd not heard such sounds before, so many strange melodies, some reminding me of the marching beats the Nuban used to slap against his thigh as we walked, and which he elaborated on around the campfire. Others held remembrances of the curious atonal humming Tutor Lundis lapsed into in empty moments. A port is an open ear to the world, a mouth ready for new flavors. Approaching my fifteenth year, I felt more than ready to explore the wideness of the world that Barlona offered up. You know, Macon, you can take ship from here to almost any place you've ever heard of, and a thousand that you haven't, I said. Ships make me ill. Macon looked as if he were remembering the taste. You don't like them? It's the waves. I get seasick. I vomit from one shore to the next. I was nearly sick crossing the Rhyme. Well, that's good to know. With Macon, you can keep digging and find a new fact year on year. I hadn't known he'd ever crossed an ocean, or even travelled under sail. How is that good to know? He frowned. Well, the only way to get to the horse coast is by sea. And I'm going alone. Knowing what a bad sailor you are just makes it easier to send you back to the haunt. We can ride there, Macon said. It's less than a hundred miles. Through the Duchy of Aramis? And then the lands of King Philip the 900th? I said. 32nd, Macon corrected. Whatever. The point is that those are not places men like us can pass unnoticed, whereas a ship will sail me right to my grandfather's doorstep in a day or two. So we take a ship, and I coat the decks in vomit. What's the problem? The problem, dear Macon, is that I don't want Reich there, or Grumlow, or Kent. I don't even want you there. I want to make my own introductions in my own time. This is family business, and I'll do it my way. That tends to mean everyone dies, Macon grinned. Maybe, but I don't need you there for that either. Just get them back to the haunt. We've lost too many on this trip. I won't say we've lost good men, but ones that I would rather have kept. Though if you misplace Reich on the way back, that would be fine. This is a bad idea, Jorg. Macon had that stubborn look of his, lips pressed tight, a vertical line between his brows. I need you in Renar, I said. I needed you there from the start. If you recall, I did my damnedest not to have you come in the first place. Codin's a good man, but how long can he hold a kingdom together for? Go back, crack any heads that need cracking, and let my people know I'll be returning. Oi! Grumlow's cry. A man running away through the crowd. I saw Grumlow's arm flick back and throw. The man fell without a sound, twenty yards off, shoving his way through the crowd. I walked with Grumlow to where he lay. People got out of our way, except for the children who ran everywhere as if we were part of a show. Grumlow pulled his saddlebag from the man's limp hands. Cut the bloody strap. That'll cost, he said. I told you to secure it better, I said. The few bits and pieces Grumlow had managed to bring through the bogs were tied randomly around Brath's tag. 
Grumlow grunted and bent to retrieve his knife. It had hit the man hilt first in the back of the head. A pool of blood glistened beneath the man's face, but it must have come from his nose or mouth, hitting the cobbles. We didn't bother turning him over to find out. I love this city, I said, and we went back to the others. We stabled the horses and sat at a tavern by the docks. I call it a tavern, but we sat outside, around tables in the sun, if you please, with wine in bottles shaped like teardrops, with baskets woven around them. Makin with his bare feet, traces of dried mud still visible. Wright complained, of course, about the sun, about the wine, even about the chairs, which seemed unable to support his weight. But I paid more attention to the seagull's chatter. I sat and watched the ships moored at the quayside, bigger than I had thought they would be, and more complex, with rigging and spars and deck ropes and a multitude of sails. I felt better than I had in an age. Even my burns hurt less fiercely, as if the hot sun soothed their anger. For the first time in a long time, we relaxed, smiled, and spoke of the dead, of Brother Row, who I would remember, and Brother Sim, who I'd miss for his harping and for his purpose. We raised our bottles to them both and drank deep. Only Kent put up any resistance to the idea of returning without me. I let him protest a while until he ran out of things to say, and in the end convinced himself that my plan was the best one. Red Kent's like that. Give him a little space to turn, and he'll come round. I stood, rolled my neck, and stretched in the sunshine. Catch you on the road, brothers. You're going now? Makin asked, putting down his bottle in a basket. Well, unless you want to drink till we're all sunburnt and maudlin, and then declare undying love for each other and part with drunken hugs, I said. Reich spat. He seemed to have inherited the role of spitter from Roe. In that case, your path lies that way. I pointed north. I should note that the first quarter mile of that path is on a street that boasts several fine-looking whorehouses. So take your time. As for me, I'm going to find out about ships. I set off at an amble, following my shadow across the bright flagstones. Look after Brath for me, I called back. They picked up their bottles and drank to me. Catch you on the road, they replied, even Reich. And if Macon hadn't been there, I think I really could have ditched them that easily. Chapter 40, Four Years Earlier In a great port like Barlona, there are hundreds of ships at harbour. Most belong to merchants, or collectives of merchants, and hug the coastline loaded with things that are cheap where the ships set out, and that command a higher price where they are bound. It's a simple equation, and the devil lies in the details. There are warships too, owned in name by the Prince of Barlona, and in the service of his people. In reality, it is the wealthiest of the merchants who put new princes on the throne and the warships serve to protect their trade routes. And among the merchant cogs and the prince's warships, a scattering of ocean-going ships, triple-masted and more, deep-hulled, from the strangest and most distant shores. Even one great vessel of sickwood, twice the size of her largest rival, her grey planks grown one into the next, half-living despite the lumberman's saw. Her hull, crusted with barnacles, large as dinner plates, even above the wave-line, bore many scars, and on her decks, Men with copper skin worked at repairs. I spent a few hours watching the great ships with their foreign crews, yellow men from Utter, black crews from the many kingdoms of Afrique, turbaned sailors with curling beards, sun-stained, strutting the decks of pungent spice-boats. The Prince of Arrow's words returned to me, his observations on the smallest of my world and the largeness of my ignorance. 
Even so, every man amongst these travellers knew of the empire, even though it stood in pieces. And so we had us some common ground. I saw Makin and the others trailing me almost from the start. He'd had the sense to leave Reich behind, most likely in one of the whorehouses I'd suggested. Reich's not one to be missed, even on a crowded street. Makin would have done better to leave himself and Red Kent in the whorehouse too. Grumlow I might not have spotted. Grumlow has quiet ways about him. The smaller and more shabby of the merchant cogs stood at anchor on the margins of the great harbour. They moored along sway-backed quays that abutted semi-derelict warehouses, separated by dangerous alleys, where the stink of rotted fish made my eyes water. I followed two bare-chested men carrying a barrel up the gangplank onto the sea goat. You! Get off my ship! The man shouting at me was smaller and dirtier than the other men on deck, but loud enough to be the captain. A ship now, is it? I looked around. Well, I suppose if you set a sail in a rowboat, you can call it a ship. But you were unwise to throw away the oars. I was going to let you choose which side you left by. But that offer is now void, the little man said. The mass of black curls framing his ugly face looked to be a wig. But why anyone would want to set ten pounds of stolen sweaty hair on their head in this heat, I couldn't fathom. I magicked a silver coin into my hand, an Ancrath royal stamped with my father's head. Customer, I said. The fat man advancing on me stopped. He looked relieved. I want to get to the horse coast, I said. Somewhere around the ear would do. The horse coast isn't named for the stallions that make it famous these days. Apparently, the peninsula coastline resembles a horse's head. I've studied the map scrolls in my father's library, and I can say with surety that it looks like a horse's head in the same way that troll stones look like trolls, or that the constellation of Orion looks like a belted giant holding a club. They could have called it the Happy Pig Coast or the Crooked Thumb Coast just as well. To give the ancients the benefit of the doubt, I will note that the sea has risen twice the height of the tall castle since the time of building, and the old maps had to be rewritten many times. Even so, I'd stake a bag of stolen gold on the fact that there was never a time that horse was the first thing to spring to mind when contemplating the run of the horse coast. I had plenty of time to think while the little captain favoured me with a sour stare and chewed his lip. I could have picked a ship at random. Any small vessel actively loading would be departing for ports up the coast from Barlona or down the coast. I'd bought a couple of ales for a sailor earlier in the day. He'd gone through his share from his previous trip and was delaying a new signing until the last possible moment. In return for my keeping him from sobriety for a few more hours, he'd run off a list of the best bets for a trip south. The sea goat's name had taken my fancy. Who wants to sail on the Maria, or the God's grace, when there's a sea goat to be ridden? Two silver, and you haul rope when told, he said. One silver, and I get fed with the crew, I said, and started walking toward the gangplank. I could ride the Maria just as well. In fact, it sounded better each time I said it. Done, he said. And so I sailed on the sea goat with Captain Nellis. Before the sea goat hoisted sail, I took a last walk around the seafront and stopped in at the port commander's office long enough to place a bribe of sufficient weight to considerably lighten my gold supply. Ideally, the brothers would be steered onto a ship that would take them north up the coast and abandon them in a minor port. Makin would be too busy vomiting to notice which side of the boat the land lay off. Failing that, they need only arrest Makin and hold him a week or two. Long enough for my trail to grow cold, and to remind him that in the end, 
When your king tells you to do something, you do it. I like the sea, even with a gentle swell, with the coast in plain view, just ten miles to starboard. It sets me in mind of mountains in motion. I like the nautical phrases: splice this, belay that. If Lundis proves right and we're all reborn, I'll go once more round life's wheel as a pirate. Everything about the ocean puts me in a good mood. The smell and the taste of it, the cry of seagulls. God jammed some kind of magic down their throats. No wonder the crows want to murder them, and the ravens are unkind. Captain Nellis didn't like me being on the quarterdeck, or so he said. But I spent my time there, legs dangling through the rail, with him behind me, dwarfed by the wheel. He could have roped it off for all the steering he did, but he seemed to like to hold it while he shouted at his men. To my eye, he steered them as little as he did the ship. His curses and instructions rolled off the crew, and they went about their tasks oblivious. "I'll buy me a ship one day," I said. "Surely," Captain Nellis spat something thick and unpleasant onto the deck. Without men like him and Row, decks probably wouldn't need swabbing at all. A big one, mind, not a barge like this. Something that cuts the waves rather than wallows about in them. A young sailsword like yourself shouldn't set his sights so low," Nellis growled. "Buy a whole fleet." A valid point, Captain. Very valid. If my kingdom ever gets a coastline, I will buy a fleet. I'll be sure to name one of them the Spitting Nellis. And so, for the rest of that day and most of the next, the sea goat wallowed its way sedately around the shore, stopping once in a small port to unload a huge copper pot, and to fill the space with red-finned fish called redfin. I slept a night in a hammock below decks, rolling in the gentle arms of coastal waters and dreaming of absolutely nothing. I can only recommend hammocks if you're at sea. On dry land, there seems no point to them. And sleep above deck if you have the chance. The sea goat had an appropriately animal smell to it in the stale heat of its hold. My grandfather's castle is called Morrow. It overlooks the sea, standing as close to a high cliff as a brave child might, but not so close as a foolhardy one. It has an elegance to it, being tall and slender in its towers. And sensibly tiled on its many roofs, having fought fiercer and more prolonged battles with ocean storms than with any army trekking to it overland, the port of Arapa lies just two miles north of Castle Morrow, and I disembarked there, taking some pleasure in unsettling Captain Nellis with enthusiastic thanks for his services. I left the crew unloading redfin and taking on crates of saddles destined for Wenith Town. Why the fishermen of Arapa couldn't catch their own redfin? I never did find out. A well-maintained cart track winds up from the port to Castle Morrow. I walked, enjoying the sunshine, and turned down the offer of a ride in a charcoal man's cart. It gets steep, he said. Steep's fine, I said, and he flicked his mule on. I wanted to come incognito to Castle Morrow. Wanted it bad enough to see Macon thrown in a cell rather than risk him spoiling my cover. It has to be said that my experience with relations has been a mixed bag. Having a father like mine. Breeds caution in these situations. I needed to see these new family members in their element, without the complications of who I was or what I wanted. Add to the mix the fact that my grandfather and uncle were said to hate Olid and Ancrath with a passion, for the way he sold the absolution for mother's death, as if his brother had merely inconvenienced him by sending assassins to kill her. I might be my mother's son, but I have more than my fair share of father's blood. And with the tales grandfather was like to have heard of me, it would not be unreasonable for him to see me cast in the image of Oliden, rather than the child of his beloved Rowan.
I had a sweat on me by the time I reached the castle gates, but the cliff tops caught a sea breeze, and I let it cool me. I stepped up to the archway, double portcullis, well-crafted merlins topping the gatehouse, arrow slits positioned with some thought. In all, a nice bit of castle building. The smallest of three guardsmen stepped to intercept me. I'm looking for work, I said. Nothing for you, son. He didn't ask what kind of work. I had a big sword on my belt, a scorching hot breastplate over my leathers, and a helm at my hip. How about some water, then? I've sweated my way up from the beach, and it's a thirsty mile. The guard nodded to a stone trough for horses by the side of the road. Hmm. The water looked only marginally better than the stuff in the Cantonlana swamp. Best be on your way, son. It's a thirsty mile back to a rapper, too, the guard said. I started to dislike the man. I named him Sonny for his disposition and his repeated claims of fatherhood. I reached inside my breastplate, trying not to touch the metal and failing. My fingers discovered the corner they were hunting, and I pulled out a sealed letter, wrapped in stained linen. Also, I have this for Earl Hansa, I said, unfolding it from the cloth. Do you now? Sonny reached for it, and I pulled it back at the same speed he moved his hand. Best let me see that, son, he said. Best read the name on the front, before you grubby it up too much, father. I let him take it, and used the linen to mop sweat from my forehead. To Sonny's credit, he held the letter with some reverence, by the very corners, and although we both knew he couldn't read, he played out the pantomime well, peering at the script above the wax seal. Wait here, he told me, and set off into the courtyard beyond. I smiled for the two remaining guards, then took myself off to a patch of shade, where I slumped and let the flies have their way. I set my back to the trunk of the lone tree, providing the shade. It looked to be an olive. I'd never seen the tree before, but I knew the fruit, and the stones littered the ground. It looked old, older than the castle, perhaps. Sonny took almost an hour to return, and by that time, the horse trough had started to look tempting. He brought two house guards with him, their uniform richer, chain mail on their chests, rather than the leathers of the wall guard, who had to endure the heat. Go with them, Sonny said. I think he would have given a day's wages to be able to send me back down the hill, and another day's to be able to send me on my way with the toe of his boot. In the courtyard, a marble fountain sprayed. The water jetted from many small holes in the mouth of a fish and collected in a wide circular pool. I had seen illustrations of fountains in father's books. Reference was made to the team of men needed to work the pump in order to maintain pressure. I pitied any men sweltering away in darkness to make this pretty thing function but the fine spray made a cool heaven as we walked past. Many windows overlooked the courtyard, not shuttered, but faced with pierced veils of stone, worked with great artistry in intricate patterns that left more air than rock. I couldn't see into the shadows behind, but I felt watched. We passed through a short corridor, floored with geometric mosaic, into a smaller courtyard, where on a stone bench in the shade of three orange trees, a nobleman waited, plain-dressed, but with a gold band on his wrist, and too clean to be anything but highborn. Not Earl Hansa. He was too young for that. But surely someone of his family. Of my family. I kept more of my father's features, but this man shed some of my lines. High cheekbones, dark hair cropped close, watchful eyes. I am Robert, he said. He had the letter open in his hand. My sister wrote this. She speaks well of you. In truth, I spoke well of myself when I set quill to parchment some months ago. I called myself William, 
and said that I had proven a loyal aide to Queen Rowan, honest, brave, and gifted in both letter and number. I copied the slant and shape of the writing from an older letter, a crumpled scrap I kept close to my heart for many years, a letter from my mother. I'm honoured. I bowed deeply. I hope that the Queen's recommendation, God rest her, will find me a place in your household. Lord Robert watched me, and I watched him. It felt good to find an uncle that I didn't long to kill. Chapter 41 Four Years Earlier You look very young, William. How many years are you? Sixteen? Seventeen? Robert said. Nineteen, my lord. I look young for my age, I said. And my sister has been dead nearly five years. So that makes you fourteen or fifteen when she wrote this. Fifteen, my lord. Early in life to have made such an impression. Honest, brave, numerate, literate. So why are you wandering so far from home in such poor circumstances? William. I served in the forest watch, my lord, after Queen Rowan was slain. And when the watchmaster led us against Count Renard, who took your sister's life, Queen Rowan, I mean, I fought in the highlands. But I have family in Ancrath, so when justice was served on the Count, I took to the roads, so that I would be thought killed in the battle at the Haunt, and no punishments would fall on my relatives to make me surrender to King Oliden. Since then I have been making my way here, my lord, hoping to continue in service to Queen Rowan's family. That's quite a tale, Robert said, to be told in one mouthful, without pause for breath. I said nothing, and watched the shadows of the orange trees dance. So you fought alongside my nephew, Jorg, Robert said. Did you come by your injury that way? He set his hand to his cheek. I didn't fight by his side, my lord, but I was on the same battlefield. He wouldn't know my name and face, I said. Not even with this scar. That came more recently, on my travels. That must be the honesty Rowan wrote of. Many would be tempted to say they fought at his left hand in order to lay stronger claim on my generosity. Robert smiled. He rubbed at the small dark triangle of beard on his chin. Can you use that sword? he asked. He wore plain linens, a loose shirt, his chest and arms tanned and hard-muscled, perhaps more a horseman than a swordsman, but he would know blades. I can. And read? And write? Yes. A man of many talents, Robert said. I'll have Lord Jost find a place for you in the house guard. That will do for now. I should introduce you to Kalasadi, too. He always likes to meet a man who knows his numbers. He smiled as if he'd made a joke. My thanks, Lord Robert, I said. Don't thank me, William. Thank my sister. And be sure to show us all how good a judge of character she was. He looked up through the orange tree leaves at the dazzling blue sky. Take him to Captain Orton's, he said, and house guards led me away. I slept that night in a bunk in the West Tower guardhouse. Orton's, a man with more scars on his bald head 
than would seem reasonable or even possible, had grumbled and cursed. But he had a chain surcoat brought up from the armory and sent for the seamstress to fit me with a uniform in the blues of House Morrow. I also got a service blade, a long sword, from the same forge as the other guards, assumed to be superior to the one in my dirt cake scabbard, and certainly more aesthetically pleasing, completing the house guard ensemble as it did. The older men of the guard offered the traditional doubts about my ability to use a sword, concerns that I would miss my mother, and bets about how long it would be before the captain threw me out. In addition, my foreign heritage allowed for the airing of low opinions of the northern kingdoms in general, and Ancrath in particular. Ancrath proved an especially sore point, since their princess Rowan had met a foul end there. I owned that I did miss my mother, but it wouldn't cause me to go running home. I further admitted that I was a citizen of Ancrath, but one who had fought at the gates of the man who killed its queen, and who had seen him pay for his crimes. As to my fighting skills, I invited any man who felt overburdened with blood to come and test them for himself. I slept well that night. The house morrow wakes early, most of it pre-dawn, so that some progress can be made before the summer descends, and any sensible man retreats into the shortening shade. I found myself in the practice yard with four other recent recruits. Captain Ortons came from his breakfast to watch in person as an elderly sergeant put us through our paces with wooden swords. I resisted the urge to put on a show, and kept my swordplay basic. An experienced eye is hard to deceive, though, and I suspected that Orton's left with a higher opinion of Recruit William than the one he'd brought to the yard with him. After a couple of hours, it grew warm for sword work, and Sergeant Mattis sent us to our assignments. I'd always imagined the duties of the guard at the haunt and at the tall castle to be tedious, Not until I tried them myself for half a day did I fathom quite how dull such service is. I got to stand at the lowery gate, an iron door affording access to what was little more than an extended balcony garden where the noble ladies cultivated sage grass, miniature lemon trees and various flowering plants that had lost their blooms months earlier and set to seed. If any intruder were to gain the balcony, then I was to refuse him entrance to the castle. An unlikely event since they would need to fall off a passing cloud to reach the balcony. If any lady of the house were to wish to visit the garden, then I was empowered to unlock the door for them, and to lock it again when they had taken their leave. I'm bored even scratching it out on this page. I stood there for three hours in an itchy uniform and saw nobody at all. No one even passed down the adjoining corridor. Another recruit from the morning's training exercise relieved me at noon, and I set off to find the guard's refectory. I now know why it's called relief. A moment of your time, young man. I stopped just a yard from the refectory door and let my stomach complain for me. I made a slow turn. I'm told you are numerate. The man had stepped from the shade of a lilac bush that swarmed up the inner wall of the main courtyard, a moor, darker than the shadow, wrapped in a black burnous, the burnt umber of his skin exposed only on his hands and face. Count on it. I said. He smiled. His teeth were black, painted with some dye, the effect unsettling. I am Kalasadi. William, I said. He raised an eyebrow. How may I help you, Lord Kalasadi? I asked. He held himself like a noble, though no gold glittered on him. I judged him by the cut of his robe and the neat curl of his short beard and hair, 
Wealth buys a certain grooming that speaks of money, even when the rich man's tastes are simple. Just Kalasadi, he said. I liked him. Simple as that. Sometimes I just do. He crouched, and with an ivory wand drawn from his sleeve, he wrote numbers in the dust. Your people call me a math magician, he said. And what do you call yourself? I asked. Numbered, he said. Tell me what you see. I looked at his scribbling. Is that a root symbol? Yes. I see primes here, here, and here. This is a rational number. This one irrational. I see families. I circled groups with my toe, some overlapping. Real numbers, integers, imaginary numbers, complex numbers. He sketched again, flowing symbols that I remembered only dimly. And this, some part of the integral calculus, but it goes beyond my lessons. It panged me to admit defeat, though I should have held my tongue after recognizing prime numbers for him. Pride is my weakness. Interesting. Kalasadi scuffed the dust to erase his writings, as if they might prove dangerous to others. So do you have me figured out? I asked. What's my magic number? I had heard tell of math magicians. They seemed little different from the witches, astrologers, and soothsayers from closer to home, obsessed with casting futures, handing out labels, parting fools from their coin. If he told me something about the glories ahead for the Prince of Arrow, I would have trouble restraining myself. If he suggested I might be born in the year of the goat, then there would be no restraint. Again, the black smile. Your magic number is three, he said. I laughed. But he looked serious. Three, I shook my head. There are a lot of numbers to choose from. Three just seems a little predictable. Everything is predictable, Kalasadi said. At its core, my arts are the working of probability, which produces prediction, and that leads us to timing. And in the end, my friend, everything comes down to a matter of timing, does it not? He had a point, but three. I waved my hands, groping for outrage. Three. It's the first of your magic numbers. They form a series, he said. The second of them is fourteen. See, now you're talking. Fourteen. I can believe in that. I crouched beside him, since he seemed unwilling to rise. Why fourteen? It is your age, is it not? He asked, and it is the key to your name. My name. An uneasiness crept up my back, chill, despite the heat. Honorous, I should say. With some certainty. He scratched in the dust, and erased it just as quick. Ancrath, quite likely. Jorg, maybe. I'm fascinated at how you would calculate all that from fourteen," I said. I considered breaking his neck and leaving for the docks, but that wasn't the man I wanted to show my mother's father, or her brother. It wasn't the Jorg she had known. You have the look of a steward to me, the right lines, particularly around the eyes, nose, the forehead too, and you've declared yourself from Ancrath. Which would fit with your accent and colouring, 
almost all stewards are named after honorus. You could be a bastard. But who teaches a bastard to even recognize calculus? And if you're legitimate, then as a steward from Ancrath, you would be named Ancrath. And what members of that household are young men? Georg Ancrath springs to mind. And how old is he? Close on fifteen. But not yet there. I didn't yet know if I was right to like the man, but his store of facts and talent for deduction impressed me. Spectacular, I said. Wrong, but spectacular. Carla Sadi shrugged. I try. He nodded to the refectory. Your lunch awaits, no doubt. I stood and started across the courtyard, then paused. Why three? Carla Sadi frowned, as if trying to recall a lost sensation. Three steps outside? Three in the carriage? Three women that will love you? Three brothers lost on your journey? The magic lies in the first number. The mathematics in the second. The three steps put a cold finger down my spine, as if he had rummaged in the back of my skull and pulled out something I would rather keep hidden. I said nothing and walked away. A wild night running through my mind, cut by lightning and glimpses of the empty carriage, as I hung in thorns. I found myself at the refectory table without memory of getting there. I wondered how long it would be before Kalasadi laid his deduction at my uncle's feet. He might spoil my game, but it presented no danger. Not hungry? The short guardsman from the gates sat across from me. Sunny. I looked down at my lunch and tried to make sense of it. What's this stuff? Did someone throw up in my bowl? Spicy squid. The guardsman kissed his fingertips and spread them. Mwah. I skewered a tentacle, a difficult feat in itself, and set to chewing. The experience wasn't dissimilar from chewing shoe leather, except that to fully replicate it, you would have to set the leather on fire. Spices are all well and good. Salt to taste, a little pepper, a bay leaf in soup, a clove or two in an apple pie. But on the horse coast, they seem to favor chilies that will take the skin off your tongue. Having been burned on the outside and not like the experience, I saw no reason to burn on the inside. I spat my mouthful back into the bowl. This is truly vile, I said. I would have had it off you, the guardsman said. But you went and spat in it. I'm Grayson, by the way. William of Ancrath, I said. I picked up my hunk of bread and nibbled it, wary that the cook might have mixed a bag of chilli dust in with the flour. What's the deal with the moor? I asked, and ran my fingers over my teeth, as if moor were not sufficient description. You've met Kalasadi now, have you? Grayson grinned. He keeps the castle accounts, works wonders with the local merchants, gets Earl Hentz at the good contracts. Best of all, He's in charge of paying the guards, and he's never a day late. Five years back, we had Friar James keeping the books. We could go a month without coin. He shook his head. He's close with the Earl and his son, this Kalasadi, I asked. Not especially. He's just the bookkeeper, Grayson shrugged. I liked the sound of that, but wondered at a man of such talent occupying a relatively minor role without complaint. I like him well enough, Grayson said. 
Plays cards with the wall guards sometimes. Always loses. Never complains. Never drinks our ale. You'd have thought he'd be good at cards, I said. Terrible. Not sure he even knows the rules. But he seems to love it. And the men like him. They don't give him a hard time about being the castles anymore. And by rights they should. What with his countrymen set on invading the mainland and turning us all to heathens or corpses. Moors, is it? I asked. Should I be expecting to kill some soon? Others of the guard leaned in, listening to the conversation as they chewed their squid. I thought perhaps the chili dissolved the tentacles in the end, because chewing seemed insufficient. You might yet, Grayson said. Ibn fired. He's caliph in Liba. Has sent his ships three times this year. We're due another raid. Without warning, the rumble of conversation died, and Grayson put his head down. Shimon, the swordmaster, he hissed. He never comes in here. A man loomed behind me. I focused on the squid, but refrained from actually putting it in my mouth. You boy, Shimon said. Ancrath, out in the yard. I'm told you have promise. Chapter 42, Four Years Earlier I knew of Swordmaster Shimon. Makin told me stories about him, about his exploits as a young man, champion to kings, teacher of champions, legend of the tawny. I hadn't expected him to be so old. Yes, Swordmaster, I said, and I followed him out into the courtyard. To say he moved like a swordsman would be understatement. He looked as old as Tutor Lundist, with the same long white hair, but he stepped as if he heard the sword song beating through each moment of the day. Kalasadi had gone from the shadows, and the courtyard lay empty, but for a serving girl crossing with a basket of washing, and the men on guard at the gate. Other guards crowded the door of the refectory behind us, but they didn't dare follow us out. Shimon had not extended them an invitation. The swordmaster turned to face me. The bookish look of him surprised me. He could have passed as a scribe, but for the dark burn of the sun and a hawkishness about the eyes. He drew his sword, a standard-issue blade, the same as mine. "'When you're ready, young man,' he said. I slid my sword out, wondering how to play this. Kalasadi was probably telling my uncle who I really was right now, so why not make full use of the opportunity? I slapped at his blade, and he did that rolling wrist trick the Prince of Arrow used, only better, and took my sword out of my hand. I heard laughter from the doorway. "'Try harder,' Shimon said. I smiled and picked my sword up. This time I moved in quick with a thrust at his body. He did the trick again, but I rolled my wrist with his and kept my blade. "'Better,' he said. I attacked him with short, precise combinations, the moves I had been working on with Makin. He fended me off without apparent effort, replying at the end of each attack with a counterattack that I could barely contain. The rapid clash of metal on metal echoed around the courtyard. I felt the music of steel rise about me. I felt that cold, calm sensation rolling out over my arms, cheeks, the skin of my back. I heard the song. Without thought, I attacked, slicing high, low, fainting, deploying my full strength at precisely the right moments, all of me moving, feet, arms, hips, only my head still. 
I increased the tempo, increased it, and increased it again. At times, I couldn't see my blade or his, only the shape of our bodies, and the necessity of the dance let me know how to move, how to block. The sound of our parrying became like the clickety-click of knitting needles in expert hands. Shimon's hard old face didn't look made for smiling, but a smile found its way there. I grinned like an idiot, sweat dripping off me. Enough! He stepped away. I found it hard not to follow him, to press the attack, but I let my sword drop. There had been a joy in it, in the purity, living on the edge of my blade without thought. My heart pounded and sweat soaked me, but I had nothing of the anger that normally builds even in practice sessions. We had made a thing of beauty. Could you beat me? I asked, pulling in a breath. The old man seemed hardly winded. We both won, boy, he said. If I'd taken a victory, we would have both lost. I took that as a yes, but I understood him. I hoped that I would have had the grace to step back if I saw him weaken. Not to do so would have spoiled the moment. Shimon sheathed his sword. Enjoy your lunch, guardsman, he said. That's it? I asked as he turned to go. No advice? You don't try hard enough at the start, and you try too hard at the end, he said. Hardly technical. You have a talent, he said. I hope you have other talents too. They will probably bring you more happiness. And he went. Unreal, Grayson said when I returned to the table. I've never seen a thing like that. And that was all the time I had to bask in my glory. The bell sounded to let us know lunch had ended, and I got to go back to guarding the lowery gate. The lowery gate nearly broke me. I gave deep consideration to naming myself to my grandfather. In the end, though, I wanted to see how this court worked from the inside, how my relatives went about their lives, who they really were. I guess I wanted a window into my past and not to mucky it up with my own surprises. I slept again in the guardhouse and woke to new duties. Kalasadi didn't appear to have gone to my uncle. I suspected that he thought I would wield some influence once my identity was known, and he didn't want to make an enemy of me. If he didn't let my secret slip, who would know that he ever knew it, and so he would face no censure for not revealing me. My new assignment was as personal guard to Lady Agath, a cousin of my grandfather's who had been living at Castle Morrow for some years. A fat old lady, getting to the point where the weight started to slip from her, as it does with the very old. Live long enough, and we all die skinny. Lady Agath liked to do everything slowly. She paid me no attention other than to moan that my scar was ugly to look at, and why couldn't she have a presentable guard? To the wrinkles brought by her advanced years, she added those that fat people acquire as they start to deflate. The overall effect was alarming, as if she were a shed skin discarded, perhaps, by a giant reptile. I followed her around Castle Morrow at a snail's pace, which afforded me the time to look the place over, at least the part of it lying between the privy, the dining hall, Lady Agath's bedchamber, and the ladies' hall. "'Be still, boy! You're never still!' Lady Agath said. I hadn't moved a muscle for five minutes. I continued the habit and held my tongue. "'Don't be smart with me!' she said. 
Your eyes are always flitting from one thing to the next, never still. And you think too much. I can see you thinking right now. My apologies, Lady Agath, I said. She harumphed, jowls quivering, and settled back in her black lace. Play on, she told the minstrel, a dark and handsome fellow in his twenties, who had a sufficient combination of looks and talent to hold the attention of Agath and three other old noblewomen at one end of the ladies' hall. The ladies' hall appeared to be where horse coast women came to die. For certain, there weren't any ladies there on the right side of sixty. You're doing it again, Lady Agath hissed. My apologies. Go to the wine cellar and tell them I want a jug of wine. Weneth red, something from the south slopes, Lady Agath told me. I'm not supposed to leave you unattended, Lady Agath, I said. I'm not unattended. I have Rialto here. She waved toward the minstrel. I always have my wine from the cellar. I don't know what they do to it in that kitchen, but they ruin it. Leave it open to the air, I guess. And the girls always dawdle so, she remarked to the other ladies. Go, boy, quick about it. I had my doubts as to whether Rialto could protect Lady Agath from an angry wasp, let alone any other threats, but I didn't feel her to be in any danger, and I didn't much care if she was, so I left without complaint. It took me a while to find my way down to the right cellar, but after a few wrong turns, I located the place. You can generally tell a wine cellar by the sturdiness of the door. Second only to the treasury door in the majority of castles. Even the most loyal servants will steal your wine given a quarter of a chance, and they'll piss the evidence over the wall. I had another trip to find the day cook and get him to unlock for me. He sat on a chair positioned by the door and set to chewing on the leg of mutton he'd carried down with him in his apron. Jugs are by the door. Go find what you want. Don't leave the spigot dripping. Wenith reds are at the far end, left corner, marked with a double cross and crown. I lit a lantern from his and ventured in. Watch out for spiders, he said. The smaller brown ones are bad. Don't get bit. When he said small, he made a circle with his finger and thumb that didn't look particularly small. The cellar stretched on for dozens of yards, the wine casks stacked on shelves, most unbroached. The occasional one sat with a spigot. I wound a path along the narrow alleys, squeezing past a loading truck and several empty casks left to trip me. The Wenith red caskets were all sealed, save for an empty one. I suspected most of its contents had swilled through the Lady Agath on their way to the privy. The tools and spare spigots for broaching a new cask weren't apparent. I noted a door, almost concealed, beneath a build-up of grime and mould, behind a stack of emptied barrels. It looked too disused to be a store cupboard, but the need of a mallet and spigot provided a good excuse to have a look behind. I'm an explorer at heart, and I'd come to nose around in any case. What noble folk keep in their cellars and dungeons can tell you a lot about them. My father kept most of my road brothers for torture and execution in his dungeon. I won't say that they didn't deserve it. Harsh but fair. That's what my father's dungeon said about him. Mostly harsh. I had to lift and heave at the same time to get the door to judder across the flagstones, pushing the empties aside. When a gap had opened large enough to admit me, I went in. A spiral staircase led down. The stairs themselves were carved stone, the work of the castle masons. But the shaft down which they led was poured, builder stone. The shaft led down fifty feet or so into the bedrock, 
At the bottom, an archway led into a rectangular chamber dominated by a grimy machine of cylinders, bolts, and circular plates. Glow bulbs provided a weak light. Three of maybe twenty still working, though not as bright as those in the tall castle. I crossed to the machine and ran a hand along one of its many pipes. My fingers came away black, leaving gleaming streaks of exposed silver metal. The whole machine shook with a faint vibration. Little more than heavy footfalls echoing in a stone floor. Go away! An old man stood there, sketched rapidly by an invisible hand. The ghost of an old man, I should say, because only light fashioned him. I could see the machine through his body, and he had no color to his flesh, as if he were made from fog. He wore white clothes, close fitting, of a strange cut, and from one moment to the next, his whole form would flicker, as if a moth had passed before whatever light was projected to create him. Make me, I said. Ha, that's a good one, he grinned. In looks, he could have been brother to Swordmaster Shimon. Most folk just run screaming when I say boo. I've seen my share of ghosts, old man, I said. Of course you have, boy, he said. He looked as though he were humoring me, which was odd, given that he was a ghost himself. How long have you haunted this place, and what manner of machine is this? I asked. It pays to be to the point with ghosts and spirits. They tend to vanish before you know it. I'm not a ghost. I'm a data echo. The man I'm copied from lived another fourteen years after I was captured. How long? And died more than a thousand years ago, he said. You're the ghost of a builder? I asked. It seemed far-fetched. Even ghosts don't last that long. I'm an algorithm. I'm portrayed in the image of Fexler Bruce. My responses are extrapolated from the six terrets of data gathered on the man during the course of his life. I echo him. I understood some of the words. What data? Numbers? Like Kalasadi keeps in his books of trade. Numbers, letters, books, pictures, unguarded moments captured in secret, phrases muttered in his sleep, exclamations cried out in coitus, chemical analysis of his waste. Public presentations, private meditations, polygraphic evidence, DNA samples, data. What can you do for me, ghost? His gibberish meant little to me. It seemed that they had watched him and written his story into a machine. And now that story spoke to me, even though the man himself was dust on the wind. Fexler Bruce shrugged. I'm an old man out of my time. Not even that. An incomplete copy of an old man out of his time. You can tell me secrets. Give me the power of the ancients, I said. I didn't think he would, or my grandfather would already be emperor, but it didn't hurt to try. You wouldn't understand my secrets. There's a gap between what I say and what you can comprehend. You people could fill that gap in fifty years if you stopped trying to kill each other and started to look at what's lying around you. Try me. I didn't like his tone. At the end of it, this thing before me was nothing but a shadow play, a story being told by a machine of cogs and springs. And magic all bound by the secret fire of the builders. What does this do? I tapped the machinery with my foot. What is it for? Fexler blinked at me. Perhaps he had often blinked so, and the machine remembered. It has many purposes, young man, simple ones that you might understand the pumping and purification of water, and others that are beyond you. It is a hub, part of a network without end, a tool for observation and communication. Bunkered away for security. For me and my kind, it serves as one of many windows onto the small world of flesh. Small? 
I smiled. He lived in a metal box, not much bigger than a coffin. Fexler frowned, peevish. I have other things to do. Go and play elsewhere. Tell me this, I said. My world. It's not like the one I read about in the oldest books. When they talk about magic, about ghosts. It's as if they're fairy tales to frighten children. And yet I've seen the dead walk, seen a boy bring fire with just a thought. Fexler frowned, as if considering how to explain. Think of reality as a ship whose course is set, whose wheel is locked in place by universal constants. I wondered if a drink would help with such imaginings. All that wine seemed very tempting. Our greatest achievement and downfall was to turn that wheel just a fraction. The role of the observer was always important. We discovered that. If a tree falls in the wood and no one hears it, it both does and doesn't make a sound. If no one sees it, then it is both standing and not standing. The cat is both alive and dead. Who mentioned a fecking cat? The ghost of Fexler Bruce sighed. We weaken the barriers between thought and matter. I've heard this before, I said. Ferrakind had told me something similar. Could this ghost of a builder share the same madness? The Nuban had spoken of barriers thinning, of the veil between life and death wearing through. The builders made magic, brought it into the world with their machines. There is no magic, Fexler shook his head. We changed the constants, just a little. Strengthened the link between want and what is. Now not only is the tree both fallen and unfallen, if the right man wills it so, with sufficient focus, the fallen tree will stand. The zombie cat will walk and purr. What's a zombie? Another sigh. Fexler vanished and all the lights went out. Even my lantern. I climbed back up the stairs in the dark, got bitten by a spider, and was very late with Lady Agath's wine. Chapter 43. Four years earlier. I came to the Castle Morrow refectory with a swollen hand and a sore head. Spider venom makes your insides crawl and puts illusions at the edge of your vision. Illusions as nasty as you can imagine, and I've been cursed with a good imagination. The house guards and the wall guards tend to agree on very little, but they all agreed I was a dumb northerner and that I probably wouldn't swing a sword quite so fancy for a while. It being Sunday, the cook prepared a special treat for us, snails in garlic and wine, with saffron rice. The snails came from the local cliffs, a big variety as thick as a child's arm. But let's face it, snails are just slugs with a hat on. The main dish looked like large lumps of snot in blood. Why the horse coast is obsessed with eating things that squish, I'm not sure. Already feeling queasy, I tried the rice. Apparently Earl Hansa had bestowed a great honour upon us, saffron being the spice of kings, and trading at silly prices. All I can say is that it tasted of bitter honey to me, and turned my stomach. I took the smallest nibble and decided to go hungry. I slunk off to bed with a heel of bread and fell into vivid dreams. The fact that I was caught sleeping, or rather that I was caught whilst sleeping, I put down to the spider bite, and the truth that if you jumped up swinging at every passerby in a guard's dormitory, you would soon kill off half the castle. I woke with strong hands clasped around my wrists and ankles, and discovered that no amount of struggling was going to stop them dragging me through several corridors, down a flight of stairs, and into a dungeon cell. They had a healthy respect for my ability to do them harm, so in order to retreat in safety, one of them hit me in the stomach as hard as he could, whilst the others stretched me wide for the blow. I heard them running out, and the slam of the door boomed over my retching. 
shouting to be let out always seemed rather silly to me. It's not as if you're going to help the people who put you there to realise that they hadn't meant to do it after all. So I didn't shout. I sat on the floor and wondered. Perhaps Kalasadi had told his secret, and my family weren't amused. Or more likely, my excursion to the builder machine below the wine cellar had been discovered and judged poorly. It took an hour. A face appeared at the small window in the cell door, a foolish move in my opinion, since if I had been so minded, I could have done serious harm to that face with the knife they had left on me. "'Hello, Lord Jost,' I said. I'd met him only for moments before he passed me on to Captain Orton's for the house guard. But he had a pinched face and small dark moustache that was easy to remember. "'William of Ancrath,' he said. He spoke the words slowly, as if having trouble giving them credit. The floor was uncomfortable and quite cold. I felt I might get out of there more quickly if I let him have his say, so I said nothing. "'What poison did you use, William?' he asked. I looked at my hand in the half-light. The spider-bite had turned purple. "'Poison?' I asked. "'I'm not here for games, boy. I'll leave you to rot. If they die before you're ready to talk, then the Earl will hire in Moorish torturers to make an example of you.' The face drew back. Wait! I got to my feet sharpish. I didn't like the sound of Moorish torturers. In fact, it's hard to put any word in front of torturers that doesn't sound unsettling. Tell me what happened, and you'll have the whole truth from me. I swear by Jesus. He turned and walked away. I threw myself to the door, face at the window. I can save them, I lied. But I have to know who was affected. Lord Joss turned, and I thanked whoever it was that invented lying. Every guard on the day shift is falling into delirium, he said. Several have gone blind. And I'm the only one not showing symptoms. So that makes me guilty. You're some kind of assassin, clearly. Probably Oliden of Ancrath's man. If you provide an antidote, I can promise you a quick death. I don't have an antidote, I said. Who would want to poison a whole shift of guards? What poison did you use? You promised the truth, Lord Just said. If I'm an assassin, why would you expect me to keep my promise? And if I'm not, then I can't, can I? Because I didn't do it. Lord Just spat in an unlordly fashion and started to walk off again. Wait! It's got to be Moors, hasn't it? Why would King Oliden want to poison a few guards? He's not going to march an army a thousand miles to knock at your door. The Moors are planning a raid. He turned the corner. I'm not sick because I didn't eat the meal, I shouted after him. The echoes of his footsteps faded away. Because all your food tastes like shit that somebody set fire to, I shouted, and I was alone. The dead baby came to me in the dark, solemn eyes watching, head lolling on a broken neck. For the millionth time, I wondered if I had killed Catherine back there in that graveyard. Was this my child that could never be because I'd murdered his mother? Or just one of the many children whose blood stained my hands? Galeth's children. It had taken a monster to make them real to me. Not a monster in shape. I'd called Gog and Gorgoth monsters. But Chella and I were the real item. Foul indeed, if not form. Why poison the guards? It could be the Moors, but they could hardly take the castle in a single raid and they couldn't poison all her defenders. And it's not wise to give such warning if you're hoping for a fast strike on outlying towns and churches. 
An iron fist clenched around my stomach, taking me by surprise, and I hurled watery vomit across the cell. I fell forward onto my hands. Shit! The darkness kept spinning on me, so I pressed my cheek to the cold stone floor. My scar still burned, as if the splinters lodged in my flesh were kept hot. Maybe I had been poisoned after all, but why would it take longer with me? Not my hardy northern constitution, surely. And I ate almost nothing. A piece of bread. A mouthful of bitter rice. I had to get out. And that's the trouble with dungeon cells. Somebody took trouble to make sure you're not going anywhere. And no amount of wanting will change that. I stood and went to the door. With Lord Jost and his lantern gone, there was almost no light. But something filtered down. Perhaps a whisper of the sun dazzling in the courtyards above if day had swung around. Perhaps an echo of torchlight farther down the corridors they'd dragged me along. In any event, it proved enough for night-tutored eyes to find edges and the occasional detail. I examined the little window in the door. I could fit an arm through it if it weren't for the bars. The wood was three fingers thick, hardwood. It would take a week of whittling with my dagger to make much of a hole. Something scurried behind me. A rat. I can tell rat noises in the dark. I threw my dagger. It used to be a game amongst the brothers. Nail a rat in the dark. Grumlow proved a master of that particular game. We would often wake to find a rat skewered to the sod by one of his blades. Sometimes uncomfortably close to my head. Got you! Being as there was no morning to wait for, I hunted my victim down by hand and retrieved my knife. I went back to the window in its bars. I pushed against them trying to imagine how they would be fixed to the wood. There was no given them. It's funny how often our lives shrink down to a single obdurate piece of metal. A knife edge, a manacle, a nail. Gorgoth might have reached out and twisted those bars off in that blunt hand of his. Not me. I pulled and pushed until my hand bled. Nothing. I sat back down. I thought, thought, and then thought some more. In the end, I went to the window and started hollering for them to let me out. It took a while, long enough for my throat to grow raw and my voice to crack, but in the end, a glow approached, the swinging glow of a lantern. You get one chance to shut your mouth, boy. After that... You're going to shut it for me, I asked, pressed close to the door. Oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you, for me to open the door... I heard about you and Master Shimon. I wouldn't open that door for a gold coin, no. You shut your mouth, or you'll discover you've taken your last drink of water on God's earth. Hey, don't be like that, I'm sorry. I reached up and dropped my watch, so that it fell into the basket made by the window cage. Look, take this, it's worth a hundred coins. Just bring me something good to eat, would you? I crouched low, listening listening. The jailer stepped in to take the bait. And bang! I slid my arm out through the feeding slot at the base of the door, skinning my elbow and caught him behind his ankle. A sharp yank and he fell. I took a firmer grip, hauling his foot toward the slot, but he didn't struggle. Damn! The bastard had hit his head and knocked himself senseless. I'd been planning to reduce the number of his toes with my knife until he offered me his key. It's hard to intimidate an unconscious man. I picked up my dead rat, still warm. There are quite a few uses for a dead rat. I'll go into them at another time. The use I had in mind 
proved difficult. It turned out to be harder to make a dead rat scurry again than it did to set Brother Roe diving in the mud. It's hard to understand a rat, to wear its skin. I almost gave up, but when I focused on hunger, it twitched in my hands. It turns out that being dead doesn't stop a rat thinking about its next meal. Before too long, I had the creature marching to my tune, and I pushed it out through the food slot. In the light of the jailer's lantern, which helpfully he had hung on a hook before reaching for my watch, I sent the rat out searching. I sat in the small blob of rat brain, telling it to gnaw on the thong, holding the ring of keys to the jailer's belt. When the key ring came loose, I had the rat drag it to me. In a truly secure cell, you wouldn't be able to unlock from the inside. But all systems have their flaws. I let the rat die again, and stepped out into the corridor. A free man, after my long hours of incarceration. My stomach clenched, but it didn't feel as if I was dying. A touch light-headed, a touch unclean, but necromancy will do some of that for you, in any case. If I had been poisoned, then whoever did it had done a bad job. I gagged the jailer with strips of cloth and locked him in my cell. Glancing into the other cells along the corridor, it appeared that my grandfather was not the locking-up sort. That meant he was either very keen on executions, or that he ruled with a light touch. Slow steps took me to the jailer's desk, where the ceiling port let the moonlight in. It was late, but perhaps not midnight. I had had some time to think, and I kept thinking. If I were going to poison my enemies, I wouldn't waste my efforts on thirty guardsmen. I'd try to empty the throne and throw the whole place into confusion. But any kind of poisoning is hard to do. Castle kitchens are well watched. The cooks as trusted as the men who shave the royal throat. Fresh provisions are hard to taint. Potatoes, carrots, and the like. Dry provisions are bought incognito and escorted to locked pantries. I left the dungeons. I still wore the household uniform, and the single guard at the exit had been obliging enough to let me knock his head against the wall. Unfortunately, a burned face is hard to hide. You can't present your good side to the whole world. I found a window and took to the rooftops. Sitting against the main chimney stack, legs stretched out across the terracotta tiles of the great hall's roof, I pondered. Not the slugs. Sorry, snails. I didn't partake. So the rice. But poisoning rice? The water and boiling and draining would soak it all away. So the saffron. But that would be purchased from whatever ship next turned up at harbour with stocks on board. How often does a household run out of a spice that costs more per ounce than gold? How many ships carry it? What households other than those of the hundred would buy such luxury in any case? Bundle all those factors together. What would the odds be? What probabilities would emerge? Just thinking about the necessary calculations made my head hurt. Kalasadi. I slid down the slope of the roof, hoping no tiles would come with me. I reached the wide stone gutter and edged across it, looking for a place where it was well supported. Ending my reign as king in a gory splat at the bottom of a seventy-foot drop was no part of my ambitions. I could hear muffled voices from several quarters, the sigh of the ocean, waves lapping the foot of the cliffs, and the relentless buzz and chirp of the night insects that haunt the horse coast. Castle Morrow bakes in the southern sun much of the year. The winters can be ferocious but are rarely cold. There may well be old men in the region who have never seen snow. In consequence, the windows are large and unscreened, the storm shutters heavy and locked open from early spring to late autumn. With a firm grip on the gutter's edge and my left ankle locked under the bottom row of tiles, I hung upside down, 
and looked through a high window into the great hall. The far end of the single long table had been set with silver and crystal. Wall lamps burning smokeless oil gave a welcoming glow. A servant brought in three decanters of wine, two white, one red. Elite house guards in plumed finery stood watch at six points around the hall. The servant left. Minutes passed. The blood ran to my head. My eyeballs began to prickle and itch. My fingers grew numb where they gripped the stonework. I heard noise down in the courtyard below, a quick commotion. I decided not to move. Silence returned. At last the black oak doors opened and two servants stepped through to hold them wide as my uncle walked in, escorting Lady Agath. They took their seats, maids now attending to pull the chairs out and settle the nobility. Two more ladies followed in, old biddies I recognized from the ladies' hall. A young man with a fat gut strode in, wrapped in blue velvet despite the heat. My grandmother, who I saw once at the tall castle, came escorted and supported by a page-boy. She looked unsteady, her hair very white, her skin pale, thin, drawn. Then my grandfather, taking his high-backed chair at the head of the table. Earl Hansa surprised me. He looked only a little older than my father. A solidly built man with a short grey beard and long thick hair still streaked with black. More servants now, bearing covered silver platters. A drop of sweat left my nose and fell away into the darkness. My head felt fuzzy and full of blood. The covers came away in a choreographed move, flourished overhead by the servants and revealing today's delicacies. No snails, no rice. I slid with less grace than I had hoped and swung clumsily into the window, sitting on the ledge and steadying myself with both hands. I very nearly ended up in the unplanned splat. Hanging upside down before attempting acrobatics is not to be recommended. I had hoped to go unnoticed a while longer, but perhaps Lady Agath was the only person in the great hall not to look up. To his credit, while the fat boy jumped to his feet and several of the ladies shrieked, Lord Robert called for the house guard to shield the earl. The earl Hansa himself took a sip from his wine, then called out, I had a grandson named William Ancrath, and I had a brother of that name. I called back. My uncle stood up at that. I released the edges of the window. With a quick motion, I threw my dagger. It stuck the centermost platter, and yellowed slices of potato sprinkled with sea salt and crushed black peppercorns leapt across the table. The spider bite had left my finger joints sore and swollen, and the knife went far closer to one of the old women's ears than I had intended. More shrieks. It's that damnable boy! Lady Agath cried, having finally laid eyes on me. You don't approve of our meal arrangements, nephew? Lord Robert asked. I think if you ate the contents of that platter, I might soon be lacking relatives in the south. In fact, I could even be legal heir to the earldom. You'd better come down here, Jorg, my grandfather said. To my shame, I had to be helped down with a ladder. The drop would have broken my legs, and the inner walls of the great hall were plastered smooth. Clambering down a ladder, arse first, to the room wasn't the most impressive of entrances, but I had just saved their lives. You think our food is poisoned? Grandfather asked. I took a silver fork and speared a slice of the potato. Have Kalasadi brought here, and see if he would like a taste. Lord Robert frowned. Just because we're at odds with Ibn Fayyid doesn't mean all Moors are out to get us. Earl Hansa nodded to the guardsman at his shoulder, and the man set off on errand. Even so, he's guilty, I said, 
and in such a manner that there's no proof other than to see if you will sample a little of your saffron. The saffron? the earl asked. You'll find you've recently had a new consignment come to the kitchens, properly sealed, and kept safe both for its intrinsic value and for your protection. It's probably part of a larger supply that is busy killing rich folk up and down the coast. A seemingly random act of pointless destruction. But I know a man capable of calculating that part of this same consignment would end up on your table, Earl Hansa. A man who also knew my identity and thought I'd make a perfect villain. And that I would accept the blame with the good graces of my line. Dig a deeper hole with your sword, you mean? Lord Robert asked, a slight smile on his lips. For a moment, I wondered if Kalasadi had factored in even my arrival, wondered if I were not some chance victim to pin his crime on, but part of some larger calculation. I pushed that thought aside as both unlikely and unsettling. Our math magician made only one mistake. It's unfair, perhaps, to even call it a mistake. I expect he considered the possibility and decided it remote enough to chance. He didn't think it likely you would let the cooks waste such fine ingredients on mere guards. The man who left on Grandfather's errand returned. Carlisardi's not in his quarters, Earl Hansa, and neither is he in the observatory. It turned out Carlisardi left the castle as soon as news of the guard's sickness reached him. From the Journal of Catherine Apscorin, March 26th, Year 99 Interregnum, Renat Forest, Late Afternoon I had thought I might write about Hannah at her graveside. Sarath says I take this journal everywhere, that I have too little in my life if I can't be without it. People who are truly living, she says, don't need to write about it every minute. They're too busy getting on with real things. But Sarath hasn't left the tall castle in a year, and whilst that baby is sucking the milk out of her, I'm sat in Renat Forest, with monsters. There's an ogre at least ten foot tall with a mouthful of sharp teeth and slit eyes. It glanced my way at first, but now it just stands, carving a chunk of deadfall. Not with a knife, but with a black nail on a finger as thick as my wrist. The second monster is just a little boy, really. A skinny one, but nearly naked and marked with patterns in red and black, like ripples or flames. He scampers from bush to bush, trying to keep hidden, watching me with big black eyes. When he runs, you can see his claws. I'm distracting myself. I don't want to think about what Jorg said. The monster child is called Gog. He says Jorg named him, after those giants in the Bible. I told him there should be a Magog, too. He looked so sad at that, and the forest felt too hot all of a sudden, as if it were the highest of high summers. And what will you be when you grow up, Gog? I asked him, to take his mind from whatever had upset him. I want to be big and strong, he said, to make Jorg happy, and I want to be happy to stop Gorgoth being sad. He looked at the ogre. And what do you want for you? I asked him. He looked at me with huge black eyes. I want to save them, he said, like they saved me. Jorg's men look as though they've never left the road. They're bandits, not a king's retinue. Sir Makin, who they say is a proper knight, is as filthy as the rest. There's dried muck all over his armour, and he stinks like a sewer. He has a way with him, though, even with the dirt. So making as manners, at least. The one they call Red Kent tries to be polite. My lady this and my lady that, bowing at every turn. It's quite comical. When I thanked him for the water he brought me, he blushed from neck to hairline. I think I know how he got his name. 
When he's not waiting on me, Kent spends most of his time whittling, carving away with his back against a tree, and a black knife in hand. It's a wolf he's working on. It looks as though it's climbing out of the wood, snarling at the world. He said he was a woodsman once, a long time ago. And there's a boy, Sim, very delicate features, like that stage player who performed in court last week. He looks kind, but shy. He won't speak to me, but I see him looking when he thinks I can't see. He's the cleanest of all of them. I can't think he would be much of a warrior. Surely he's too slight to swing that sword of his. I know Sir Macon can fight. I remember that he put Sir Galen to the test when Jorg's father set them against each other. Though I think my Galen would have beaten him. Perhaps that's why Jorg pushed over Sagus's tree. To save Sir Macon. The other two, the two Jorg warned Red Kent to watch, are killers through and through. You can see it in their eyes. There's a giant called Reich, who's nearly as tall as the ogre and as broad as a Slav wrestler. He just looks angry the whole time. And there's an old man, maybe fifty, skinny, gristly, with grey stubble on his chin, and as wrinkled as Hannah was. They call him Roe, and he has kind eyes. But there's something about him that says his eyes are lying. And I'm sitting here scratching the paper with my quill to record rogues and vagabonds, because my hand doesn't want to follow where Jorg has gone, or to write what he might be doing, or to frame the words that are pounding through my head. I tried to stab Jorg, but it was like a dream. I both knew and did not know what my hand was doing. I didn't want to hear his pain or see him bleed. I don't recall picking up the knife to take with me. I told myself to stop, but I didn't stop. And now, if I had Friar Glen here, I would want to hear his pain and see him bleed. I would not tell myself to stop, but I would stop, because for the first time in a long while, my head feels clear, my thoughts are all my own. And I am not a killer. March twenty seventh, year ninety nine, interregnum, Renat Forest, before noon, a high wind in the trees. Samakin has been pacing. He doesn't say it, but he's worried about Jorg. We saw a patrol ride by earlier between the fields. They'll be looking for me. Samakin says the more of them looking for me, the fewer for Jorg to worry about in the castle. The big one, the huge one, really, Reich. He's been saying they should go, that Jorg is captured or dead. Kent says Jorg helped them all escape the dungeons, and if he's stuck there in those same dungeons himself, they should go free him. Even Samakin says that's madness. The night was cold and noisy. They gave me their cloaks, but I'd rather be cold than under those stinking, crawling things. Everything moves in the forest at night, creaking or croaking or rustling in dead leaves. I was glad to see the dawn. When I woke up, the boy Sim. Was standing against the tree beside me, watching. Breakfast was stale bread and bits of smoked meat. I didn't like to ask what animal it came from. I ate it. My stomach was grumbling, and I'm sure they could hear. Jorg has come back. His men are more scared now than when they thought he was lost. He's a wild thing. His hair torn and spiky with blood. He won't look at anything. His eyes keep sliding. He can hardly stand. He's got blood on his hands, past his elbows. His nails are torn, two of them missing. Makin told him to sleep, and Jorg just made this terrible sound. I think it might have been laughing. He says he won't sleep again, ever, and I believe him. Jorg keeps moving, fending off trees with his hands, colliding with whatever's in his way. He says he's been poisoned. I can't clean them, he said, 
and he showed me his hands. It looked as though he's rubbed the skin off. I asked him what was wrong, and he said, I'm cracked through and filled with poison. He scares his men, and he scares me too. Of all of us, I'm the one his eyes avoid the most. His eyes are red with crying, but he doesn't cry now. Just a kind of dry, hacking sob. My great-aunt got a madness in her, great-aunt Lucin. She must have been sixty, a small woman, plump. We all loved her. And one day she threw boiling water over our handmaid. She threw the water and then went wild, spouting nursery rhymes and biting herself. Father's surgeon sent her to Thar. He said there was an alchemist there whose potions might cure her. And failing the potions, he had other methods. The surgeon said that this man, Luntar, could take out pieces of a person's mind until what remained was healthy. My great-aunt Lucin came back in a carriage two months later. She smiled and sang and could talk about the weather. She wasn't my great-aunt Lucin anymore, but she seemed nice enough, and she didn't scold any more maids. I don't want that for Jorg. Jorg has told his men to kill me, and some of them seem ready to do it. Wright looks keen, but Sir Macon has said Jorg doesn't know his mind, and they're to leave me alone. Jorg is saying he needs to kill Sarath too. He says it's a kindness. He's insistent. Kent and Macon had to wrestle him to the floor to stop him running back to the castle to do it. Now he's lying in the dirt watching me. He keeps telling me what they do to men in his father's dungeons. It can't be true, any of it. It makes me sick to hear. I can taste vomit at the back of my throat. Jorg soiled himself. Half the time he seems to see something other than the forest about us. He watches nothing, stares with great intent, then screams or laughs without warning. He's been talking about our baby. I still call it ours. It feels better than saying it was Friar Glenn who violated me. He's been saying he killed it, even though it's me that carries that sin, me that will burn for it. He says he killed the baby with his own hands, and now he's crying. He still has tears then. He's bawling, snot, and forest dirt stuck to his face. I held him, Catherine, a soft baby, so small, innocent. My hands remember his shape. I can't hear him speak of this. I have told Sir Macon about Luntar and how to reach Thar. This is what Jorg said when they dragged him away and tied him to his horse. We're not memories, Catherine. We're dreams. All of us. Each part of us a dream. A nightmare of blood and vomit and boredom and fear. And when we wake up, we die. When they led his horse off, he shouted at me. But it seemed more lucid than what he said before. Sagus has poisoned us both, Catherine. With dreams, he puts his hands into our heads and pulls the strings that make us dance, and we dance. None of it was true, none of it. I walked across the fields to the Roma Road and followed it toward the tall castle until soldiers found me and escorted me back. I'll say back. I won't say home. As I walked, Jorg's words ran through my head again and again, as if some of his madness had got inside me. I kept thinking of the dreams I've been having. It seems to me. I've heard Sagus called the Dream Witch before. But somehow that fact faded away, became unimportant. It wasn't that I forgot it, but I stopped seeing it. Just as I stopped seeing that knife I took to stab Jorg with. I'm seeing it now. The heathen has been in my head. I know it. He's been writing stories there, on the inside of my skull, on the backs of my eyes, like he's written on his skin. I will need to think on this, to unravel it. Tonight, I'm going to dream myself a fortress 
and sleep within its walls, and woe betide anyone that comes looking for me there. The soldiers brought me in through the Roma gate into the low city, across the bridge of change, the river running red with sunrise. I knew something awful had happened. All of Crath City held quiet as if some terrible secret were spreading through the alleys like poison in veins. Shutters, open for the dawn, closed as we passed. Up in the tall castle, the dull tone of a bell rang out over and over. The iron bell on the roof tower. I've been up to see it, but it's never rung. I knew it had to be that one, though. No other bell could make such a harsh, flat toll. And in answer, a single deep voice from Our Lady. I asked the soldiers, but they would say nothing, wouldn't even guess. I didn't recognize the men, only their colors. Not castle guards, but army units drafted in for the search. Has he killed his father? I asked them. Has he killed him? We've been hunting for you all night, my lady. We've heard nothing from the castle. The sergeant bowed his head and pulled off his helm. He was older than I had imagined, tired, swaying in his saddle. Best let the news wait to tell itself. A cold certainty gripped me. Jorg had killed Sarath, throttled her for taking his mother's place at Oliden's side. I knew they would take me to her body, cold and white, stretched out in the tomb vaults where the Ancraths lie. I bit my lips and said nothing, only let the horses walk away the distance that kept me from knowing. We came through the triple gate, clattering, hooves on stone, grooms on hand, to take the reins and help me dismount, as if I was some old woman. The iron bell tolled all the while, a noise to make your headache and jaws clench. In the courtyard, someone had lit a myrrh stick, a thick wand of it smoking in a torch sconce by the windlass. If sorrow had a scent, it would be this. We burned them in scorn too, for the dead. From the window arch high above the chapel balcony, between the pulses of the bell, I heard keening, a woman's voice. My sister had never made such cries before, but still I knew her. And the fear that had sunk its teeth into me back at the Roma gate now twisted cold in my gut. The sounds of hurt, as raw and open as any wound, could not be for Oliden. Chapter 44 Four Years Earlier I went to see my grandmother in her chambers. Uncle Robert had warned me that she wore her years less well than grandfather. She's not the woman she was, he told me. But she has her moments. I nodded and turned to go. He caught my shoulder. Be gentle with my mother, he said. Even now, they thought me a monster. Once I'd sought to build a legend to set fear among those who might stand against me. Now I dragged those stories behind me into my mother's home. The maid showed me in and steered me to a comfortable chair opposite the one grandmother occupied. Of all of them, my grandmother had the most of mother in her, something in the lines of her cheekbones and the shape of her skull. She sat hunched with a blanket over her knees, despite the heat of the day. She looked smaller than I remembered, and not just because I was no longer a child. It seemed she had closed on herself after her daughter's death, as if to present a smaller target to a world grown hostile. I remember you as a little boy. The man before me I don't know at all, she said. Her eyes moved across me, seeking something familiar. When I see my reflection, I feel the same thing myself, Grandmother. And the box at my hip, in a velvet pocket now, felt too heavy to carry. I don't know me at all. 
We sat in silence for a long minute. I tried to save her. I would have said more, but words wouldn't come. I know, Jorg. The distance between us fell away then, and we spoke of years past, of times when we were both happier, and I had my window onto the world that I'd forgotten. And it was good. And by and by, when I sat beside her feet, knees drawn to my chest, hand clasping wrist before them, that old woman sang the songs my mother had played long ago, as she had played them in the music room of the tall castle, on the black keys and the white. Grandmother put words to music I remembered but couldn't hear, and we sat as the shadows lengthened and the sun fell from the sky. Later, when comfortable silence had stretched into something that convinced me she had fallen asleep, I stood up to go. I reached the door without creak or scrape, but as my hand touched the handle, Grandmother spoke behind me. Tell me about William. I turned and found her watching me with sharper eyes than before, as if a chance wind had stirred the curtains of age and showed her as she once was, strong and attentive, if only for a moment. He died. It was all I could find to say. William was an exceptional child. She pursed wizened lips and watched me, waiting. They killed him. I met you both. You're probably too young to recall. She looked away to the hearth, as if staring at the memory of flames. William, there was something fierce in that one. You have a touch of it too, Jorg. Same mix of hard and clever. I held him, and I knew that if he let himself love me or anyone else, he wouldn't ever give it up. And if someone crossed him, that he would be unforgiving. Maybe you were both bound to be a bit like that. Maybe that's what happens when two people so strong and yet so utterly different from each other make children. When they broke him, the lightning had shown him to me in three quick flashes as they carried him. One frozen moment had him staring at the thorns into the heart of the briar, looking at me. No fear in him. The second, and he was scooped up by his legs. The third, dashed against that milestone, scarlet shards of skull among blonde curls. My little emperor, mother used to call him. The blonde of that line, in a court filled with Stuart Dark Ancraths. Broke who, dear? William, I said, but the years had settled on her again. And she saw me through too many days. You're not him, she said. I knew a boy like you once, but you're not him. Yes, grandmother. I went and kissed her brow then and walked away. She smelled of mother, the same perfume, and something in her scent stung my eyes, so I could hardly find the door in the gloom. They gave me a chamber in the east tower, overlooking the sea. The moon described each wave in glimmers, and I sat listening to the sigh of the waters long into the night. I thought again of the music my mother played, and that I remembered in images, and never heard. I saw her hands move across the keys as always, the shadow of her arms, the sway of her shoulders, and for the first time in all the years since we climbed into that carriage, the faintest strain of those silent notes reached me, fainter and more elusive than the sword song. But more vital 
more important. Two days passed before the Earl Hansa summoned me to his throne room, a chamber built against the hind wall of the castle, where a great circle of builder glass offers the middle sea to gaze upon in all its ever-changing shades. I faced the old man, my back to the distant waves, the setting sun edging each with crimson, and with the faint crash of their breaking, ready to underwrite any silence. We stand in your debt, Jorg. My grandfather said. Actually, it was my uncle who stood, at the right hand of grandfather's throne, whilst the old man sat ensconced in his whalebone seat. We're family, I said. And what is it your family can do for you? Earl Hansa may have been my mother's father, but he was shrewd enough to know young men don't cross half a continent just to visit old relatives. Perhaps we can do things for each other. In troubled times, being able to call on military help can make the difference between life and death. It may be that this Ibn Fayed becomes more of a threat, and the day comes when the men of the Highlands stand side to side with the House Morrow to oppose him. It may be that my own position is threatened, and my grandfather's troops or horse could be evaded. Are you threatened now? Grandfather asked. No, I said. I'm not here in desperation. Begging, I'm looking for a strategic alliance, something to span years. Our lands are very far apart," he said. "That may not always be so." I allowed myself a smile. I had plans for growth. It seems strange that you come so far when your father's armies stand mere days from your gates. The earl ran his tongue over his teeth as if he tasted something rotten. My father is an enemy I will face in the field of battle in due course," I said. The earl slapped his thigh. "Now that's the kind of alliance I could get behind." He watched me for a moment. The laughter leaving him. "You are your father's son, Jorg. I won't lie. It's hard to trust you. It's hard for me to speak of sending my people to fight and die on foreign soil for Oliden's boy." It would pain him to hear you call me that," I said. Lord Robert leaned in and whispered in his father's ear. "If you would bind your fate with mine, Jorg, then we need stronger bonds. Lady Agath is dear to your grandmother and me. Her son rules in Weneth, and he has two daughters, small girls now, but they'll be ready for marrying soon enough. On the day you wed one of them, my soldiers will be ready to fight in your cause." The earl settled back in his throne with a grin. "What say you, Jorg?" Uncle Robert asked, also smiling. I spread my hands. "I do." Robert nodded to a knight at the door, who drew it open and spoke to a servant beyond. The jaws of the trap closed around me. Birds had flown in the two days since Kalasadi fled. Replies returned. Carriages had set out. Calumdine, Lord of Weneth, third of the name," the herald called out, sweating in his silks, "and the Lady Miana." A stout man, short with thin grey hair, marched in, near as old as grandfather. He wore a plain white robe and might have passed as a simple monk, but for the heavy linked chain of gold looped about his neck and down across his chest, a ruby bigger than a pigeon's egg hung from the chain. Lady Miana trailed in his wake, 
a child of eight years, bundled into crinoline and crushed velvet, wide-eyed, red-faced in the heat, a rag doll clutched tight in both hands. The Lord of Weneth strode right up to me without preamble, craning his neck to look me up and down, as if examining a suspect horse. I resisted the urge to show him my teeth. Plump and grey and old he might have been, but he had a look about him that said he knew his business. He knew men well enough, and the notion of putting his child in my marriage bed pleased him as little as it did me. He leaned in close to share some confidence, or threat, not meant for any ears but mine. As he moved forward, the ruby swung out on its chain, catching the dying rays of the sun. It seemed to hold them, burning at its heart, and that light woke something in my blood. Heat rose through me as I fought to keep my hands from reaching for the gem. "'Listen well, Ancrath,' Callum Dean of Wenneth said, and the ruby swung back against his chest, ending further conversation. He gave a cry of pain and jerked away, a charred patch smouldering on his robes beneath the stone. While guards hastened to Wenneth's side and Grandfather called for servants, the child approached me. "'King Jorg?' she said. "'Lady Miana.' I went down on one knee to be level with her, turning my face so as not to scare her with my burns. "'And how is your dolly called?' I'd little enough experience with children, but it seemed a safe enough opening. She looked down in surprise, as if she hadn't known the toy was there. "'Oh,' she said. "'That's not mine. I'm near grown. It's Lolly's, my sister's.' The shape of her mouth told the lie. It tasted sour to her. Her first words to me, and already I'd made a liar of her. If we ever wed, it would be the least of my crimes. I would be the ruination of her life, this little girl with her ragdoll. If she had any sense, she would run. If I had any decency, I would make her. But instead, I would lie to her father, smile, be for the moment whatever man he needed me to be and all for the promise of heavy horse, of five hundred riders on the horse coast's finest steeds. A friar from the Morrow Chapel helped Lord Weneth from the throne room with the aid of a guardsman. Miana trailed after them. She paused and turned. Remember me, she said. Oh, I will, I nodded, still kneeling. A proud day like this would stay with me forever, if I let it. I gave her my smile. I won't let your memory go, Miana. I've somewhere to keep it in, nice and safe. On the next day, Callum Dean and I finished our negotiations. He didn't bring his ruby to the discussion, but promised it as Miana's dowry. And on that very same evening, I found out how to squeeze an unwanted memory from my mind and set it into Luntar's copper box. All I kept of Miana was her name, the fact I was to marry her, and that half a thousand cavalry would one day come in answer to my call. The remaining time I spent at Castle Morrow, and my journey back to the Highlands, a tale's best kept for another day. Before I left, though, in fact, on the day after my engagement, I took myself back to the room beneath the wine cellar, this time with permission. My uncle called it the Grouch Chamber. The machine appeared to have only three tasks. Firstly, to keep alive a number of glow bulbs dotted around the oldest parts of the castle. Secondly, to suck seawater from beneath the cliffs and turn it into pure drinking water, for the fountains around the courtyards, and finally to allow the grouch, Fexler Bruce, to enjoy a kind of half-life in which he generally poured scorn on the ignorance of the living, pitied our existence, and moaned about the things he left unfinished in his own. Go away! 
Fexler appeared the moment I entered the chamber and repeated his previous greeting. Make me, I said again. Ah, the young man with the questions, Fexler said. I was a young man with questions once upon a time, you know. No, you weren't. You're the echo of a man who was. You were never young, only new. And what is your question? he asked, scowling. Can you end your existence? I asked. Not everyone seeks an end, boy. You think I seek my end? All young men are a little in love with death. I would be more than in love with it if I'd spent a thousand years in a cellar. It has been trying, Fexler admitted. Are you even allowed to want to end yourself? I asked. You're obsessed with death, child. You didn't answer the question, I said. I'm not allowed to answer the question. Complicated. I stepped back and sat on the bottom stairs. So, what can you do for me? I can give you three questions. Like a genie, I said. Yes, but they give wishes. Two left. That was an observation, not a question, I cried. I chewed my lip. Do you swear to give full and honest answers? No. Two left. Damn it. Tell me about guns, I said. No. One left. Point me at the single most useful and portable piece of builder magic in this chamber, I said. Fexler shrugged and then pointed to what looked to be one of the valves on the blackened machine. I moved to examine it. Not a valve, something else. A ring set in a depression. It's hardly portable. Twist it, he said. I cleaned the area with my sleeve. A silver ring about three inches across topped a stubby cylindrical projection. Shallow grooves around the edge offered some traction. I twisted it. It proved extremely stiff, but with the bones in my hand creaking, I managed to turn the ring. Nothing happened. I twisted again, easier this time. Again, I spun it several times, and the ring came loose in my hand. Pretty, I said. Look through it, Fexler suggested. I held it to my eye, nothing for a second. Then an image overwrote my vision. A blue circle swirled with white patterns, intricate, infinitely detailed. For some reason, it put me in mind of Alaric's snow globe. It's wonderful, I said. What is it? Your whole world, seen from a little over twenty thousand miles above the ground. That's a ways to fall. What are all the white swirls? Weather formations. Weather? It seemed incredible that I might be seeing clouds from above rather than below. And over such reaches that their whole cycle and design lay revealed. Whether from when? From your day? From today? From now? This isn't just a painting. You're seeing the world as it happens. Your world, Fexler said. I shifted my grip on the ring and I plunged, or felt that I did, racing down and to the left, like an eagle diving. A small curl at the end of one vast cloud swell now filled my vision. And I could see land far below, a sparkling thread wove across the greens and browns. I stumbled, but managed to keep my feet. I can see a river. An old instinct bit in. Suspicion drew the ring and its visions from my eye. Why? Why? he asked. I spun the ring between finger and thumb. Beware of ghosts bearing gifts, they say. You'll find that's Greeks, but the principle is sound. Fexler frowned. You're carrying something that interests me. And as it turns out, you're more than you seem. It's not every day a battleground walks down my stairs. 
battleground. You're a nexus for two opposing forms of energy, young man. One dark, one light. I have technical terms for them, but dark and light serve well enough. Given a little more time, they'll tear you apart, quite literally. It's an exponential process. The end will be sudden and violent. And you know this because, my gaze returned to the ring. A lesson in life, Jorg. Whatever you look into can look back into you. The ring has scanned your brain in quite minute detail. My jaw clenched at that. The idea of being measured, being classified, did not appeal. But that's something unexpected you discovered, not what you were looking for. You know what I was looking for? Vexler smiled. Perhaps you'd be good enough to set the ring to it for me. I pulled out my little box of memories. Today it seemed to tremble in my hand. The view ring clunked against it, as if both were lodestones drawn by mutual attraction. For a moment, Vexler's image pulsed more brightly. Interesting, he said. Crude but clever, remarkable even. Box and ring fell apart, done with each other. Vexler fixed me with an intense stare. I can help you, boy. Fire and death have their hooks deep in you. Call it magic. It isn't, but this will go easier if we say it is. Your wounds anchor the enchantments. Both of them trying to pull you into the domains from which they spring. Alone, either one would draw you down in time, make something different of you, something no longer human. You understand me? I nodded. Ferrakind and the dead king waited for me in separate hells. Fexler's gaze settled on the box, clenched tight in my hand. All that saves you is that these forces are in opposition. Soon enough, though, that opposition will rip you open. He waited for me to speak, to beg or entreat his aid. I held my tongue and watched him. I can help, he said. How? He flashed a nervous grin. It's done. I've bound both forces through that interesting little box of yours. It's far stronger than you are. It may hold indefinitely, and while it holds, the process should be halted. Neither power should be able to get a better grip on you, or able to pull you any further into their domain. And what is it you want for this gift? I asked. Fexler fended the question off with an irritable wave. Just remember this, Jorg of Ancrath. Do not open that box. Open it, and my work is undone. Open it, and you're finished. The box glinted as I turned it in my hand. Pandora had one of these. I looked up for Fexler to share the joke, but he had gone. Several silent minutes passed, alone in the cellar, weighing box and ring in my hands. I had tickled far more than three answers from the ghost, but had a thousand more questions than when I started. Come back! I sounded foolish. The ghost did not return. I put the ring in my pocket. Interesting or not, it seemed odd that the grouch had favoured me above the others that visited him. Uncle Robert never mentioned a gift of any kind, nor any really meaningful answers to questions. Fexler wanted something from me, something personal. That last nervous grin of his said it. He might be dead a thousand years, might be a builder, or just the story of a builder in a machine of cogs and magic. But before all that, he was a man. And I knew men. He wanted something, something he couldn't take, but that he thought I could give. I wondered, despite his mocking, if death held an allure for the ghost too. We aren't meant to live forever, nor dwell in solitude. A life without change is no life.
the spirit beneath Mount Honus, agreed with me. Maybe the only way Fexler Bruce had to tell me so was to offer me his gift, and to hope that I would help him. He wanted something, that much was sure. Everyone wants something. I would have to think on it. The machine made Fexler. Grandfather would not thank me for destroying his source of fresh water, and neither would the men who would have to pump the fountains thereafter. Gone or not, though, Fexler, Bruce, and I were not finished with each other. I spoke with my uncle on the night of that visit to Fexler's cellar. We sat in the observatory tower with an earthenware jug of wine that looked old enough to have been excavated from a pharaoh's tomb, and two silver goblets chased with rearing horses. A cool wind sighed through the arches, and a bright dust of stars covered the black sky. Your mother used to come here when we were children, Robert said. She taught us the star names, I said, though William was young for it. He could only ever find the dog star and the pole star. I saw Will pointing, arms stretched out, as if to touch each star, finger questing. Sirius and Polaris. Robert sipped his wine. I can't remember much more. Rowan had the mind for it. In some twins, the gifts are not shared out evenly. She got the brains and the looks. I got a knack with horses. I got a knack with killing. The wine ran over my tongue, its flavor dark and layered. More than that, surely. Robert pointed out a constellation through the window arch. What's that one? Orion. I stood and stepped to look out. Beetlejuice, Rigel, Bellatrix, Mintica, Alnilum, Alnitak, Saif. I named the giant's parts. Did you feel her die? Are twins like that? No. He stared into his goblet. Perhaps. He set the wine before him. Perhaps it was like that for her. When I got trapped against Crab Cliff by the spring tide, Rowan knew where to bring the guard with ropes. We were just children, not even ten years old, but she knew somehow. Another talent that didn't split even between us. I watched, half resentful that he had so many years with her. She was my mother, and yet everything about her escaped me. A little more each day, sand through fingers. I couldn't draw her face, tell you the color of her eyes, or any concrete thing, just angles, glimpses, moments, the scent and softness of her, the security she gave, and the night when I learned it to be a lie. I went to the grouch chamber this morning, I said. The builder's view ring hung on a thong about my neck, under the tunic Robert's dresser had given me. I considered drawing it out to show him, but didn't. Habits learned on the road die hard. I had laid hands on it, and it was mine. I would keep my advantage hidden. The metal weighed heavy over my heart. Perhaps guilt feels like that. All that dust and spiders, just to have an old ghost tell you to go to hell? My uncle sipped his wine. I used to go down a few times a year. But the grouch never changes, and in the end, I did. Do you know what the machinery does? I asked. Who knows what any of that devilry is for? It pumps water. I understand that much. But they say everything the builders made did ten different things. My father has left it alone for sixty years. His father left it untouched, and his father before him. It's from a world best forgotten. Galath should have taught you that. My wine tasted sour. The light of that builder's sun reached even here into a summer's night on the horse coast. He was wrong in any case. The builders weren't gone, 
we couldn't forget them. Their ghosts echoed in machinery, buried in our vaults. Their eyes watched us from above clouds. We fought our little wars in their shadow. Perhaps we even waged those wars at their instigation. Something to keep us busy, to have us too focused on the now, to think about the then. Geleth taught me a lot of things. That we're children in a world we don't own or understand. That we stand alone, and whether I fail or succeed depends on the strength of my will. On how far I will go. And that no one will come to help us in our hour of need. And that some things can't be fixed, even if you bring the sun to earth and crumble mountains. I thought of Geleth, of the ghosts Chella drew from me. Since the night of storm and thorns, I'd been haunted by what others had done to me. Geleth taught me I could also be haunted by what I'd done to others. The dead child watched me, broken against the tower battlements. Blood and hair, a reminder of William and the milestone, his eyes two bright points of starlight. Another ghost, another misfortune, seeking a home. You never came. I thought you would come for me. In my mind, I had seen Uncle Robert ride to the tall castle a hundred times, with the cavalry of the house morrow streaming behind him, to demand an accounting for his sister's death, to claim his nephew and take him home. If morrow had ridden to avenge mother's death, there would have been no Galath. No years on the road, no rivers of blood, no dead child watching. Robert studied his goblet. You fled Ancrath before news of Rowan's death even reached us here. Oliden was slow to send word, and the word was slow to find its way. But you didn't come! Old anger ignited within me, and I went quickly to the stair in case it boiled out. I had climbed the steps a king, a man pressing fifteen years, and now a hurt and wrathful child shouted through me, through the years. Jorg! No! The hand I raised to keep him in his seat shook with the fierceness of what I held back, and the air seemed to shimmer with heat. I hadn't known the memories would seize me like this. I ran from the tower, scared that I might find the blood of a second uncle on my hands. We calmed the hurt between us the next morning, but with pleasantries and empty words of the kind that are layered over rather than used to scour clean. I didn't let him speak of it again. Instead, I spoke of Ibn Fayyad and of Kala Sadi. I had been to considerable lengths to get an accounting for Mother's death and for William's. And yet here were two men who had come within moments of taking mother's whole family from me. Uncle, grandmother, grandfather. What's more, the math magician had, with a cool head, seen through my secret, and chosen to take them all before they even knew I was amongst them. To kill with poison all my mother's kin, and to see me die for it under horrible restitution. There seemed no malice in it, only calculation. But I couldn't leave such an equation unbalanced. It wouldn't be proper. Robert tried to turn me from revenge. Ibn Fayyad will come to us in time and break his strength here. That will be the time for his accounting. But I had more immediate plans. Revenge can be the easy path to follow. Though I have often painted it as the hardest. I left for the last time months later. Suntanned, taller, provisioned and laden with gifts. My saddlebags bulged with them, tempting enough for any bandits I might meet. I kept what mattered most about my person. The thorn-patterned box, the builder's viewing, and the weapon that killed Fexler Bruce more than nine hundred years previously. A hard and heavy lump strapped beneath my arm. I've always seen no as a challenge, rather than an answer.
Above those treasures, though, I left with a message. A mantra, if you like. Do not open that box. Open it, and my work is undone. Open it, and you're finished. Never open the box. You won't see Brother Grumlow try to knife you. Only the sorrow in his eyes as you fall. Chapter 45 Wedding Day The crash of a rock against the keep wall drowned me out. A shield fell off its hook and clattered to the floor. Dust sifted down from above. The gate will not hold, I said again. Then we will fight them in the courtyard, Sir Hebron said. I chose not to mention that he had surrendered to me in the same courtyard four years earlier, with just Gog and Gorgoth at my back, rather than the Prince of Arrows fourteen thousand men. If Codin were present, he would have spoken of surrender himself, not out of fear, but compassion. Perhaps he might say that when we fell back to the keep, he would call out for terms, so that the common folk sheltering at the haunt might be spared. But Codin wasn't present. The dead child watched me from a shadowed corner, older and more sad with each passing year. At the corner of my vision he seemed to speak, but if I looked his way he said nothing, blue lips pressed tight. What man can hope for victory when his doom watches from every shadow? He was nothing but mine, this ghost, no trick of cellas, no sending of the dead king, just a sad and silent reminder of a crime even Luntar's little box couldn't keep entirely secret. Another crash, and I looked away from the corner, shaking off the moment. The knights and captains watched me, the light from high windows gleaming on their armour. These men were built for war. I considered how many of them I would sacrifice to stop the Prince of Arrow, how many I would sacrifice just to wound Arrow, just to put a bigger hole in his army. The answer turned out to be, all of them. When they come, we'll fight them in the courtyard, and through the doors of the keep, and up each stair, and to this very room if need be. My cheek throbbed where I'd sliced it, aching at each word. I ran my fingers across the line of black and clotted blood. Sir Makin, Sir Kent, I want you leading the defence at the gate. I want everyone in this room out there. They started for the door. Kent stopped. Sir Kent, he said. Don't let it go to your head, I said, and don't expect a ceremony. Kent made a slow shake of his head. I could see his eyes shine. I hadn't thought it would mean much to him. Take the scorpions from the walls and set them in the yard. Put them front and centre. You'll get one shot, and then there'll just be a barricade, I said. And Makin, get some armour on. The horned had five scorpions, giant crossbows on wheels that could send a spear four hundred yards. Line enough men in front of them, and you might get something like the chunks of meat on skewers served at table in Castle Morrow. Not you, Miana. Stay, I said as she made to follow the knights. And Lord Jost, I added, I am depending on your help. Everything is in place. Lord Jost set his conical helm on his head and flicked the chainmail veil out over the back of his neck. He looked from me to Miana. Our alliance requires that the union be sealed, King Jorg. I threw my hands up. Christ bleeding! You saw us married! It's the middle of the day, and we're fighting a pitched battle! Even so. No room for negotiation on that pinched face. He turned to follow Sir Makin. Your grandfather knows the blood of both your parents runs in you, sire. I cannot act until the alliance is complete.
and that left me on my throne in an echoingly empty room with Miana in her wedding whites and two guards at the door watching their feet. Crap! I jumped up and took her hand, leading her to the door. It felt like taking a child for a walk. I brushed past the guards and hurried to the east tower staircase. Miana had to hitch her skirts and half run to keep up as I took the steps two and three at a time. A hefty kick sent my chamber doors slamming open. Out! I shouted, and several maids ran past me, clutching cloths and brushes. I think they'd been hiding rather than cleaning. Lord Jost requires that I remove your virginity from you, I said to Miana, or the house morrow can't support me. I hadn't meant to be quite so blunt, but I felt angry, awkward even. Miana bit her lip. She looked frightened but determined. She reached for the dress ties at her side. Stop, I said. I've never liked being pushed, not in any direction. Miana looked well enough, and twelve isn't so young. I was killing at twelve, but some women bloom early, and some late. She may have had the mind of a she-pirate, but she looked like a child. You don't want me, she faltered. Now she added hurt and angry to frightened and determined. I've observed on the road that it's old men who like young girls. Brother Roe and Brother Lyre would chase the young ones, younger than Miana. Brother Sim and I had always admired experience, the fuller form. So no, I didn't want her, and being told to have something you don't want, rather like being told to eat spiced squid, when what you want is beef and potatoes, will kill your appetite. Any kind of appetite. I don't want you right now, I said. It sounded more politic than calling her spiced squid. I put my hand to the back of my left thigh. It was throbbing like a bastard after the run up the stairs. I'd opened a wound I didn't remember taking. I think perhaps I did it falling into the cave just before the avalanche. Six thousand men dead for a morning's work, and I come away with a self-inflicted wound in the arse. My fingers came back bloody. Four quick steps took me to the bed. I threw back the covers. Miana flinched like I'd hit her. I wiped my hand over the clean linen, squeezed my leg wound again, and repeated the process. There, I said. Does that look like enough? Miana stared. I never... It'll have to do. It looks like enough to me. Damned if I'm bleeding more than that. I ripped the sheet from the bed and thrust it out through the window bars, noting two spent arrows on the floor that must have looped in from the ridge earlier in the day. I tied the sheet to one of the bars and let the wind flutter it out so all the world could see I'd made a woman of Miana. Speak a word of this to anyone, and Lord Jost will insist we do it on the high table in the feast hall with everyone watching, I said. She nodded. Where are you going? She asked as I made for the door. Down. Fine, she said. She sat on the bed with a slight bounce. Her feet didn't touch the floor. I set my hand to the door handle. But they'll sing songs about quick jog for years to come. Fast with one sword, faster with the other, she said. I took my hand off the door handle, turned, and walked back to the bed. Defeated. What would you like to talk about? I asked, sitting beside her. I've met Orion of Arrow, and his brother Egan, too, she said. So have I. Remembering how that sword fight ended still gave me a headache. And where did you meet them? They came to court in my father's castle in Weneth, on one of their grand tours of the Empire. Orin had his new wife with him. She watched me for a reaction. Someone had been talking to her. Catherine. I reacted anyway. It wasn't as if being married to a child would end my fascination with women. 
this one in particular. And what did you think of the prince? I wanted to ask about Catherine, not Orin and his brother, but I bit down on the urge, not to save me on his feelings, but in disgust at the weakness even mention of Catherine put in me. Orin Avaro struck me as the finest man I'd ever met, Miana said. Clearly she had no compunction to save my feelings either. His brother Egan, too full of himself, I felt. Father said as much, the wrong mix of weak and dangerous. Orin, though, I thought he would make a fine emperor and unite the hundred in peace. Didn't you ever consider just swearing to him when the time came? I met her gaze, shrewd dark eyes that had no place in a child's face. The truth was that I'd thought many times what I would do if Orin of Arrow came back to the haunt, regardless of whether he brought an army with him or not. I didn't doubt not one person would find me better suited to the Emperor's throne than Orin, and yet without my say-so thousands had been prepared to bleed to stop him. To get somewhere in life you have to walk over bodies, and I'd paved my way with corpses and more corpses. Geleth burned for my ambition. It still does. I considered it. Miana started, surprised when I spoke. She had thought I wasn't going to answer. There might have been a time I could have served as steward to Orin's emperor, might have let my goat herds and his farmers go about their lives in peace. But things change, events carry us with them, even when you think you're the one leading, calling out commands. Brothers die, choices are taken away from us. Catherine is very beautiful, Miana said, lowering her gaze for once. Screams from outside, the hiss of arrows, a distant roar. Have we been at this long enough? I hadn't asked about Catherine, and I had a battle to fight. I made a stand from the bed, but Miana put her hand to my thigh, half nervous, half bald. She reached for her dress again, and I thought that there might have been more determination than fear in her. But she wasn't unlacing. She pulled out a black velvet bag, dangling from its drawstring, big enough to hold an eyeball. My dowry, she said. I hope for something bigger, I smiled and took it. Isn't that my line? I laughed out loud at that. Somebody poured an evil old woman into a little girl's body and sent it to me with the world's smallest dowry. I tipped the bag's contents into my hand, a single ruby, the size of an eye, cut by an expert, and with a red star burning at its heart. Nice, I said. It felt hot in my hand. It made my face burn where the fire had scarred me. It's a work of magic, Miana said. A fire mage has stored the heat of a thousand hearths in there. It can light torches, boil water, heat a bath, make light. It can even make a spot of heat sufficient to join two pieces of iron. I can show you. She reached for the gem, but I closed my hand around it. Now I know why fire sworn like rubies, I said. Be gentle, Miana said. It would be unwise to break it. In the moment that my fingers met around the gem, a pulse of heat ran through me, like a shock burning up my arm. For an instant I saw nothing but the inferno, and it seemed I felt Gog's sharp hands on my sides. As if he sat behind me on breath once more, as he had for so many days in that spring long ago. I heard his high voice, almost like mother's music, trying to reach me from too far away. Something lit at my core, and the flow of fire reversed, raging unseen down my arm into the gem. A sharp splintering noise sounded from the ruby, and I released it with a cry. Miana caught it. Quick hands, this one. I expected her to scream and drop the gem, but it lay cool in her palm. She placed it on the bed. I stood. It's a worthy dowry, Miana. 
you will be a good queen for the Highlands. And for you? she said. I walked to the window. The ridge where the prince's archers had arrayed themselves was still in confusion. The trolls would have retreated to their cave defences, but no man wants to be lining up a shot whilst worrying that a black hand is going to twist his head off any second. And for you? she repeated. That's hard to say. I took the copper box from my hip pouch. I had sat before this window the previous night and watched the box. A goblet, the box, a knife. Drink to forget, open to remember, or slice to end. It's hard to answer you if I don't know who I am. I held the box before my eyes. Secrets. I filled you with secrets, and there's one last secret left, blacker than the rest. Some truths should perhaps be left unsaid, some doors unopened. An angel once told me to let go of the ills I held too close, to let go of the flaws that shaped me. What remained of me might have been forgiven, might have followed her into heaven. I told her no. The rockslide, avalanche, the trolls, none of them mattered. Arrow's army would still crush us. To fight so hard and not even come close to victory, that had a bitter taste. I'd faced death before with odds as slim, but never as a broken man. Some piece of me locked away in a little box. Luntar in his burning desert had done what the angel couldn't. He'd taken me from me and left a compromise to walk about in Jorg Ankrath's shoes. Do not open that box. The dead boy watched me from the corner of the room as if he had always stood there, waiting silent day after silent day for this moment to meet my eyes. He stood pale but without wounds, unmarked save for handprints, fish belly white on his skin like the scars Chella's dead things left on Gog's little brother long ago. Open it, and my work is undone. I turned the box, letting the thorn pattern catch the light. Damn Lunta, and damn the dead child too. When I faced Arrow's legions for the last time, I would do it whole. Open it, and you're finished. My hands didn't shake on the metal. For that, I was grateful. I opened it wide, and with a quick motion twisted the lid off, flicking it out past the crimson flutter of the sheet. Never open the box. Fraglen's chamber once again, lit by the heathen's glow. The need to kill him fills my hands immediately. There was blood and muck, Sagus says. He smiles. Saramwick's poisons will do that. But there was no child. I doubt there ever will be now. That old witch's poisons are not gentle. They scrape a womb bare. I find the blade, and I'm moving toward him. I try to run, but it's like wading through deep snow. Silly boy, you think I'm really here? He makes no move to escape. I try to reach him, but I'm floundering. I'm not even in this city, he says. Peace enfolds me, a honeyed dream of sunlight, fields of corn, children playing. I wade through it, though each step feels like betrayal, like the murder of friends. You think I'm like you, Jorg? He shakes his head and shadows run. Thirst for revenge has dragged you across kingdoms, and you think me driven by your crude imperatives. I'm not here to punish you. I don't hate you. I love all men equally. But you have to be broken. You should have died with your mother. Sagus's fingers stray to the lettering on his throat. 
it was written. And as I reach him, he's gone. I stumble into the corridor, empty. I close the door, using my metal strip to drop the latch. Friar Glenn will have to pray for help. I don't have time for him now, and even through the layers of Sages's lies and dreams, I hold the suspicion that he's guilty of something. Catherine didn't bring me to the tall castle, and certainly neither did Friar Glenn. I didn't turn right where the road forked from the Ken Marshes just to visit my dog's grave. I came to see family, and now I need to be quick about it. Who knows what dreams Sages might send this way? Sim taught me about moving quietly. It's not so much about noise. The art is to be always on the move, heading somewhere with purpose. Any hesitation invites a challenge. On the flip side, if there can be no possible reason for your presence, then utter stillness can hide you, even in plain sight. The eye may see you, but if you are stone, the mind may discount you. You there! Hold fast! Eventually all tricks will fail, and someone will challenge you. Even at this point, they will find it hard to believe you're an intruder. The minds of guards are especially dull, blunted by a career of tedium. Your pardon? I cup a hand to my ear. If you're challenged, pretend not to hear. Move closer, lean in. Be quick as you set your hand over their mouth. Palm flat to lips, so there's no edge to bite. Press them back against a wall if there is one. Stab in the heart. Don't miss. Hold their eyes with yours. It gives them something to think about besides making a noise, and nobody wants to die alone in any case. Let the wall help them to the ground. Leave them in shadow. I leave the dead man behind me. A second dies at the end of the next hall. You! This one rounds a corner with sword in hand, almost knocking me down. Sharp hands. That's what Grumlow said to me. Sharp hands. It's his tutorial in knife work. A sword's all about the swinging, the thrust, the momentum, timing your move against that of your foe. A man with a knife is a man with sharp hands. Nothing more. A knife fight is a scary thing. That's when men jab and faint, posture, run. Grumlow says the only thing to do is go in fast. Go in fast. Kill him quick. I go in fast. His sword falls on the long rug and doesn't clatter. Around the corner is the door I'm seeking. Locked. I take the key from the guard's belt. The door opens on oiled hinges, silent. The hinges never squeak on a nursery door. Babies fight sleep hard enough as it is. The wet nurse is snoring in a bed by the window. A lantern glows on the sill, its wick trimmed low. The shadows of the cot bars reach for me. I should kill the nurse, but it looks like old Mary, who chased after Will and me in the long ago. I should kill her, but I let her sleep. She would be ill-advised to wake. I drag the guard into the room and close the door. For a long moment I pause, picturing my escape routes. There is a second exit from the room, leading to the nurse's quarters. As long as I have two ways to run, I feel safe enough. There are passages that lead from the castle, secret tunnels that lead to hidden doors in the high city. I couldn't open those doors from the outside, but I can leave by them. I take a deep, slow breath. White musk, his mother's scent. Another. I step to the cot and look upon my brother. Degren, they call him. He's so small. I hadn't thought he would be so tiny. I reach in and lift him, sleeping. He barely fills my hands. He gives a gentle sigh. The assassin's work is dirty work. I vowed to take the Empire throne, 
to take the hardest path, to win the hundred war, whatever the cost. And here in two hands, I hold a key to the gilden gate, the son of the woman who replaced my mother, the son my father set me aside for, the son on whom he has settled my inheritance. I came to kill you, Degren. I whisper it. He is soft and warm, his head big, his hands tiny, his hair so very fine. My brother. The lamp glow catches the white scars along my arms as I hold him up. I feel the briar's hooks in me. I should twist his neck and be gone. In the game of empire, this is not a rare move, not even unusual. Fratricide. So common there is a word for it. Oft times carried out in person. So why do my hands shake so? Do it and be done. You are weak, Jorg. Even my father tells me to do it. Weak. I feel the hooks so deep, finding the bone as I struggle to save William. The blood runs down me. I can feel it, streaming down my cheeks, blinding me. The thorns holding me. Do it! No! I will burn the world if it defies me, carry ruin to every corner, but I will not kill my brother. Not again. I came here to make that choice, to show that I could have chosen to, to weigh the decision in my hands. And I set Degren back down among his covers. The nurse has put a woolly sheep there with stubby legs and button eyes. Sleep, brother. Sleep well. He rolls limp from my hands, white where my fingers have touched him. I don't understand. Ice forms across me. A sick hollowness fills me until I'm nothing but a brittle shell. I prod him. Wake up. I shake the covers under him. Shake the cot. Wake up! He flops limp, with the white prints of my hands on his soft flesh, like accusations. Wake up! I scream it, but not even the nurse wakes. Sagus is there, in the corner of the room, all aglow. Necromancy, Jorg. How many edges does that sword have? I didn't kill him. He was mine to kill, and I didn't. Yes, you did. Sagus's voice is calm, where mine is shrill. I didn't want this, I shout. The necromancy listens to your heart, Jorg. It listens to what you can't say does what the secret core of you wants and needs. It isn't fooled by posturing. You have the death of small things in your fingers. A small thing died. Take it back. I'm begging. Bring him back. Me? Sagus asks. I'm not even here, Jorg. I can't do much more than keep that fat slatten asleep. Besides, I wanted you to do it. Why do you think I brought you here in the first place? Brought me? I can't look at him, or Degren, or even the shadows, in case Mother and William are watching me from the corner. With dreams of Catherine to bring you to the castle, and dreams of William to lure you inside. Really, Jorg, I thought a clever child like you would have understood how I work by now. It's not the killing dreams that are my best weapons. The most subtle tools have the most profound effect. A nudge here, a nudge there. No! As if shaking my head will make it a lie. 
I bleed for you, Jorg, he says, all compassion and mild eyes. I love you, but you have to be broken. It's the only way. You should have died, and now only breaking you will restore equilibrium. Only that will allow matters to take their course as they should. Matters. The Prince of Arrow will unite us. The Empire will prosper. Thousands upon thousands that would have died will live. Science will return to us in the peace, and I will guide the Emperor's hand so that all might be well. Isn't that worth more than you, Jorg? Isn't that worth the life of a single baby? I scream and hurl myself at him, as if anger might wash away grief. But what I've done has put a crack right through me, and into that crack sages pours madness, a torrent of it. I stagger blind and howling. I see nothing more, nothing until this moment finds me staring into an empty and lidless box. So much madness and regret poured into me that it left no room for memory, nothing for the box. What instincts, luck, or guidance led me from the castle without discovery, or how many corpses I left in my wake, I can't say. Jorg? I turned and looked at Miana, my cheeks wet with tears. Sagus's magics crawled under my skin, but it wasn't his spells that emptied me. I killed my brother. His ghost lay on the bed, stretched behind Miana. Not the soft babe, but the little boy of four he would have been. For the first time ever, he smiled at me, as if we were friends, as if he were pleased to see me. He faded as I watched, and I knew he wouldn't return, wouldn't grow, wouldn't heal. Someone hammered on the door. Sire, the gate is given! I backed against the wall and slid to the floor. I killed him! Jorg! Miana looked concerned. The enemy are within our gates! I killed my brother, Miana! I said, let them come. From the Journal of Catherine Apscorin, March 28th, Year 99, Interregnum, Tall Castle, Chapel. Degren is dead. My sister's boy is dead. I can't write of it. March 29th, Year 99, Interregnum. Jorg did this. He left a trail of corpses to and from Degren's door. I will see him die for it. There is such anger in me, I cannot unlock my teeth. If Friar Glen were not dead, if Sages were not absent, neither of them would live to see the morning. March 31st, Year 99, Interregnum We put him in the ground today, in the tomb where Oliden's family lie, a small white marble casket for him. Little Degren. It looks too small for any child to fit in. It makes me cry to think of him in there. Alone. Mary Codin sang the last song for him. My nephew. She has a high, pure voice that echoed in the tomb, and it made me cry. My sister's ladies placed white flowers on the tomb. Celadine lilies, one each, weeping. Father Eldar had to come up from Our Lady in Crath City to say the words, for we have no holy men in the castle. Jorg has stolen or killed them all. And when Father Elder was done, when he'd read the passages, spoken of the valley of death, and fearing no evil, we all walked away. Sarath didn't walk. Sir Riley had to carry her, screaming. I understood. If it were my baby, I couldn't leave them. Dear God, I can just poison them from my belly, 
let them fall in blood and slime. But if I had held my child, seen his eyes, touched his lips, it would take more than Sir Riley to drag me from him. April 2nd, Year 99, Interregnum I've gone back through this journal and followed the track of my dreams through its pages, at least the ones I wrote about, but I seem to have written about a lot of them, as if they were troubling me. I've no memory of them. Maybe they left me while I scratched them down. I don't want to turn the page back either. It feels as if another's hand is on mine, holding it down. But I won't be kept back. I can see now how the heathen played me, steered me like a horse with light flicks of a whip, just to turn here and there, to set the path across a whole map. I don't believe this magic is beyond me. I can't accept that a thing like Sages should be allowed such power, and that I should not. I can't rule a kingdom like Jorg or Orin. No soldiers will follow my orders and fight, and die on foreign soils at my say-so. These things are forbidden me, because of my sex, because I can't grow a beard, because my arm is not so strong. But generals do not need a strong arm. Kings don't need a beard. I may never rule or command, but I can build a kingdom in my mind, and armies. And if I study what the heathen did to me, if I take it apart piece by piece, I can make my own weapons. April 8th, year 99, Interregnum. Orin Avaro called upon my brother-in-law today. I said that I would marry him, though first he had to promise to take me far from this castle, from this place that stinks of the murderer, Jorg Ancreth, and never to bring me back. Orin says he will be emperor, and I believe him. Jorg of Ancreth will try to stop him, and on that day I'll see him pay for his crime. Until that time I will work on unpicking the heathen's methods and learning them for myself. It's fear that keeps such power from the common man, nothing more. I don't believe that creature sages capable of something I'm not. I won't believe it. Fear keeps us weak, fear of what we don't know, and fear of what we do know. We know what the church will do to witches. The Pope in Roma and all her priests can go hang, though. I've seen what happens to holy men in such times. Here's a power a woman can gather into her hands as well as any man. And the time will come when Jorg will find out how it feels to shatter with his dreams. From the Journal of Catherine Apscorin, June 1st, Year 99, Interregnum, Arrow, Castle Yotrin. We are married. I am happy. July 23rd, Year 99, Interregnum, Arrow, New Forest. We've ridden out from Castle Yotrin to the New Forest. They call it that because some great-great-grandsire of Orin's had it planted just after pushing the Bretons back into the sea. It's my first real chance to see Arrow though mostly we're going to be seeing trees. Egan practically demanded Orin go hunting with him, and Orin wanted me to come. I don't think Egan did. Egan said Orin had promised a private hunt, no courtiers, no fuss. Orin said the richer he got, the fewer luxuries like that he could afford, but promised to keep the hunting party small. Arrow is a lovely country. It might lack Scorin's mountains and grandeur, but the woodland is gorgeous, oak and elm, beech and birch, where Scorin has pines pines, and more pine. And the woods are so light and airy, with room to ride between the trees, not the dense, dark valley forests of home. We've made camp in a clearing. The servants are setting up pavilions and cooking fires. Orin invited Lord Jackart and Sir Talbar along, and Lady Jackart too, and her daughter Jesseth. I think Lady Jackart is supposed to keep me happy, while the men kill things in the woods. She's kind, but rather dull, and she seems to think she needs to shout in order for me to understand her accent. I have no problem hearing her, 
I only wish she would just pause for breath and let one word finish before starting the next. Little Jesseth is a darling girl, seven years, always sprinting into the undergrowth and having to be retrieved by Genin, the Jackart's man. I'd like girls, two of them, blonde like Orin. Orin came back with Egan riding double behind him, Jackart and Talbar flanking. I stood to ask after the deer, but thought better of it. All of them grim-faced, save Egan, who looked ready for murder. Little Jesseth didn't know any better, though, and ran in shouting to her father. Did he bring her a doe or a buck? Lord Jackart practically fell out his saddle and scooped her up before Egan jumped down. The way Egan stared after the man, I thought Jackart might burst into flame. And then I saw the blood, dark and sticky on Egan's hands, like black gloves and drying splatters up his forearms. I'll cut some wood. That's all Egan said, and he stalked off shouting for an axe. Lord Jackard carried his daughter to their pavilion, Lady Jackard hurrying on behind. Dull she might be, but sharp enough to know when to lie low. Egan ran Xanthos into a stand of hookbriar, Orin told me. He spread his hands. I didn't see it either. But you told him to go slow, said to watch for it. Sir Talbar rubbed at his whiskers and shook his head. It's not in Egan to give up the chase, Talbar. That stag must have been an eighteen-pointer. Orin has a way of showing a man's weakness as strength. Perhaps it's the goodness in him. In any case, it makes men follow him, love him. He may work the same magic on me too. I don't know. Poor Xanthos. The stallion had been a marvellous beast, named for Achilles' horse, black like rock oil, with muscle rippling under a slick hide. I had been wanting to ride him myself, but Egan is so hard to talk to. He manages to make me feel as though I've angered him with each word. We don't have so many horses in Scorin, but I've never heard of one killed by a briar. Then I understood, or thought I did. Did he break his leg? Poor Xanthos. Orin shook his head. Sir Talbar spat. Hookbriar is foul stuff, Orin said. It was a miracle he didn't break a leg, but he got torn up along his flanks. The horsemaster, the chirurgeon, could have sewn him up. I couldn't see that such wounds would be fatal. Orin shook his head again. I've seen it before, and the surgeon Mastrickles speaks of it in his masterwork. Even the footnotes of Hentis's Franco-Botany say so. The thorns of the hookbriar are barbed. What they leave in the wound sours. The blood's poisoned. The animal dies. Even men can die. Sir Talbar's uncle caught two thorns in the palm of his hand. The wound was cut and cleaned and packed with salve, and still it went black with rot. He lost the hand, then the arm, then the rest of his days. I understood the blood. At least Egan offered a quick ending. Orin bowed his head. Xanthos didn't linger. Sir Talbar glanced at Orin, then looked away and said no more. I walked with little Jesseth later on, letting her babble as we followed the edge of the glade. Axe blows rang out from somewhere among the trees. Egan had split a mountain of logs, and the cooks already had ten times the firewood they needed. Now he was felling trees. He came out from a stand of elm an hour later, close by where Jesseth and I were playing board checks. The blood had gone from his arms, and sweat ran down a body as muscled and lithe as Xanthos's. He barely nodded our way and strode past, axe on his shoulder. I don't like him, Jesseth whispered. Why not? I asked, bending in with a conspiratorial smile. He killed his horse. Jesseth nodded, as if to prove it no lie. But that was a kindness. Mother says he cut its head off with a sword because the deer got away. July 25th, year 99, Interregnum. Yotrin Castle, Library I found certain scrolls in Orin's library that speak of dreams in terms of tides and currents. There's a woman in the village of Hanum 
who tells fortunes for her living, but she has more to say than that to the right person. In a small room at the top of our house, she's spoken to me of sailing on the seas of dream. August eighteenth, year ninety-nine, interregnum, Yotrin Castle, Royal Bedchamber. Orin has left to command his armies in the west. I will miss him. I will make good use of the rest, though. It seems we've spent a month in the bedchamber. If it takes more than that to make a baby, then I'll be worn out by winter, and an old lady by spring. From the Journal of Catherine Abscorin, July eighteenth, year one hundred, interregnum, Castle Yotrin, Library. Orin is a good man, probably a great man. All the oracles say he'll be emperor and wear the all crown. But even great men need to be disobeyed now and again. When Orin is here, he spends at least half his days in this library. The knights and captains who hunt him down walk into the reading hall furtively, out of place, eyeing the walls with suspicion, as if the knowledge might just leak out of all those books and infect them. They find us, Orin in one corner, me in another. And he'll look at them over the top of one of those great and worthy leather-bound tomes of his, General So and So. He'll say, he lets the kingdoms he's taken keep a general each. He says it's important to let the people have their pride and their heroes. General So and So. He'll say, and General So and So will shuffle from foot to foot, awkward among so many written words, and not expecting the future emperor to look so scholarly, as if he should be wearing reading lenses. Orin reads the great books. The classics from before the builders' time, stretching back to the Greeks and Homer. It's not that he chooses the biggest and most impressive books for show, but that's what he always ends up with. He likes to read philosophy, military history, the lives of great men, and natural history. He's always showing me plates of strange animals. At least when he's here, he is. Creatures that you'd think the author just made up on a hot afternoon, but he says the pictures were captured, not painted, as if an image were frozen in a mirror. And these things are real. Some of them he's seen. He shows me a plate of a whale and puts his fingernail beside its mouth to give the size of a horse next to it. He says he saw the back of one from a ship off the coast of Afrique. Says it rolled through the water, an endless grey sheen of whaleback, broad enough for a carriage and longer than our dining hall. I read the small forgotten books, the ones found behind the rows on the shelves, in locked chests, in pieces to be assembled. They look old. Some are. A hundred years, three hundred, maybe five, but Orin's are more ancient. Mind though, they look older, as if what's written in them takes its toll, even on parchment and leather. Mine was set down after the burning, after the builders ignited their many suns. The ancient books tell a clear story. Euclid gives us shape and form. Mathematics and science progress in an ordered fashion. Reason prevails. The newer stories are confusion, conflicting ideas and ideologies. New mythologies, new magics offered with serious intent, but in a hundred variants, each wrapped in its own superstition and nonsense, but with a core of truth. The world changed. Somewhere along the line of years, it changed, and what was not possible became possible. Unreason shaded into truth. To assemble it all into some pure architecture, some new science that delivers control in this present chaos, would be a work of lifetimes. But I am making a start. I find it more to my liking than sewing. Orin says I should leave it alone. That such knowledge corrupts, and if he must make use of it, then it will be through others, as Oliden used sages, as Renard used Corian. I tell him he mistakes the puppet and the puppeteer. He smiles, and says maybe, but if the time comes, 
he will be pulling the strings, not pulled by them. Orin tells me he is sure I could draw from the same well as Sagus, but such waters would make me bitter, and he likes me sweet. I love Orin. I know I do. But sometimes it's easier to love someone who has flaws you can forgive in return for their forgiving yours. In the red ruin of battle, Brother Kent oft looks to have stepped from hell, though in another life he would have tilled his fields and died abed, mourned by grandchildren. In combat, Red Kent possesses a clarity that terrifies and lays waste. In all else, he's a man confused by his own contradictions, a killer's instincts married to a farmer's soul, not tall, not broad, but packed solid, and quick, wide cheekbones, dark eyes, flat with murder. Bitten lips, scarred hands, thick fingered, loyalty, and the need to be loyal written through him. Chapter 46 Wedding Day Jorg, the prince's men are through the gates! Miana didn't have to shout it at me. I could hear them through the windows, the deep resonances of the scorpions as they fired their spears, the screams, the crash of swords, the strum of bowstrings from the men on my walls, firing down into their own castle now, and the drums, the furious pounding of Uncle Renard's battle drums, a beat so loud and fierce that it picks up even the meekest of men and makes them part of the beast. They drum courage into you. Uncle should have played them that day I came a-calling. None of it mattered. Sagus's poisoned dreams bubbled through me but all their work only played variations around a nightmare of my own making. I killed my brother. After years defined only by the quest for revenge, years consumed by the need to reach William's murderer, I took the life of my brother, a baby who could barely fill my hands. Jorg! I ignored her. I held my hands before my face, remembered the feel of him, remembered the realization that he was dead. Degren, my brother. Tutor Lundist showed me a drawing once, an old woman's face. Look again, he said. It's a young girl. And it was. Just a trick of the mind. Nothing had changed, not one line of the drawing, and yet everything was different. The box gave me Degren back, and he had spoken to me across the years. Look again, he had said to me. Look at your life. Now look again. And suddenly, nothing mattered. She slapped me. The little bitch slapped me. And for a second, that mattered. She'd put her whole body into it. But the anger died quicker than it came. Then a siege rock hit the window to our right. Fragments of stone flew across the room, smashing on the far wall. Dust rose around us. I'm not going to die here, Miana said. She had her hand in my hair. She turned my head to the window and its torn bars. Part of the wall below the window had fallen away, and we could see the courtyard where the peasants had gathered to cheer us that morning. A wedge of arrowsmen, marked by their scarlet cloaks, had driven in through the ruins of the portcullis that Gorgoth had once held open for me. My soldiers, half of them goatherds, with the swords I'd given them, hemmed the enemy in. I saw the blue of Lord Jost's small contingent and the gleam of their plate armour. The odds were against the intruders, but the weight of numbers behind drove them forward as they died. The Prince of Arrow poured his men into the killing field my archers and troops reducing them but not stopping them, and under it all, pulsing through it, the throb of the battle drums. Do something! Miana shouted. It doesn't matter. 
I said. Everyone dies. My past, my ghosts, danced around me, the dead, the betrayed. I considered diving through the shattered wall into the foe over the heads of my men. Could I make such a leap? With a run, maybe, a short run, and a long drop into eternity. She slapped me again. Give me the ruby. I fished out the bag and put it in her hand. You deserved a better husband. Miana gave me a look of contempt. I deserved a stronger one. There's no victory without sacrifice. My mother taught me that. You have to raise the stakes and raise them again. She was a warrior? I shook my head hard. Dreams showered from me. The dead held me with cold hands, tearing my insides. A card player, Miana said. Miana went to the fireplace and picked up one of the two fire screens, an exotic tapestry in an ebony frame. She beat it into splinters against the wall and repeated the process with the second one. Outside, the wedge of scarlet developed into a semicircle around the broken gates. Beyond the walls, a blood-red sea would be surging forward. Miana picked the two heavy stone bases from the wreckage of the fire screens and placed the ruby between them. She tried to tear strips from the tapestries, and finding them too resistant, she tore lengths from the hem of her wedding dress. Despite the emptiness pulsing inside me, a tickle of curiosity scratched at the back of my mind. A stray arrow struck up through the window on the left and buried itself in the ceiling. Miana bound both the stone bases together, good and tight, with the ruby between them. Is Lord Joss still fighting? she asked. I crawled to the broken wall, blinking to clear my sight. I can see knights from the house morrow. I think one of them is Jost. Miana bit her lip. Sometimes you can only win if you're prepared to sacrifice everything, she said. I started to wonder if I didn't get my darkest streak from my mother's side of the family. Her eyes grew bright. Tears for the dead. Miana, what? She ran at the gap, feet falling to the drumbeat, and hurled the stone bases out. I wouldn't have thought she could throw so hard or so far. The package sailed over the heads of the men, fighting, dying, pressing in the crush to be at each other. It flew over the highlanders, over Jost, over Arrow's red-cloaked foot soldiers, bounced once in a clear spot to the left of the gates, and smacked against the outer wall. I remember only light and heat. The boom was heard as far away as gutting, but I heard nothing. A hot fist knocked the air from me. I saw Miana thrown back toward the fireplace. The burn on my face ignited as if it were on fire again, and I howled. A moment before, nothing had mattered. But we're made of flesh before we're made of dreams, and flesh cares about pain. When I rolled to my hands and knees, I could smell my own charred skin, as if the burn really had reignited. I crawled to the hole and looked out. For long moments I saw only smoke. There was no sound, none at all. Then the mountain wind hauled the smoke off stage, and the ruination lay before me. The front walls of the haunt were gone, all the tanneries, taverns, abattoirs, animal pens before them. Gone. Just smoking rubble. And out beyond that, the prince's huge army, tattered, wide avenues of destruction carved through it by chunks of masonry the size of wagons tumbling down the slope. The damage appeared to have been wrought by the walls exploding. Although most of the force seemed to have been directed away from us, the heat and fire had been confined within the courtyard. Rank upon rank of blackened corpses radiated from the spot where the ruby broke and released. In one moment, the flame magics hoarded inside it over many years. The bodies closest to the release looked crisp. Those further back still burned. The dead where Lord Jost and his men had fought 
looked red and melted, farther back still, and men rolled in horrific agony. Back farther, their lungs hadn't been seared, and they could scream. And back farther still, closer to the base of the keep, survivors struggled up from under the dead who had shielded them. The timbers supporting the walkways for the archers burned. The shutters on the windows facing the courtyard burned. The remnants of my scorpions burned. Something lodged in the bone of my cheek burned with its own heat, and in every flame possibilities danced. I could see them, as if the fire were a window into hot new worlds. I guessed I had lost three hundred of my remaining eight hundred men. In two heartbeats, a twelve-year-old girl had destroyed the prime fighting men of Renar. I looked out across the slopes. The Prince of Arrow had lost five thousand, maybe seven thousand. In two heartbeats, the Queen of Highlands had cut her foe in half. I shouted down into the courtyard. I could barely hear myself over the ringing in my ears. I tried again. Into the keep! Into the keep! My face hurt. My lungs hurt. Everything hurt. The air was full of smoke and the screams of the dying. And suddenly, I wanted to win again. Very much. I went over to the fireplace and picked Miana out of the rubble. Dust fell from her hair as I hauled her onto my shoulder. But she coughed, and that was good enough. Chapter 47 Wedding Day I laid Miana on my bed and left her there. She had proved tougher than expected so far, and it looked as if she'd just been knocked out. Habit put the lidless box back in my hip pocket. Although I couldn't see the fires in the courtyard, I could feel them. When I woke the builder's son beneath Mount Honus, its power had ignited Gog's talent. It seemed that releasing the ruby's fire magic in one blast had woken in me what echoes of Gog and his skills had lodged in my flesh when he died beneath Halredra. I pushed back against the feeling. I remembered Ferrakind. I would not become such a thing. The Horn's Keep has four towers, my bedchamber being at the top of the eastmost one. I went to the roof. A young guardsman sat hunched on the top steps just below the trapdoor. A new recruit by the look of him, his chainmail shirt too big for his slight frame. "'Waiting here in case giant birds land on my roof, try to force an entry?' I asked. "'Your Majesty!' he leapt to his feet. If he weren't so short, he'd have brained himself on the trapdoor. He looked terrified. "'You can escort me up,' I said. He would have plenty of time to die on my behalf later on. No point chasing him down the stairs myself. "'Roderick, is it?' I had no idea what the coward's name was, but Roderick was popular in the Highlands." "'Yes, Your Majesty!' A relieved grin spread over his face. He unbolted the door and heaved it open. I let him walk out first. Nobody shot him. So I followed. From the tower battlements I could see the prince's army on the slopes, in even more disarray than my own troops. It would be an hour and more before his captains imposed order. The units reformed and merged before the dead were heaped, the injured carted to the rear. A haze of smoke hung across the remains of the shantytown, that had stood before the haunt's walls. The brisk wind could do little to shift it. Despite the fires in the courtyard below, it felt cold on the tower. The wind had teeth up there and carried the edged threat of winter. I crept to the east wall and looked out toward the ridge, where the prince had the bulk of his archers positioned. They seemed to be in some confusion. Trolls had emerged from several still-undiscovered exits and were busy parting the lightly-armoured bowmen from their heads again. I ducked down, I'd had my head up for two heartbeats. 
It took an arrow three beats to fly from the ridge to the keep. And sure enough, several shafts hissed overhead. They all missed Roderick, who hadn't had the wit to get behind cover. I knocked him flat. Stay there. I took the builder's view ring from inside my breastplate and held it to one eye. Making the image zoom in to one area still made me feel as if I were falling, plunging from unimaginable heights. I knew it must be a matter of moving lenses, as Lundist had shown me in my father's observatory, but it felt as if I rode the back of an angel falling from heaven. Jorg! Jorg! Makin's voice from down below. He sounded worried. We're up here! I called. A moment later, Makin's head poked into view. At least I assumed it was him in the helmet. You didn't burn up then, I said. Damn near. I couldn't find Kent. I think he's gone. Watch this. I waved him over to my side. It should be good, but don't stick your head up too high. I took Makin's shield from him and held it over my head for extra cover. We peered over the battlements. The battlefield had fallen almost silent after the explosion, still with the screaming, of course, but without the crash of weapons, the war cries, the twangs and thuds of siege machinery. The drums were voiceless, too. Uncle's six great battle drums, brass and ebony, wider than barrels, ox-skinned, now burned out and smouldering among the corpses in the yard. Beneath it all, though, I could hear a new drumming, a faint thunder. Makin cocked his head. He could hear it, too. It sounded almost like another avalanche. That's cavalry! Arrows brung up his cavalry, Jorg! Makin started to crawl for the wall, overlooking the haunt's ruined front. I pulled him back. There's only one place for miles a horse can charge, Sir Makin. And they came, in a rushing stream of blue and violet cloaks, silver mail thundering past Martin's hidden troops, the foremost with their lances lowered for the kill. What? Makin almost stood up. I once told Sim about Hannibal taking elephants across the Orps. Well, my uncle has brought heavy horses across the Mataraks in the jaws of winter. How? I made quick circles with my hand, as if trying to spin the cogs of Makin's mind a little faster. The Blue Moon Pass, Makin grinned, showing more teeth than a man should have. Even so, I said, I emptied it out for him, and Lord Jost must have signalled that the marriage was sealed. And here they are. The cavalry of the House Morrow sliced through the ranks of foot soldiers sent up to hunt out Gorgoth's trolls. It helped that most of Arrow's troops had their backs to the runyard, since they'd found rather more trolls than they had wanted to. In fact, the trolls were making an impressive hole in Arrow's ranks all by themselves. They moved like wild dogs on the attack, hurling themselves into knots of men and leaving scattered limbs in their wake. Whoever bred them for war had surpassed themselves. Riding onto the archer's ridge required that the cavalry slow, but they could traverse the whole length five and eight abreast at the canter, killing as they went. The archers were no match for armoured knights. Most broke and ran, tumbling back down the mountainside. There were perhaps five hundred of my grandfather's cavalry. Gorgoth withdrew his trolls as agreed and left the men to fight each other. I couldn't tell what losses the trolls had suffered, but they were not insignificant, and I knew that Gorgoth would not permit them to rejoin the battle. He had wanted a homeland for his newfound subjects, and they had paid the price I asked of them. "'Incredible!' Makin shouted. He kept shaking his head. "'It's not enough,' I said. The charge left bloody slaughter trampled into the grit. Hundreds upon hundreds died before the momentum broke, and even without the cohesion of the charge, the knights wrought havoc, striking down with axe and sword at the heads of running bowmen. 
but you can't run five hundred men into four thousand and not expect to pay. The knights were wheeling now, finding their way down the back slope of the ridge and turning toward the runyard again. Perhaps half of them survived. They were magnificent. Makin surged to his feet. Weren't you looking? They were magnificent, and when they join us, we will have a little over seven hundred men in this broken castle. Depending on how many of the troops routed in that charge can be rallied and reformed, the Prince of Arrow will have somewhere between five and seven thousand men. I went to look out over the prince's main army. On the battlefield, losses of the sort I'd inflicted would have set any army running long ago. But I'd been cutting away whole chunks of Arrow's force one at a time, separating them, drawing them away, destroying them. I had whittled at his numbers, carved them to the bone, but I hadn't thinned his ranks in the way that erodes an army's morale. Not until Miano's explosion had the main bulk of Arrow's troops even felt the battle. Now the explosion, that could have set them running, but it didn't, and that just told me the prince's men were every bit as loyal and well trained as reported. A glance toward the runyard told me the horse coast knights were beginning to enter the sally port. A small number of men remained to lead the horses back up into the mountain passes. Martin and his troops would bring up the rear. Let's go meet them, I said. By the way, this is Guardsman Roderick, Guardsman Roderick, Lord Makin of Ken. Lord, now is it? Makin grinned. And what would I be wanting with the Ken marshes? Not that they're yours to give. I led the way down. Well, if we don't win, it won't matter that your elevation is a hollow gesture. And if we do win, well, the Prince of Arrow has taken a lot of land recently, so I'll have plenty to hand out. And I get the squishy bit, Makin said behind me. Come meet my uncle, I said. He's got lots of good recipes for frog. I looked into my chamber as we passed. Miana sat on my bed, rubbing her head slowly with both hands, as if she were afraid it might fall off. Lord Robert has arrived, I said. Stay here. Guardsman Roderick will protect you. He's one of my best. I turned to the guard. Keep her here, Roderick, unless she comes up with a plan to destroy the remainder of the enemy. In which case, you're to let her do it. Makin and I carried on down. I caught hold of one of my knights, nursing a wounded shoulder and burned whiskers. You, Heckam, is it? Go to the cellar beneath the armory, the one with the fecking big barrels. You'll find our southern allies coming out of one of them. Send Lord Robert and any captains he wants to bring up to the throne room. Heckam, if it was Heckam, looked confused, but nodded and absented himself. So we headed for the throne room. I caught hold of another man as we pushed past the wounded in the corridors. Have my armor brought up to the throne room. The good stuff. Quick about it. Uncle Robert arrived with two of his captains as three page boys set about strapping me into my armor. Several of my own captains preceded him. Watchmaster Hobbs among them. There are rather more of the enemy than I was led to believe, nephew. Uncle Robert didn't wait on formality. In fact, he only just waited to get through the doors. There are many thousands fewer than there were this morning. I said. And your castle appears to be broken, Uncle Robert said. You can blame your goddaughter for that, but it was a dowry well spent. I said. Good Lord. Robert took off his helm. The ruby did that. He shook his head. They told us to be careful with it. I didn't realize the danger, though. Rubies are hard to break. I said. It's not the sort of thing that you're likely to do by accident. He pursed his lips at that. So, nephew, I've come for you. Where do we stand? I still liked him. It had been four years since I saw him last, 
but it felt like little more than a lull in the conversation. And he had come for me, just as a skinny boy had dreamed before he ran betrayed from the tall castle. Uncle Robert had come, with the cavalry behind him. That drained some poison from the wound. We stand about knee-deep, Uncle, I said. It looked more like chest-deep from where we entered those caves, he sagged slightly, the exertions of the fight catching up with him. Smears of blood crossed the brightness of his breastplate. A deep dent caught the light from odd angles, and the left side of his face had started to darken into a single impressive bruise. I shrugged. Either way, we've got shitty boots and the situation stinks. He has thousands to our hundreds. He can besiege us in this keep from the ruins of my own walls. There's no question that he could wear us down within months, possibly weeks. If the situation is lost, if it were always lost, why did I spend the lives of two hundred knights out there? Why did we even beat a path through the mountains in the first place? His brows drew close, furrowing his forehead, a dangerous light in his eyes. I knew the look. Because he doesn't want to wait months or even weeks, I said. Makin stepped up from behind the throne. The prince has been attacking as if he intends to crush us in a day. He needs to now, I said. He wanted a quick victory before, but now he needs one. He didn't want to wait the winter out here. He had a huge army to feed, a timetable to keep to, other powers to consider, newly acquired lands to police. Being a prisoner of the Highland winter was never his plan. But now he needs to win today, tomorrow at the latest. In a day or two, his army will start to understand the scale of their losses. His captains will start to mutter, his troops will leak away, and the stories they tell elsewhere will lend Arrow's enemies courage. If he takes us today, then the stories will run a different course. The talk will be of how he crushed Jorg of Ancrath, who levelled Geleth, who humbled Count Renar. Yes, the losses were high, but he did it in a day. In a day. And how does all this help us? Uncle Robert asked. I don't think he can take us in a day, and neither does he, I said. Even so, we will still all die, no? It might ruin the prince's plans, but that's cold comfort from where I'm standing. Uncle Robert glanced at his captains. Tall men burned dark by the southern sun. They said nothing. It helps because it will make him accept my offer, I said. Offer? You told Cod in no terms. Makin stepped off the dais to take a good look at me as if I might not be Jorg at all. No terms! The echo came from Miana, helped in by young Roderick. She looked pale, but otherwise unhurt. I'm not offering terms, I said. I'm offering him a duel. From the Journal of Catherine Apscorin, August 27th, Year 101, Interregnum, Arrow, Green Knight Palace, Red Room. Orin is campaigning again. The bigger his domain grows, the less I see of him. He took Connaught in the spring with just 3,000 men. Now he's marching an army toward Normandy with 9,000. He even talks of taking the lands of Orlanth into his protection, though there are other realms to consider first. He never speaks with desire, as if he wants those places for himself, to have them bow and scrape before his throne, or to fill his war chests. He talks of what he can do for the peoples of those lands, of what they will gain, of how their freedoms will increase, their prosperity, their prospects. It would sound false from any other man, but Orin believes it, and he can do it. In Connaught they already worship him as one of their old heroes reborn. To me he speaks with desire. Since the day we were married he has made me feel treasured, happy, and I know I make him happy too.
though there is always that touch of disappointment, expertly hidden. If I had not spent so very many days delving into the stuff of men's dreams, I wouldn't see it. But I do see it, and I'm cut by the knife I have forged and sharpened. Orin wants a child. I do too. But it has been two years. Sarath says in her letters that sometimes it can take two years, sometimes four. She herself has borne no child in the years since Degren, but for little Merith, who sickened and died so quickly. I think grief made Sarath barren. Jilly and Kerriam also say it can take two years, just as Sarath said. They say we're young, it will come soon. For the first year, they believed it. March 28th, Year 102, Interregnum, Arrow, Greenite Palace, West Gardens. Egan is back in the palace. I say back, but he has never been here before. Orin had the palace built after the Duchy of Belpan surrendered to him, and Egan so rarely returns from campaigns that this is the first time he has laid eyes upon it. He's been wounded again, in the side this time, falling off a horse onto something sharp, he says. Egan always seems to mend quickly, though, as if he just won't tolerate any kind of restraint, even if it's his own body that tries to impose it. I've been reading Roland of Thurton's On the Dreamlands and Below. I like to read it on the balcony that overlooks the herb gardens. The formal gardens are, well, too formal and too large. I like to look over the herb gardens with their little pools, the sundial and the moon dial that I'd put there, and to breathe in the scents. Also, it's not a book for reading indoors or in the dark. It only takes a paragraph or two of Roland of Thurton before the walls seem to be closing in on you. Egan practices with his sword in the Grand Square every day, in front of the statue of his father. There's a sorcery in the way he moves. It reminds me of the dancers out of the Slav lands, those elfin creatures all grace and air, though he adds force to their grace. It's not until he brings in men to spar with that you understand how fast he is. He makes them look silly, even the best among the palace guard. Something in him scares me, though. The passion with which he pursues each victory. Watch him fight and you wonder if there would be anything he might not do in order to have what he wants. April 15th, Year 102, Interregnum. Arrow, Greenite Palace, Herb Gardens. Egan is still here. He recovered quickly, although they say it was a dire wound. He seemed eager to heal and be back doing what he loves, cutting a path through anyone who opposes Orin. But now he idles around the palace. He even came into the library today, a place I've never seen him. I both like and don't like the way he looks at me. Some animal part of me relishes it. Every reasonable part of me is offended. Although I can find nothing to like in Egan that does not start with what my eyes give me of him, there's still a mystery there. When he watches me, it's with an instinctive understanding of women that is denied to the wise, denied to Orin. Orin and Egan are on campaign again this summer. The days are long and hot and lonely, though there must be a thousand souls in this palace of ours, at least fifty of them ladies of quality brought in just to keep me company. I've learned to travel in dreams, keeping every part of me focused and lucid, though I walk through the realms of possibility and of impossibility, or sometimes fly or swim or gallop. The path of the world is a line, a single thread through the vastness of dream, and if I follow that line, I can scry what is real, rather than wallow in the randomness of strangers' imaginations. I've sent messengers out to explore the places that I've visited in this manner, and confirm the truth of my observations. 
I dreamed of Jorg of Ancrath last night, and in dreaming of him became tangled in the stuff of his own nightmares. The margins of his dreaming are set with briar so thick and sharp, I woke expecting my nightclothes to be shredded and soaked with blood. And a storm rages over it all, so fierce it shook the sleep from me. It seemed almost as if he'd set barriers to keep intruders out. Or perhaps it was all my own imagination. I can hardly send out messengers to check. This morning my head aches. The quill shakes in my hand, and I see the page through slitted eyes. They give fennel powder in arrow rather than wormwood. It works no better. I would swap the pain behind my eyes for the cuts of that briar. But it seems to be the price I pay for pushing into the dreams of others. May 22nd, year 102, Interregnum. Arrow, Greenite Palace, Grand Library. Orin writes me that he has employed Sagus as an advisor of sorts. The heathen had settled in the court of Duke Normandy after fleeing Oliden's protection. Orin writes that Sagus has proved useful in foreseeing the lie of the land ahead of their path and in interpreting certain troubled dreams he has suffered. I've written back by fastest rider to beg Orin to dismiss the heathen immediately. I would have written hang for dismiss, but Orin is too even-handed for that. June 23rd, year 102, Interregnum. I tried to visit Orin's dreams, as I have done every night since I discovered the capacity for it. Tonight I could find no trace of him, just a space in the dreamscape where I sought him, just blankness and the memory of the spice, the coriander seed, that the heathen seems to breathe. In desperation I sought out Egan in his sleep, but found no trace of him either. The others in Orin's retinue I haven't enough familiarity with to find among the hundreds of thousands who shape the dream stuff. I've a new physician, a dirty little man from the Slav steppes, but his infusions calm my head. He's older than old, and what words he has of empire tongue are oddly shaped. Even so, Lord Malas makes good report of him and his medicines work. June 26th, year 102, Interregnum. I found Orin dreaming. I couldn't walk in his dream, a golden thing of many layers, but it seemed to me that he has fought off whatever attempt Sagus has made to control him. Maybe he was right about being the one to hold the strings. It troubles me, though, that I'm kept out. Perhaps it's a barrier fashioned by the heathen, or a defence of Orin's own making, whether by conscious will or natural resistance to direction. Where Jorg kept me out with thorns and lightning, Orin used a calm and simple refusal. I hope he has sent Sagus scampering back to Olid and Ancrath in the tall castle. July 12th, year 102, Interregnum, Arrow, Greenite Palace, Ballroom. This palace has stood for almost two years, and no one has danced in the ballroom. Orin would host a ball to please me, have his lords and ladies descend upon the palace in their carriages. Hundreds would come in satin and lace. He would dance with the precision and grace that amazed his tutors, be attentive to my needs, compliment the musicians, and all the time I would know that behind his eyes grander thoughts were circulating, plans, philosophies, letters being written, and that when the last revellers had been taken home dead drunk across their carriage seats, Orin would be found in the library, scribbling notes in the margins of some weighty tome. Egan has written to me from the celebrations after the capture of Orlant's last castle. I say it is Egan, but I have never seen his hand before. It would surprise me if he has ever written a letter until now. Perhaps a scribe set it down for him, for the characters are formed with practised skill. But the voice is Egan's, 
he wrote, Catherine, we have Orlanth from the western plains to the borders of the Ken Marshes. Orin concerns himself with plans for Baron Kenick. He will play politic, offer terms, massage the old man's ego. We should just roll through there without pause and leave it smoking in our wake. Orin has sent me to Castle Traley in Connaught. It stands in the middle of nowhere. After the excesses of East Haven, he says he worries for me. He says I need rest. I need rest like I need poison. What I require is to be tempered in the forge of war and to pitch exhausted into dreamless sleep each night. Connaught is a haunted place. I dream such dreams here. I stare at the walls and fear the night. Even though I dream of you, they are not good dreams. I don't know what to do. Orin will hear no wrong of his brother. I've seen it before. Somehow he always finds an angle from which Egan's deeds can be viewed as excusable. I've never done anything to encourage this passion, this obsession in Egan. I favoured Orin from the start. If I had wanted a savage, I could have smiled on Jorg of Ancrath, and what a creature I would have been tied to then. Orin needs to send Egan away, to give him some castle on a disputed border, some war to occupy him. It can't be that he needs his brother always at his side. One blade can't turn a battle, surely, no matter how skilled. July 18th, Year 102, Interregnum I have searched for Egan in the dreamscape, and he is still hidden from me. The messages I send go unreplied. I don't even know if the riders are reaching Orin's army. Report has it that he's closing on the Renar Highlands. Part of me wonders if Sagus is Jorg Ancrath's tool. Has he unleashed his father's pet upon my husband? October 28th, Year 102, Interregnum I found Egan's dreams, but they were dark and closed to me. I sense the heathen's handiwork and worry at his plans. Has Orin proved too difficult to steer? Egan would be easier, like a bull goaded this way and that by the fluttering of rags. It's maddening to be closeted in this palace, with all that matters unfolding three hundred miles away. October 29th, year 102, Interregnum. Still no word from Orin or from Egan, but reports come in of tens of thousands on the move, men under arms, all converging on the highlands, and of Jorg Ancrath skulking in his single castle with less than a twentieth part of that force. And still I worry, for Orin, with his cleverness and strength and patience and wisdom, even for Egan, with his fire and his skill, because I remember Jorg of Ancrath and the look in his eye, and the scars he carries, and the echoes of his deeds that still vibrate through the dreamscape. I remember him, and I would worry if Orin had ten times the number, and Jorg stood alone. November 1st, Year 102, Interregnum I made a dream, a thing of light and shadows, and set it dancing in the head of Marcus Gohall, captain of the palace guard. It made it easier for him to agree with me when I demanded that he assemble a suitable force to guard me on my journey to my husband's side. It made him forget all thoughts of arguing. Instead, he nodded, clicked his heels in the way the men of Arrow do, and gathered four hundred lancers to escort me south. We set off early, before the dawn stole shadow from the sky, and we rode out at a gentle pace, the horse's breath puffing in clouds before them, the leaves golden and crimson on the trees as the first light found them. And I felt watched, as if someone on high were paying close attention. Brother Gog I miss. There's no sound more annoying than the chatter of a child, and none more sad than the silence they leave when they are gone.
Chapter 48 Wedding Day This is madness, Jorg. God made the Prince of Arrow to stand behind a sword. That's what everyone says about him. He's not like other men, not with a blade in hand. He's not human. Makin stood before the throne now, as if he were going to block my way. And it will turn out that he was born to die behind one too, I said. I've seen him fight, Makin shook his head. I hope you've got something up your sleeve, Jorg. Of course, I said. Makin's shoulders fell as he relaxed a touch. Uncle Robert smiled. The best damn sword arm in history is what I've got up my sleeve. The protests started immediately, a chorus of them, as if my court had filled with disgruntled geese. Gentlemen, I stood from my throne. Your lack of faith dismays me. And you wouldn't like me when I'm dismayed. If the Prince of Arrow accepts my challenge, I will meet him on the field and find victory there. I pushed past Macon. You, I pointed to a random knight, get my herald here. I felt reasonably sure I had a herald. I turned and looked Macon in the eye. I did tell you that I fought Swordmaster Shimon, didn't I? A thousand times, he sighed and glanced at Lord Robert. Shimon said you are good, Jorg, Uncle Robert said. One of the best he's seen in forty years. You see? I cried. You see? But he met Orin of Arrow two years later and judged him the better blade. And Orin's brother Egan is said to be the more deadly of the two by a considerable margin. I was fourteen. I'm a man now, full grown. I can beat Macon here with a chair leg. Trust me. I'll have the Prince of Arrow down and bleeding before he even sees my sword. The levity was something made for show. I would fight the prince, win or lose, chance or no chance. The madness Sages had set in me had been burned away, and I would dare the odds against victory, however slim. But still, I had killed my brother. Flame could not consume that guilt. I would carry it with me to the battlefield, and maybe they would bury it with me. They found Red Kent trapped beneath the charred corpses of Lord Jost's men. I had him brought to the throne room when I heard. "'You've looked better, Sir Kent,' I said. He nodded. Two of my guard had carried him in, bound to a chair, so he wouldn't fall from it. "'And felt better, brother.' His voice came as a hoarse whisper from lungs scorched by blistering air. Even now, when neither of us knew if he would live or die, Kent kept his eyes lowered, humble amongst lords and knights, despite me elevating him to their rank. He would throw himself into the teeth of an army, given but slight encouragement. But a throne room full of men, more used to silk than leather, made him cower. I stepped from my throne and crouched before him. I would give you something for the pain, Brother Kent. But I want you to make a battle of it. Fight these burns. Win. I'm offering no terms for surrender. My own burns still screamed at me. Surely only an echo of Kent's pain and that of others from the courtyard. But still, it gnawed at me, throbbing in my cheekbone and the orbit of my eye. Something on the edge of vision caught my attention, and I turned away from Kent, back toward the throne. Two oil lamps stood to either side of the dais, enameled urns in black and red, set on wrought iron stands. The flame dancing on each wick within its glass cowl looked odd, too bright, too orange, taking on too many flame shapes at once. I held my hand above the glass 
and could feel no heat, only a pulsing vital force that raced along my arm, making me want to shout out. Never open the box. Highness, the Herald has returned! I snatched my hand back, almost guilty in the action. My Herald stood at the doorway between two table knights. He looked the part, handsome and tall, in his livery, gold-spun and velvet. And what did the Prince of Arrow have to say to my offer? I asked. The Herald paused, a gossip's trick to draw in more listeners, though we could be no more intent. The Prince will meet you on the field of combat to decide the outcome of this battle, he said. I saw Makin shake his head. Well and good, I said. And did he name his ground, or accept my invitation to battle on the Runyard Ridge? The Prince felt the ridge to be constructed more from troll than from stone, and has identified an area of flattish ground close to Rigdon Rock, midway between the castle and the current position of his front line. He will bring five observers to watch from a distance of twenty yards, and expects that you will do the same. Tell him his choice is acceptable, and I will join him there in an hour, I said. The herald bowed, and set off to deliver my words. Makin, I'll want you there. But first, get Olvin Green, or if he's dead, then somebody good with arrow wounds. I want him and six strong men to get up to Codin. Have them treat his injury there, if he's still alive, and bring him down as soon as it is safe to move him. Makin nodded and left the throne room without a word, just setting a hand to Kent's shoulder as he passed. I'll want Lord Robert with me, also Reich, Captain Keppen, and Father Gomst. Uncle Robert lowered his head in agreement, then stepping onto the dais and bending close. Why a priest? Good swords are what's called for in case of treachery. The Prince of Arrow will bring five good swords. I'm bringing three, plus an archer, in case the bastard runs for it, and a priest, so that in times to come the truth may be told concerning what occurred. I let them strap me into my armour, pieces of silvered steel, well crafted and without adornment. I carried no crest, no emblems on this mail. Decoration is for peacetime, for people playing games, but not understanding that they do. The Hundred War, you must know, is a game, and to win it you must play your pieces. The secret is to know that there is only one game, and the only rules are your own. With the memory box gone, I had all my plans in mind now. The trick was not to dwell on them, to give no edge of them for sages to take hold of. One slip, and the game would be over. Whilst the page boys bolted and strapped and sweated, I held the builder's ring to my eye. For a moment, I saw Miana through it, across the room, and wondered if she might fit her hand through the ring and wear it as a bracelet on that tiny wrist of hers. And then the image formed, the whole world before me as a jewel of blue and white a canvas on which even all of empire would not look large. A small motion of my fingertip along the ridged edge of the ring, and the point of my perception fell to earth, faster than an arrow, faster than a bullet even. Oh yes, I know of those. The image blurred with speed for a heartbeat, two, three, and then snapped into focus. However vast the telescope that must hang above us, it could offer no closer view than this, an image miles across, in which the haunt's outline could be seen, but the details lay hidden. The mass of the prince's army made a darker smear on the mountainside. I could see the shape of the larger siege engines, and the men around them like specks of dust. I moved my fingertip again, and the image went black. 
by flickers, I counted as it jumped through four voids, where whatever eyes the builders once had were now blind, and then, with my finger on the last of the ridges, a new scene. I could see the army and the smoking wreckage of my walls, as if I stood on a nearby mountaintop. Stroking the metal side to side, and moving my fingertip forward by hundredths of an inch, I drove the view in closer, zeroing upon the ground by Rigdon Rock. In most places, the builder's ring can see no closer than the miles-high bird's-eye perspective I described, but in maybe one place in five, there are other eyes it can use. By exploration and extrapolation, I found the location of an eye that I now exploited. It sits on a high ridge in the Matarax, entirely hidden from view when not in use. When I call upon it, a gleaming steel shaft rises from behind black doors set into the natural rock and lifts a black crystal dome into the air. I've stood below this dome and listened to the faint hum and whir as I changed the ring's view. Some mechanical eye must sit within and answer my needs. I left it as I found it. These eyes, in the vaults of heaven and down amongst us, burrowed into the living rock, are a work of genius. Even so, I wonder at a people who felt the need to be watched in every moment and at every place. Perhaps it was what drove them mad. I would not be spied upon so. I would blind such eyes. Fex LeBruze went mad. Fourteen years after his echo was captured and held in that machine, he took a gun and shot himself. A Colt four and five, they called that gun, though it looks no more like a horse than the horse coast does. I found Fexler, but it wasn't easy. I found him on my long and wandering return to the Renar Highlands, and it cost me pain and lives. Lives I valued. A rare commodity. Fexler had put a bullet through his brain, but even then, the machines wouldn't let him go. They held him trapped between fractions of a second. I pushed away the thought, the image of the weapon in his time-frozen hand, rubies of blood motionless in the air about the exit wound. I forgot about the stasis chamber, before Sages saw my remembering. They say God watches us in every moment, but I think in some moments, when some deeds are done, he turns his face away. What do you see, Jorg? Miana at my side now. That the killing ground is clear. I took the ring from my eye. Can you win, Jorg? she asked. Against this prince. They say he's very good. I felt sagus. I smelled him, picking at the edges of my thoughts, trying to filch my secrets. He is very good. And I? I'm very bad. Let's see what comes of that, shall we? I made a wall of my imagination and kept my mind from wandering forward to what would happen. My hands knew what to do. I did not need to think of it. There's a strong box built into the base of my throne at the haunt. Before they set my helm in place, I knelt in front of the throne and set the heavy key into the lock plate. I lowered the side and reached in with my right hand, slipping it into the straps of the small iron buckler within, then drawing it out. I closed my fingers around the curious grip of the object that the buckler hid and smiled. Imagine Fexler Bruce thinking I would take no as an answer. I left the box open and stood, stepping off the dais so that the page boys could reach to strap my helmet on. Move my sword belt round, Kevin, I said. The boy frowned and blinked. He looked like a child. I suppose he was, no older than Miana. Sire? I just nodded, and still frowning, he unbuckled the belt and refastened it with the hilt sitting on the steel above my left hip. Some men name their swords. I've always found that a strange affectation. If I had to call it something, I would call it sharp. 
but I'm no more inclined to christen it than I would my fork at dinner or the helm upon my head. I walked from the throne room, taking slow steps, with all eyes on me. Red joke, Kent said in a whisper as I passed. Red would be good, Kent, but I fear I am darker than that. When I opened that box, I got more back than memory. The flames on the torches by the doorway flared as I passed, infecting me with strange passion. I felt watched by more than my court, by more than sages and the players who seek to move the hundred across their board. Gog watched me from the fire. I looked back one time to see Miana beside the throne. Lord Robert fell in behind me. Captain Keppen and Wright joined us outside. Time to jump the falls, old man, I told Keppen as he stepped beside me. He grinned at that as if he knew the hour was upon us and shared my hunger for it. I led the way through my uncle's halls. Degren no longer haunted me from the shadows. The fact of my guilt no longer came bound in the promise of madness. But I knew my crime even so. Death waited for me on the slopes, one way or another. Death would be good enough. Death at the prince's hands, death on the swords of his thousands. Or the death Fexler had saved me from, when he anchored into Luntar's little box those forces of necromancy and fire, with their hooks sunk so deep into me, and their pools opposing. And that reminded me, I took the empty box out one last time to toss it aside. Pandora's own casket had hope lurking within, the last among all the ills unleashed upon us by her misguided curiosity. She might have let hope fly, but not my way. Even so, I looked into the lidless box once more, hand raised to throw it to the floor. And there, on the polished copper interior, one small stain. One last memory? Reluctant to return? I set a finger to it, and the darkness of it soaked through my skin, leaving only bright copper behind. This memory didn't seize me, didn't lift me from the now, but settled in as a recollection while I walked the haunt's corridors. I remembered that last talk with Fexler, back in Grandfather's castle. Fexler had been considering the box as I held his view ring to it. Sages? He had mused over the buzzing of the ring. Sages? That filthy dream thief did this to me? Put madness in me? Sages has done far worse than that, Jog. He put you in the thorns. Fexler had paused, as if remembering. What kept you there is another matter. Every thorn scar had burned at his words. Why? I'd asked. Why would he do that? The hidden hands that move the pieces of your empire have prophecies they like to share. They like to talk of the Prince of Arrow and his gilded future. And then they have foretelling they are less eager to spread. The hidden hands believe that two Ancraths joined together will end all their power, will end the game. Two? I'd laughed at that. They're safe enough then. When you survived against all odds, it seems some value attached to you, Faxler had said. And I had grown cold, knowing at the last how the players had tried to keep two Ancraths from joining on their board. They would have seen Oliden's sons die together, and when I escaped that end, and became as useful to their games as Father Deer himself, did they let me live because they knew I would never join my cause to his? Or had the possibility been considered long ago, and had the wedge between father and son not been driven there entirely by our own hands? I will find the heathen and kill him, I had promised Fexler. 
Sagus is nothing but a savage, straining truth through superstition to dabble in dreams. Fexler shook his head. Still, he's hard to catch hold of, I had said. Oh, how I wish he'd go away, Fexler had replied, his voice half-song. What? An old rhyme, an ancient rhyme, I suppose. Sagus puts me in mind of it. As I was going up the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. That's Sagus for you, the man who wasn't there. The thing to do, of course, is to change it around. Oh, how I wish he'd always stay. What? I wondered if ghosts could grow senile. Faxler had come in close then, and set his ghost-like hand to the box. But none of this is any use to you until the puzzle of this box is done. This Gordian knot unraveled. I'll put it in the box. No! I shouted. I wouldn't let him take this memory from me. No what? Fexler had asked. I forget, I had said. No? Makin asked at my side, back in the corridors of the haunt, the Prince of Arrow waiting outside with his sword and thousands more behind. I shook my head. My hand held the empty box, crushed now in my grip, blood on it from old thorn scars bleeding once more. The box fell from me, and I kicked it to the wall. No, I said. Just no. Father Gomst waited for us in the courtyard. A path had been cleared through the dead. They lay heaped to either side, as if it were the road into hell. And the smell of it, brothers. It made my stomach rumble. And worse, as I walked that path between the corpses, stacked and charred, they twitched. Hands red in ruin flexed at my passing, burned skin sloughing from fingers. Heads lolled, dead eyes found me. The men with me, focused in their purpose, didn't see it. But I saw. I felt them all, uneasy in their new slumbers, as the dead king watched me through them. Never open the box. Death and fire had their hooks in me, deeper than deep, and each had started to pull. I should be tending the dying, Father Gomps said, almost shouting to be heard over the screaming from the circle gallery where they had been taken. Let the dying tend to themselves, I said. I knew that Father Gomps would have been no comfort to me when I lay groaning in the Heimrift. I saw Grumlow at the keep doors, hanging back in the shadows. I waved him forward. Show the dying a little mercy, Grumlow, I said. He nodded and departed. I knew I would have appreciated Grumlow's quick, sharp mercy back in the Heimrift, rather than a slow exit accompanied by Father Gomp's moralizing. We walked along the pathway, cleared of the dead, but not the grease of burned flesh, the pieces of skin, the charred outlines of men. No one spoke. Even Reich looked grim. It was appropriate, though. My uncle, the Duke of Renard, had been a burner. He had spread his own terror that way, and I had come to take the place from him, with Gog at my side, filling the courtyard with cremations. The Prince of Arrow had it right when he called the Ancraths the darkest branch of the steward tree. I had long wondered if I would stand against Orin of Arrow when he came a-calling. He was perhaps the brightest fruit from the branches of the Emperor's line. In the four years since I claimed the Highlands, I had walked the Empire, returning at last to suppress Cousin Jarko's uprising in the West, then battled less tangible foes, sickness in my people and in the economy. In the same span, the Prince of Arrow had built his strength and taken five thrones, 
It was perhaps only the repeated whispering of the wise, telling me I must cede him the Empire throne, that made me think of opposing his march to the Gilden Gate. I do not like to be told. Now, though, with the copper box torn open and my memories and sins returned to me, I felt that more had been restored, as if I had been a shadow of myself, almost me, but with something vital stolen away, something so bonded to my crimes that Luntar had been forced to set it also into his box of memories. I might not live to see the sun set on this day of blood, but if I did, four years would not pass again and find me no closer to my goals. We walked out through the ruins of the sprawled town where burning chunks of the haunt's outer walls had left only wreckage in their path. No trace of Jering stables where Makin had once rolled in dung to be ready for the road. Even now, I could end this. The prince would accept a peace. His progress was too important to him not to. And who would say that he would make a worse emperor than I? I could match the very worst of his crimes with my own, then trump them with darker deeds. There had been times aplenty in the clarity of high places among the peaks when I had thought to leave Orin of Arrow a clear path. But things change. A different Jorg approached the dueling ground, a different Prince of Arrow. This wedding day had seen Jorg Ancreth remade in an older mould. I had that old thirst on me once again. Blood would flow. Music rose around me, faint at first, a piece my mother used to play on the piano. A rare instrument, a complex thing of wires and keys and hammers, ancient, but the notes she scattered from her right hand were clear and high, pure like stars against the black and rolling melody from her left. Sometimes just a single ice-pure note can catch the breath in your lungs, and a second off-tempo thrown into the void can command chills across your skin. A small run, a flutter of the hand of the blue notes can take you anywhere, any time, make you feel new or settle the press of years upon you, heavy enough to stop you drawing breath. We walked through broken stone, charred timbers. The melody pulsed under the crackle of flame, her left hand running through the deepest notes. Reich towered above me on one side. My uncle walked on the other. I felt the high refrain. I saw my mother's hand finding the high notes, the black keys, the ones that made me ache inside my chest, like the cries of gulls above wild seas. After so many years of watching her hands play in silent memory, I heard her at last. I heard her music. Down the mountainside, down toward the serried expanse of the prince's army, still the music, the deep, slow melody, the high and broken counterpoint, as if the mountains themselves had become the score, as if the glories of hidden caves and secret peaks had been wrapped around the ageless majesty of the ocean and turned into the music of all men's lives, played out by a woman's fingers, without pause or mercy, reaching in, twisting, laying us bare, to the level ground before the grey bulk of Rigdon Rock. The music slowing now, the notes scattered, just the counterpoint played out in the highest octave, sad notes, faltering, faint. I glanced at Makin, remembering that first day when he handed me a wooden sword, all those earnest boys of his ready to learn his game. I'd shown them that it wasn't play, that it's always about winning, but I don't think they understood it even then even with the best of them lying choking on the floor. A great trebuchet lay burning by the rock. It must have ignited closer to the walls and been dragged this far before they realized it was a lost cause. I wondered if it were the one that threw the rock at my bedchamber. The flames watched me. They leaned toward me. The Prince of Arrows stood waiting. 
the dragon still clutching his namesakes on the rainbow sheen of his Teuton armor. His five knights stood at the agreed distance, and I left my seconds at the same remove. They made a funny line, Reich towering at the center, looking like six kinds of bad news. Makin and Robert to either side. Old Gomst on the right, wearing every holy thing he owned, in the hope that nobody would stick an arrow in him. And old Keppen on the left, a sour face on him, as if he had no time for this foolishness. I walked over to meet the prince. Open your keep to me, and we can end this. The prince's voice muffled within his helm, dark eyes watching. You don't really want me to, I said. Better this way. I turned my blade to catch the light. Stop trying to be your brother. Him, I would have opened the gates for. Maybe. The prince lifted his visor. He offered a fierce and joyless smile, then pulled the helm clear, running a hand back across hair bristling, thick and short and black. Hello, Egan, I said. I liked you better as road filth, he said. It suited you. Smoke from the burning siege engine drifted across us. I heard Wright cough. I like your armor. I may take it for myself when they pry it from your corpse, I said. He frowned, black brows meeting. You're right-handed. What game is this? I set my left hand to my sword hilt. I often fight right-handed. I hope you haven't based your assessment of my skills on spies who saw that. I'm much better with my left. Egan shifted his weight onto his back heel. You fought Orin with your right... True, I said. I was sorry to hear that you killed Orin. He was a better man than both of us. Perhaps the best man of our generation. He was a fool, Egan said, fixing his helm in place again. Too easy with his trust, maybe. I heard that you stabbed him in the back and watched him bleed to death. Egan shrugged. He would never have fought me. He would have talked and talked and talked. He spoke as if it were nothing, but it haunted him. I could see it in his eyes. And how did Catherine take news of Orin's death? I asked. I saw him pale, just half a shade. Prepare to defend yourself, Egan said. He drew his sword. I paid it no heed. I told Orin that I would decide about him on the day he came to the Highlands again. I said, I think that I would have followed him and called him emperor. I hoped that I would have. You should have left it for two weeks. Then you could have murdered him after moving through the Highlands. It would have worked out better for you. Egan spat. We are two fratricides met for battle. Are you ready? You know why I've practiced with the sword every day since we last met? I asked. So it would take me a few moments longer to kill you? Egan asked. Nope. Why then? So you would believe that I'd stand against you in a fair fight, I said. I raised my right hand, pointing the gun at him from beneath the plate-sized buckler. What's that? asked Egan. He took a step back. It has the word Colt stamped into the metal, if that helps. Think of it as a crossbow, but all squeezed down into one small tube. You can thank an echo called Fexler Bruise for it, I said. I shot Egan in the stomach. The bullet punched a small hole in his armor. 
and knew from testing on a watermelon that the hole on the other side would be larger. Bastard! Egan staggered back. I made to shoot him in the leg, but the gun jammed. Lucky that didn't happen first try, eh? I drew my own blade, in my left hand. He almost blocked the swing of my sword. I had to admit he was pretty good. The blade crunched into his knee, and he went down. The five knights Egan brought with him started to charge. I fiddled with the gun, banging it against the hilt of my sword. I raised it again and fired once, twice, three, four, five times. They all went down, with red holes in their faces. I would have missed with my left hand. Bastard! Egan tried to crawl toward me. This is not your game! I shouted, loud enough for arrows thousands to hear if they hadn't been screaming for my blood as they surged forward. I shrugged. I don't play by the rules. You choose. I knocked Egan's sword from his hand and waved my seconds forward. Bring Gomst! The gun had no bullets left, so I threw it and the buckler aside and crouched behind Egan to pull his helm clear. I had to use my knife on the straps. I may have cut him a little. You don't have to end like this, Egan. I took hold of his neck. There's death in my fingers, you know. It hurt me when you named me fratricide. But it's true. I killed poor Degren without even thinking about it. Can you feel it yet? Can you imagine what I can do when I am thinking about it? When I actually want to hurt you? He screamed then, as loud as I've ever heard a man scream. See, I said when there was a gap. I'm not proud of how I learned to do that, but there it is. The devil makes work for idle hands. I can kill parts of your spinal cord and leave you in that much pain for the years before you die. I can paralyze you and take away your speech, so no one will know how you suffer, and you will not be able to seek or beg for an end. The prince's soldiers came on at a run, but they had a lot of mountainside to cover. What do you want? He asked. I'd already killed the link between his mind and his muscles, so he knew I wasn't lying. I was only lying when I implied I might be able to restore it. Let's be friends, I said. I know I might not be able to trust you, even if you called me brother. But do it anyway. What? Egan said. Jorg, we need to run. Uncle Robert put a hand on my shoulder. I ignored him. And let more pain flood through Egan. Call me brother. Brother, brother, you're my brother. He cried, then screamed, then gasped. Father Gomst, did you hear that? I asked. The old man nodded. Let's make it official. I said. Adopt me into your family, brother. I hurt him again. Jorg. Makin pointed at the thousands coming our way, as if I hadn't noticed. I, you're adopted. You're my brother. Egan gasped. Excellent. I let him fall. I stood and wiped his blood from my hands onto Makin's cloak. We need to run. Makin took a few quick steps toward the haunt to encourage me. Don't be silly, I said. We'd never make it. What's your plan? Makin asked, "I'd hoped they would just give up. I mean, it's not as if they like this pile of dung." I kicked Egan in the head, but not too hard. I might yet need that foot for running. 
I've killed more than half of the bastards. Both their princes are gone. You'd think they'd just go home. I shouted this last part at their ranks, close enough to see faces now. That's it? Uncle Robert asked. You just hoped? I grinned and faced him. I've lived the last ten years on hunches, bets, hope, and luck. The fire danced behind him as timbers fell from the trebuchet. The flames held that same strangeness as those in the castle. A flat, brittle look. Crimson striations flushed through them, a stippled effect. I am going to watch you die. Sages stood to my left, naked but for a loincloth, despite the cold, every inch of him written upon. He had surprised me, but I tried not to let it show. I stepped toward him. I am not here. Will you never learn, Jorg of Ancrath? I could see he hated me. That in itself made a small victory, putting some emotion in those mild cow eyes of his. Are you not? I asked. He looked at Egan, limp and bleeding in his rainbow armor. I could have done great things with that one. Do you know how long it took to find a man so powerful and yet so malleable? I couldn't work with Orin. He had less given him than your father, and that's saying a lot. You set him to kill Orin? I asked. It wasn't hard. It needed the slightest push in the right direction. Sweet Catherine proved too tempting, and poor Orin was just in the way. Men like Egan have only one answer to things being in their way. So many little pushes, Dream Witch, I said. You probably don't even remember the dream that made you beg to visit Norwood that day. Do you, Jorg? What? Images bubbled at the back of my mind. The fair at Norwood, the bunting. I'd wanted to go. I'd pestered my mother. I'd almost dragged them into that carriage. It was you? Yes. He showed me a tight, vicious smile. Your sins cried out for it. He mimicked me. I was a child. Sages looked down at Egan. They cry out for it now. A cold fire rose through me. I'll tell you what my sins cry out for, heathen. They cry out for more. They call for company. And I stepped toward him. I am not here, Jorg, he said. But I think you are. I felt him try to weave my vision, try to walk away and dream. And then I saw her, a ghost of her. Catherine, white with anger, and the more beautiful with it. A ghost of her at his shoulder, waiting in the place he sought to run to, like a mirage on hot sand, her lips moving without sound, chanting something. I could see her sitting on horseback, with the same knights around her that she brought with her from Arrow's palace. Somewhere back in the mass of that army, Catherine rode her horse blind, her eyes bound by visions as she cast spells of her own. And with each silent word from the tight line of her mouth, Sagus grew more solid, more there. I reached for him. I met a man who wasn't there. My hands almost found the heathen, the stuff of him slipping away as my fingers closed. What had Fexler said? It's all about will. Put aside the skulls, the smokes, the wording of spells, and at the bottom of it all is desire. He wasn't there again today. Wanting makes it so. Oh, how I wish he'd always stay.
and my grasping hands found him. Whatever may be said about the aftertaste, in the moment, revenge tastes sweeter than blood, my brothers. I seized his head and tore it from his shoulders, as though I were a troll and he only human, for he had walked too long in dream and his flesh was rotten with it, tearing like the scribbled parchment it resembled. He made his own silent screams then and tried to die. But I held him there. I let the necromancy bind him into his skull. There is not sufficient hurt in this world for you. And the fire that burned in my bones, that echoed in my blood, lit about my hands, and he burned with it also, trapped, living, and consumed. I threw his head toward the oncoming troops. It bounced flaming on the rocks, flesh bubbling, lips writhing. Burning was too good for him. I walked toward the flaming wreck of the trebuchet, the fire running up my arms now. Jorg! Makin asked, his voice quiet, as if at least half of him was hoping not to be noticed. Better run, I said. We can't outrun them, Wright growled. From me, I said. The fire leapt as I approached it. It looked like glass, like a window. Behind me, Makin and the others ran. I laughed, the joy of it, the roaring joy of destruction. That's why the flames dance, for joy. There's only one fire, I said, and I knew Gog watched me from it. I reached into the blaze and found him, flame made, his white hot hand in mine, the fragments of his lost body still in my flesh, preserving me. In the core of me, this new fire magic, call it magic or understanding or empathy, made war on the necromancy that still infected my blood. The prince's troops passed Rigdon Rock. A spear flew by my head. Come to me! I said, Brother Gog. Truly? he asked. There will be no end to this, like the sun beneath the mountain. A million images tumbled through me, faces, moments, places, brothers of every kind, the weariness of the world, and the fire consumed it. I knew then how Ferrakind felt. Let it all burn! And Gog flowed into me. A river of fire, eating the death magic and making something new. A darker fire that ran like poison, coiling about my limbs. The first of Egan's army reached me, and the fire lifted from my hands. The men shredded, their flesh lifting from them as sea foam before a wind, their bones igniting as they fell. The dark fire ran, jumping from man to man as the soldiers tried to flee, tried to turn and run, only to find their comrades not yet understanding, surging forward. I walked amongst them, and death walked with me. Death and fire. Ferrakind howled at me from the place where fire lives, a song of destruction stripping away what makes me. Ferrakind and every other lost to flame, all one now, fused, screaming for me to join them. And in the dry place into which the dead fall, other voices, just as compelling, implacable. The dead king reached for me, along the paths through which necromancy flowed into my core, flooding me. These two among the many, both of them fought to claim me, dogs over a bone. And while they fought, death and flame blossomed about me in conflagration. And men died, in tens, in scores, in hundreds, in stinking, steaming, screaming heaps. Chapter 49 Wedding Day the warrior rides a black stallion. Smoke shrouds the castle ruins behind him, and the wind gives only glimpses of the corpse-choked gap 
between high and broken walls. That same wind streams long dark hair across his shoulders, like a pennant, and flutters the remnants of his cloak. To his left and right, more riders emerge from the fog of war. Warriors all, their armor dented, torn, smeared with soot and blood. A huge soldier in battered plate mail carries the standard, Ancrath's boar in black, upon the red field of Renar. They come by ones and twos, slow in their motion, as if the great distance from which they are seen has somehow robbed the urgency from their movement. Each hoof lands with the finality of tomb doors closing. No sound to accompany the action. Each bounce and jolt in the saddle takes an age. Where the baked dirt flakes from the warrior's plate armor, the metal shows the rainbowed hues of oiled steel. Beside him, an older, dark-haired knight, half a smile on thick lips, black curls plastered to his forehead, an eagle's head on his round shield worked in red copper, fire bronze and silver, broadsword at his hip, black iron flail secured to his saddle. A second man in plate mail on a white charger rides to their left, at home in his saddle as any sea-dog on a rolling deck. His armour is worked with the gothic engravings of the horse coast, his cloak blue in memory of the sea, on his jousting shield the white ship and black sun of the house morrow. A priest follows them, perched uneasy on a fractious mule. The wind throws wisps of grey hair across his scowl. The man at the centre, at the arrow point of this emerging army, stares straight ahead. A wolf skull hangs from the pommel of his saddle. A wolf, or a large hound. The man's face is scarred, the left side rough and twisted, as if the sculptor had heard the work bell and left in mid-action, leaving his creation unfinished. Over one eye, fixed to the boss rim and side of his helm by iron rivets, is a silver ring, big enough to rest against his eyebrow and cheekbone. If you knew the edge were ridged, you might imagine you could see those ridges. But they're a prisoner of the distance between us, as in any message in that thousand-yard stare. I got bored with watching myself and flipped the ring up, so my view lay unobstructed. They had found me naked, every item on me seemingly burned away, except for my sword, on which flames still danced. That fire held to the blade for hours, and even now, from time to time, I see reflections of flames in the steel. I've named my first sword. I call it Gog, though I think it holds only an echo of him, like that echo of Fexler Bruise, a man who shot himself in a stasis chamber long ago with a Colt forty-five. The world turned, he said, and it left him behind. I'd opened my eyes as Makin wrapped me in his cloak. The wound on my chest was just pink edges and white seams. The fire burned every trace of the necromancer from me, and in the end, as it failed, that death quenched Gog. I felt the absence of both, like holes in the world. Gog is ended. I won't see him again. The fire has left me, for it always was his, never mine, and the necromancy too. I may have clothes and armor now, but I am naked against the world once more, with nothing but the sharp wit, tongue, and blade of the Ancraths to see me through. I think that if they had not fought each other over me, Farrakind and the dead king, if either had his sole attention on me, 
as I opened myself to their realms and let those places burst through me in such reckless abandon, I would have been claimed. Such powers can't be mastered, not without cost, and that cost would seem to include losing all those reasons you wanted that strength for. And it is a sacrifice I would have paid in the moment, with the arms of thousands raised against me. In the end, my brothers, there is no price I will not pay to win this game of ours. No sacrifice too great that it will not be paid to stop another placing their will over mine. We ride for Arrow. I feel they owe me a castle at the very least. A palace might be nice too. And all those dead soothsayers and seers of the future. We're friends now. I am the Prince of Arrow. Ask Father Gomst. He was there, looking whilst God turned away. Egan adopted me into his family, and he's dead now, not at my hand, but trampled by his own men. So I'm the Prince of Arrow, homeward bound, destined by right and vision to be the Emperor, and to sit upon that golden throne beyond the Gilden Gate. We ride for Arrow, an avalanche that thunders from the highlands. This world will bend to my dominion. The box is open, its memories free. Old wickedness and sins loosed once more. I'm not that boy, the wild boy on the edge of manhood, who filled it. He stands in my past, and soon the curvature of the earth will hide him as the years carry us apart. I'm not that boy, and his crimes don't stain my hands. I'm riding for Arrow. I will delve shoulder-deep in gore if the need arises. So deep no river could scour me clean, though they cut through mountains. My dreams are my own now, dark and pure. If you would know them, brother, stand in my way. I told Sagius my sins cried out for more, and I intend to give them company. I will burn, and I will harrow, and Orin's lands, Egan's blood-stained inheritance, will be delivered into my hands. I will stand King of Arrow, of Normandy, of Connaught, of Belpan, of the Ken Marshes, of Orlanth, and of the Renar Highlands. I will take these lands and make a weapon of their peoples. In fire and in blood, I will bend them to my will, because this is a game with no rules, and I will be victorious if it beggars hell. I write this as we camp after a hard day's riding. I make a crabbed hand across pages as white as gold can buy. Perhaps they were destined for more worthy thoughts, but I set mine here. Sagus wrote his words across his skin, and it left him weak. My father keeps them to himself, and it leaves him less than human. I write mine here as if ink and paper can take the blame from me. The surgeons like to bleed a man, to let ill humours out, so that he may face the world anew. Perhaps they should just hand him a quill and let the poison spill from him, whilst he keeps his blood for its intended purpose. Beside my pages are Catherine's, scavenged from the ruination below Rigdon Rock. I saw her burn. I saw her among the flames, her horse screaming. Or was that a dream in the darkness that followed? In any event, the wind scattered her words across the dead, and I followed them to the corpse of a baggage mule. I said once, these feelings are too fierce to last. They can only burn, make us ash and char. And we burned, both of us. But still I want her. 
though if she stood here now, she would only hate me, and pride would edge my tongue to cut her in return. Pride has ever been my weakness and my strength, but there are three things only of which I am proud. The first, I climbed God's finger to stand alone in that high place and find a new perspective. Second, I went to the mountain for Gog, even though I couldn't save him from his fire, just as no one can save me from mine. Third, I fought the all-sword, Master Shimon, with the sword song all around, and we made a thing of beauty. There will be pride to come, enough to drown in, but perhaps there will be no more things of which to be proud. A time of terror comes, a dark time. The graves continue to open, and the dead king prepares to sail. But the world holds worse things than dead men. A dark time comes. My time. If it offends you, stop me. The End You've been listening to King of Thorns by Mark Lawrence, narrated by James Clamp. If you've enjoyed this book and this performance, Recorded Books recommends Theft of Swords, Book One of the Raira Revelations by Michael J. Sullivan, narrated by Tim Jared Reynolds. When they killed King Amrath of Melangar, they pinned the murder on two men. They couldn't have made a worse choice. Royce Melbourne, a skilled thief, and his mercenary partner, Hadrian Blackwater, make a profitable living carrying out dangerous assignments for conspiring nobles, until they are hired to pilfer a famed sword. What appears to be just a simple job finds them framed and trapped in a conspiracy that uncovers a plot far greater than the mere overthrow of a tiny kingdom. Can a self-serving thief and an idealistic swordsman survive long enough to unravel the first part of an ancient mystery that has toppled kings and destroyed empires in order to keep a secret too terrible for the world to know? And so begins the first tale of Michael J. Sullivan's epic series of treachery and adventure, sword-fighting and magic, ancient myth and legend. Recorded Books offers a wide selection of bestsellers, mysteries, classics, histories, and more. So visit us at recordedbooks.com to learn about our latest releases and special offers. And thank you for being a Recorded Books reader. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.